Hey everybody, today Rado Talks for episode 68 of the podcast, and Happy New Year everybody. Uh, although, with the events of this particular week, I'm right now talking to you on the 8th of January, it was maybe not quite as happy as I had originally hoped, uh, what with what's going on in the world, but you know what? I'm going to try and put all that aside right now. I'm going to hopefully have your questions help distract me from the events of the day, and maybe in return I'll help distract you a little bit as well, right? Here's hoping. Um, And before we continue any further on, well, things probably seem normal if you're checking out the podcast on your smartphone app or some podcast website. But if you check out the podcast on YouTube, you may have noticed I'm on screen. I am actually on camera. Uh, A bunch of people have asked me, and I figured, what the heck, let's give it a try. Let's record the video in addition to the audio while doing the podcast so that YouTubers who like to watch will have something to look at. Now, it won't be much. It'll just be me, and I'm actually going to put the uh, the letter, the email, over there. Although, I think I'll have to be careful about names and stuff. I've always tried to just say, refer to people by the first name. We'll see how it goes. I did try to arrange things so there's certainly no email addresses are spotable. And don't worry, if you're listening to the podcast instead of watching, you're not going to miss out on anything. This is not going to become a visual podcast. Uh, it just means people will be able to see the dog pictures a bit quicker rather than having to go to uh, doggo.rado.com. All right. So, Yeah, that's a whole lot of preamble, and with that out of the way, hold on, we'll be right back, starting with the game-related questions, right after this. Okay, everybody, here we go. We are starting out with a big old email from Josh, who says, Rado, I love your channel. I got introduced to the hobby after my difficult divorce. Your videos are a highlight in that dark time. I'm glad to hear that, Josh. The first video I ever watched was Gloomhaven, and yes, I have actually finished the game. I'm glad to be a patron supporter of yours, and I love the Black Lives Matter shirt. I really do hope you work with Jeremy Howard. He is another person that makes me glad to be in our hobby. I'm sure, Josh, by now you've seen that Jeremy and I did a top 10 in December, and we both had a great time. Anyway, on to my question. Of the, quote, T games, end quote, I know that you... Should or I know that Jen loves Sulkin. Which ones are your favorite? I love Dave Turchie, and I'm excited for the Anachrony Infinity Box coming soon. So Tawan Sinsuyu is amazing, in my opinion, and I vote for you to cover that in December. And let's see. That's a good question. And it's a tricky one to answer because there are different definitions of what the T-Series is. Um... I, I have not had a chance to play Tawan Sensuyu yet, but I'd really look forward to it someday. At this point, I wouldn't consider it a tea game, though, because for me, it has to start with tea. It has to be about ancient um, you know, civilization building, and they have to be at least co-designed by, da- by Daniele Tassini. That's another big part of the tea. And as I understand it, this is mostly Dave's design. Although Dave has worked with Daniele on other games. So, um, I mean, with that in mind, I think the the tea series for me right now is uh, Zolkin, Tekenu, and Teotihuacan. And I agree with Jen. Of those three, I like Zolkin the best. Uh, maybe it's because Daniele, uh, uh, you know... 
worked with his frequent collaborator. Um, wait, no, I'm getting them mixed up. Oh man, Simone, yeah, worked with Simone Luciani probably, and the two of them together really were able to produce something. Although again, all three of those games are fantastic. But for Teo Tiwakan and Takenu, I felt in both cases there could have been a little bit more done with the two-player, and I never really felt that way in Zolkin. So that's why it comes out on top for me, and I think it comes out on top for Jen just because she loves those spinning gears. Teotihuacan's expansion really does a lot to um, bridge that shortcoming. But even still, I mean, if we're bringing expansions in, then the Zolkin expansions are amazing. Now, he does have another one coming, as I mentioned it, in my uh, 2021 Most Anticipated Games list. Uh... Uh, it was the City of Ur. I don't remember the full title of it. I should have opened up a browser first. Let's take a looky-loo at that and um, go to boardgamegeek.com and see if I can find that. Uh, do, 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 do. Uh, what was it called? Actually, how would I find that? Um, I could just search for T. I, I think it was tab something or other. Or to have, I mean, again, it was the name of another uh, ancient civilization. All right, let's not do that. Let's just go on ahead and look at Takenu and then sort by designer. And, uh, and, you know, of course, other people, by the way, talking about this T series, for folks who don't know, there's a series of games, most of them from the same publisher, but not all of them, most of them from Board and Dice. And they generally have Daniele Taschini. And for me, the T means Taschini that have, uh, you know, these interesting settings. Uh, and people like to call it the T-Series. There's another one uh, from Daniele Tassini in Board and Dice called... Oh, Trismegistus. And I don't consider that to be part of the... Uh, what do you call it? The uh, series either, because it's not about ancient civilizations. So that means it doesn't really fit, at least by the way I like to define the T-Series. But anyway, yeah. Uh, uh, Temenusi. The Builders of Ur, which is going to be coming. And who knows, maybe this will become my new top. But for me, these are the four games in the T-Series, and Zolkin still reigns supreme. <clears throat> okay. So, uh, also, Josh added, here are my doggos, Humorous and Cheddar. Humorous is three and a half years old, and Cheddar's only five months old. Cheddar is fascinated with our new Christmas tree. Thanks, Rado. I really uh, do appreciate your content and everything you do to fight social injustice. Thank you very much for that, Josh. And let's take a look at these pups, if you're on YouTube, that is. And I don't know which one is humorous and which one is... Oh, what was the other name? I mean, it's hard. I mean, Cheddar uh, really suffers by comparison with the name Humorous. Uh, but they, these are awesome Christmas dogs. And for folks on, on YouTube who want to see these pup pics, go to doggo.rado.com. D-O-G-G-O dot rado.com on your web browser. And you know what? I've had a lot of people say, what? Doggo? What was that? I'm actually... Think I'm gonna put another. You can go to doggo.rado.com or just dogs.rado.com because not everybody uses the internet meme-worthy doggo phrase. So go to dogs.rado.com or doggo.rado.com to check out Cheddar and Humorous enjoying the the festive season. All right, Josh. Thank you for um, supporting the show and uh, thanks for the great question. Okay, now. Let's move on to Nick, who says, Hi, Rado. Your run-throughs have been extremely helpful to me in choosing which games to try out as I've gotten more into the hobby. By the way, folks, I'm going to interrupt here for a second and say you may notice a change, another change today for the new year in the podcast. Normally, when I read these uh, emails, 
I switch the pronouns around to make it sound like, you know, when somebody says you, I say me. When somebody says I, I say the name of the person. So it feels more like I'm kind of telling a story to you. But um, as you will hear, in the when we get to the gen portion of the podcast, uh, this kind of came up because we're as often I'm recording out of order. I did Jen, Jen and I did the podcast a few days ago on Wednesday, uh, the sixth, the day which shall live in infamy. And we got halfway through, and then I was going to do my half. And when we found out what was going on in the world, we said, "Yeah, I don't think I feel like recording the podcast anymore." But anyway, we're in game section right now. We're not in personal section. But anyway, when we were recording that, it kind of came up. That maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should just read these emails as written and stop switching things on the fly and stop interrupting halfway through because it makes it harder for you, the audience, to keep track. I'm trying to do it to make them more engaging, but I, I think, especially now that it's on YouTube and people can actually see the emails as written, it probably makes sense to read them as written as well. So sorry, that's totally as an aside. Um, I did ask though, if for folks who don't make it into the personal section, I'm genuinely curious. Should I just read them as is, or should I change them so um, that every time uh, it says uh, "Rado, your favorite game," I would say uh, "my favorite game," as if I was, you know, talking. Spontaneously, I think it's probably better just to read as is. So let's continue. So Nick says, "I've noticed. I've started. I'm just. Yeah, I just did it. I, I've noticed. I've started because I, I said me when Nick said you. I'm reading it as is. This is hard for me to change. This is how I actually read rules to Jen when I read the little, um, you know, the intros that set the thematic stage. And uh, you know, if, if it says you, the player, or if it says players, I'll just on the fly change them to we, so it feels like me and Jen. I'm talking about us. It's just a habit I've been in. But I'm going to try and break that habit, unless you folks say otherwise." Continuing with Nick, starting again. I've noticed that you started using solo variants more in your run-throughs. Is this because of the growing interest in solo gaming on your part? Because it's easier than thinking through two players' turns? Or some other reason? While I do like solo gaming myself, the energy level of bot turns is lower in a run-through than human turns, and watching the bot rarely helps me understand the game better. I don't intend to be critical and still enjoy the videos. I'm just wondering if you considered this as a possible downside, or if, on the other hand, you found that people are now seeking your videos out specifically to see the solo variant in action. <clears throat> Some examples have been Takenu or the recent Bonfire video. I find that I disengage a bit when it comes to interpret the when it comes time to interpret the automa or review its decision tree. Attached a good boy named Archie. We're gonna have to put that question on hold because I need a good boy named Archie. And Archie is a very good boy. Oh, that is a sweetie, which folks you can check out Archie, who what are you, Archie? I'm not quite sure. You almost look more like a fox. But anyway, Archie is a very good boy, which you can find at dogs at dogs.rado.com or doggo.rado.com. But anyway, okay, getting back to it. You are right. This is definitely something that last year, I don't remember quite when. I think it was fairly early, or maybe you know, April, May-ish time. I started finding I I, I started shifting to wherever possible covering the game solo. I just put up a video today. I recorded it last week for Hollertow, which was a solo recording. And you are right to guess one of your three suppositions, specifically the middle one, because it's easier than thinking through two players' turns. That is a big part of it. Because, um, yeah, I won't deny, I'm a scatterbrain. And it is tough to be two completely separate... 
I mean, I've been doing it for a decade. You'd think it'd become second nature by now, but it's not. It's work. And uh, to keep Jen's and my strategies in mind at all times, you will often see in videos that I get mixed up. It, it, it does become a source of goofs because I think I'm doing Jen's turn, but I'm really doing mine. And I get, um, you know, and I end up, oh wow, that was a whole turn that was totally wrong because that's not my secret objective card. It's Jen's secret objective card and stuff like that. And obviously, all that goes away and it just becomes much more simple and streamlined and straightforward when I'm only making decisions for myself and then I just follow a quick menu. And I will agree. There's no two ways about it. There is a compromise on the overall quality of the game, especially if you're looking for uh, more variety. But on the other hand, if I'm only making choices for one player, which is where the lion's share of the length of my games comes from, if I'm only deciding for myself, that means, strictly speaking, I can make it twice as far into the game in the same amount of time. So I can play through one round as two players, or I could play through two rounds as one player. So maybe you're not seeing as much variety in strategies, although again, I always try to point that stuff out, but you're seeing a game played further and deeper. So I kind of felt like that's a nice trade-off for making my brain explode a little bit less. You are also correct to guess that um, there are a lot of people out there, a lot of gamers, and this year more than ever, who very much appreciate the demo of the solo mode because they're evaluating the game from a solo perspective. And you, as a multiplayer gamer, can still get a pretty good idea, I think, of what the game feels like when I demo solo. But a solo player has no idea what it feels like if I don't demo solo. And so here's a very important caveat. I don't do this on every game that features a solo mode. In fact, I do it... Um, I, I, I More often than not, I don't do it, even still. I do it when the solo mode, I feel, 95% captures the feel of the basic game. So, when I'm using an automa or a bot or whatever, and they are doing the same stuff that a human player would do, it's just that rather than them making strategic decisions based on their setting. They are just looking at a card or checking a list or whatever. Besides what they do. But they're still going to do the same stuff. And they still create the same obstacle for me to deal with because they block worker placement spots or take resources that I wanted. If they end up having the same impact on me as a player, then that means I can still demonstrate what it's like to play against a human player because the bot is doing human player stuff. And I can play deeper into the game than before, and I'm less likely to make goofs, and solo gamers get um, real value. <clears throat> so it's a combination of all those things. But there's one more. And I didn't expect this when I started doing it, but it quickly became obvious to me that the real reason I'm doing it more than anything else is it's uh, maybe a bit selfish, but it's genuinely more fun. Uh, you may not be able to tell, because, because I generally try to keep positive and upbeat and high energy, although I don't feel very high energy today, I have to admit. Um, it's hard to tell that I'm not actually having fun when I film run-throughs. It's work, and uh, it's tough, and the heavier the game, the more mentally taxing it is. I have found doing solo run-throughs is often genuinely fun and i'm actually playing the game while and you know and enjoying myself while still doing everything i can to try and demonstrate all the features of the game and articulate my thought process and all that but it's a different feel and i find myself enjoying it quite a bit more and so that's another reason that i have changed over to this but like i said i, I apologize that it means 
a portion of the game of the video is not interesting to you. But to be fair, it's a tiny, tiny portion because the nature of an automa is oh, I you know I have to spend three minutes on my turn talking through everything and think through all the and I have to spend um, you know. Uh, 20 seconds on the automa because right, I just got to read this, I explain how it works the first time, and then, oh, in the future turns, I just do what they say. And then I'm right back to the player. So hopefully it's not too much of an inconvenience, Nick, but that is the thinking. And uh, yeah, it's it's literally making my life better. And I know it makes a lot of solo live player, and I, I appreciate it's a bit of a drop for you, but hopefully you're getting still stuff out of it because I play further into a game than I otherwise might in the same amount of time. Okay, but thanks for uh, the question, Nick. Let's move on to James, who jumps right into it. No hello rados or anything. He right. Uh, that is the top of the email, right? Yes, it is. There's nothing else. Um, sorry, so let's get right to it. <clears throat> James says, You advocate for the Platinum Rule every time you bring up your stolen car example against Tabletop Simulator. Okay, for folks who don't know, I have to admit, James, I'm sorry. I, 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 I'm sure you wrote last time. Uh, I remember there was a question about the Platinum Rule versus the Golden Rule, and if we should follow the Platinum Rule. And what was it? it was the, platinum, the Golden Rule, of course, is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And your argument, as I recall, if it was you, James, is that the Platinum Rule is do unto others as they would have you do. You know, And as I recall, this came up with Jen. Was it in the personal section? I think it was. And now it's switched over to the game section. Um, I, if I recall correctly, Jen's in my concern about the uh, Platinum Rule, as written, is how can you truly know what's in someone else's heart? How can you be sure you know what it is, that how they want to treat you? Whereas um, when it boils right down to it, unless you are truly suffering some kind of, you know, psychotic or mental illness questions, you do want people to treat you well. Um, and so, uh, you know, so ultimately, Jen and I kind of erred on the side of the golden rule over the platinum rule. Uh, but anyway, uh, James is saying, "Ha, huh, I got you!" Because so this is like two completely different threads merging into one. James is uniting worlds here because of Tabletop Simulator. Seems I cannot have an episode of Rado Talks Through without decrying um, Tabletop Simulator. So let's continue. Anyway. Consider a person who is okay uh, with someone taking their car so long as they fill up the tank. They may be okay with it uh, because they may not notice or because they get uh, something out of it in the free gas. The golden rule would allow this person to steal your car, but they will be doing unto them as they would have done unto them. The platinum rule forces them to consider uh, what you think about it. You know what? That's a very good counter-argument, James. I, I will doff my cap to you. I would say, though, that I don't know if it holds up. Because I can certainly see somebody self-justifying that, oh, of course this is what I would want. And I think this came up when, in the personal section. That, you know, uh, maybe the golden rule allows you to do really terrible things that people hate because you just happen to do... You're a weird oddball. I think, though, that the reality is, if you take back... If I'm saying, oh, I follow the golden rule, and I wish people would steal my car every single day, go out and joyride for a few hours, and then bring it back with a tank full, I believe somebody could say that's what they want, but it's not. I don't believe that there is a legitimate, good-faith argument that someone would make that, that I would say, please, steal my car every day. 
Drive it around. Get into hijinks. Commit crimes with it. Do all kinds of stuff. I don't know, just as long as you bring it back with a full tank of gas. I think somebody saying, though, that's how I would want to be treated, so that's how I'm going to treat somebody else, I think that person is being disingenuous. So I think the argument still holds up. But I think it is a good uh, counterpoint you make, James. Anyway, continuing on... uh, Right. Also, I think James thinks I was a bit unfair to the person... Oh, ah, right. I I just did it again. I'm, I'm reading this verbatim. Also, I think you were a bit unfair to the person asking for numberless games, which is another question that I think uh, came up last month. Maybe he was asking about games without numerals, not without any type of counting. A lot of games, a lot of times, whether a game uses numerals or not is a distinction without a difference. Consider how custom dice replace pips so that you uh, don't have to then translate the numbers into a result. Also, Rock, Paper, Scissors is an example of a game without numerics at all. And you know what? You're not the first person to say. Uh, There were some other folks who replied uh, when Jen and I failed in a previous podcast to come up with a game that didn't, at some level, in its core, have math involved. Because that was the question. Somebody asked, hey, can I have a game that just uh, takes all the math out? And no matter what, Jen and I kept coming back to, there's math. Um, even if it's nothing but troops, troop um, deployment, and as my troops wither, I'm losing the game. Uh, yeah, that's still math on some level. And uh, James says, well, maybe that person was never actually talking about math. Maybe he was talking about literal numbers. It could be. Uh, if that was the case, well, it wasn't clear. I don't think it was the case, though, because I had seen this person ask the same question of Tom Vassell, I think, in a live Q&A prior. And Tom was stumped. And then Jen and I were stumped, but I'm pretty sure I told him, hey, why don't you um, go to the suggestions forum on Board Game Geek? Uh, because that's where you're really going to get feedback. And I know that because he did. And he did start getting answers to his questions, hopefully, because I didn't have it. I will, however, um, agree, James, that Rock, Paper, Scissors is a game with no math at all. But it's not a very good game. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's why. I mean, Rock, Paper, Scissors is of zero interest until you add math by saying best two out of three. And then at least there's some metagame features going on, and that wouldn't happen without math. So I still think it comes back to a game needs math to be good. Or, you know, uh, unless, I mean, I think, uh, you know, there's dexterity games and games of skill, but a, uh, Game of the kind that Jen and I enjoy needs math on some level. There's kind of no getting away from it. Okay. And that was it. And P.S. Is it possible to get an MP3 file posted with your YouTube links for the podcast? Um, No, it's not. Specifically an MP3. Because the podcast itself gets uploaded to a uh, service called Anchor.fm. And the weird thing about Anchor is... I actually upload MP3s there. Other people have asked me about this. But what happens is Anchor converts them into an M4A format. And um, that's, I have to admit, it's really annoying because some people don't, you know, some older players can't play M4As, but they do that automatically so that if you're, if you have a podcast that's popular and you're doing ads, the ads can like automatically be generated and removed over certain times. It's a neat system, but it does create M4As. So ultimately, once I've uploaded, the MP3s are gone. Um, However, you can, and it's weird too, it is, all but impo- it's very very challenging to pull the direct link from the to the M4As out of Anchor. 
So it's it's kind of tricky, unfortunately. What I would suggest, if you want an MP3 of this because you're watching on YouTube, there are tons of websites that you can go to that if you type in the URL for this video that you're watching right now, you can say, please download an MP3 of this and it'll just automatically download the MP3. So you might want to look into those. There's a bunch of them out there. Alrighty. Okay. I use them all the time, actually. All right, for work, because I have to, it's weird. At the end of the month, when I make my roundup videos and I've got, you know, excerpts from all my videos, all those excerpts uh, that I'm putting in the background of the roundup, I had to go back and download them off of YouTube. And YouTube won't let me download my own videos in 1080p. I have to download them in 720p. So I have to go to third party applications to be able to get my own videos back out of YouTube. It's very strange. Um, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, thanks for the email, James. Let's move on to. John. Hey, John. John says, for years, your intro banner included the name of the game followed by, for example, which is an asymmetric tile-laying game where players are competing to become the next emperor of ancient Greece, etc. Then, the standard, but before I get going, etc. I said the etc. Stop interrupting. Read it as is. All right. Uh, um, then the standard, but before I get going, etc. Why is this brief description no longer included in the introduction? It seems like it might be a business decision, but maybe you just want some variety. Thanks for your time, John. Uh, it, I guess, yes, it was a business decision. It has to do with the Klingon subtitles. Because uh, for folks who may not have picked up on this, yes, I used to say, hey, everybody, today Rado runs through this war of mine, which is a push-your-luck worker placement game set in a, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I would do a quick thematic intro, and then I'd say, but before I get going, please turn your subtitles onto the Klingon channel so that when I make any rules goose, you'll know what they are. And with that out of the way, welcome to Sarajevo, or whatever. You know, here's the problem with that and why I stopped doing it. That please turn the Klingon subtitles or turn your subtitles onto the Klingon channel. So when I make a rules goof, that tended to come in at about 30 seconds to 40 seconds, even a minute in. And the problem is, if somebody actually listened to me at that point, well, first of all, they're much less likely to listen to me. And here's the deal: I pay Paulo a lot of money to do those Klingon subtitles. And I think it's a real shame that only about a third of my audience, I can see the stats, actually turns on the Klingon subtitles and two-thirds don't. If I bury the call to action after a really cool and interesting and evocative intro to the game, and then I say, oh, by the way, do this other thing, nobody hears that. So, by putting that right up front, hey, everybody, today Rado runs through this war of mine, but before I get going, please turn your Klingon subtitles. If it's literally the first thing they hear, they're more likely to do it. And there's another thing as well. At the beginning of every one of my videos, for the first 20 seconds, Paulo has a little thing in the subtitles that says, Hey, welcome, I'm Paulo. I'm going to be spot checking Rado. He's a goof head, and I'm going to find all his goofs, you know, whatever it is, you know, the standard intro. That lasts for 20 seconds. If I wait until 40 seconds, 30 or 40 seconds before I tell people to do it, and then they do it, they won't actually see anything on screen to let them know. It's not a waste of time. Whereas if I tell them in the first five seconds, turn on your Klingon subtitles, and then they do that within the next 10 seconds, they will actually see Follow's first opening intro, and they'll know, oh, it's working. Okay, good. I, I, I'll know about goofs now. So that was the change. Um, and I, I admit, I do think the old intro was better, but it is 
I, I think it is so important that people turn on the Klingon subtitles. And it's so easy to do. If you're in a if you're on Windows anyway in a browser, all you gotta do is hit C for captions, and it'll just instantly turn them on. Or you can hit the little cog and do the menu and all that. If it's on if you're on a mobile phone, it's trickier. Um, and if you're on a smart TV, who knows how you do it? Because every smart TV interface is different. But um, or you know, or PlayStation or what have you. But that's why, because Again, Paulo does amazing work. I mean, he is a superstar, and I just wanted to e- elevate the work he does so that more people will see it. So that's why the change. Thanks for asking. Okay. After that, we move on to uh, a Gerard, who says, Hey, Richard. Rado, Gerard from Canada, jumping in. When you get this, it will be the new year. And I hope you and Jen and your mom had a good holiday, as good as the pandemic is anyway. We had a we had a, a perfectly fine holiday. Um, neither Jen or I are big Christmas fans. Oh, that's personal stuff. Games, games, games. Anyway, I took this time to renovate my basement. Have a huge gaming area, and I love it. Question is, how do you make your gaming room or do you have a room designated for gaming? How de- our question is, did you make your gaming room? Or do you have a room designated for gaming? Yeah, all right. So that's the first question. Looks like there's more. Um, when we moved back to... Oh, for years, of course, uh, in Malta, I did all my filming in our living room. And that was a nightmare. A logistical pain in the butt of the highest order. Recording stuff and then you know having to get everything out and set up and then put away so we can go back to our lives and then, oh, I forgot a thing! I gotta get it all back out and reset up! Oh, it was just... It was just the worst. I could not stand it. It literally made my heart sink. The thought. Um, and so, when we were moving to the States, one of my biggest uh, requirements was that the the house had enough bedrooms that I'd be able to set up a full-time, 100% devoted studio for filming. Not a room that we play in, but just where I film, which has all the cameras and all the microphones and all the rest of it. Um, and we were really insanely lucky we found this cr- incredibly cheap manufactured home. I'll be honest, the home is, is garbage. It's, it's workmanship, is shoddy, um, we have leaks, the walls are paper thin. I mean, if my neighbors are in their backyard, they can hear me like I'm in their backyard right now because the wall between me and them right there. But the layout of this house was perfect for me and my wife and my mom all living together and having their own space. So, um... I have a room that's 100% devoted, and you can't see it, but if uh, you were next door in the next room over, there is a room that is pretty much 100% devoted to gaming. At this point, 50% devoted to gaming and 50% devoted to virtual reality exercise routines. Because we have an Oculus Quest and we subscribe to Supernatural, and Jen and I try to hit that VR um, workout at least two or three times a week. So that's kind of our gaming play room over there. And it was just a big, long, skinny room that has a lovely, uh, what do you call it, uh, window seat that Jen can sit at and the dogs will sit next to her. So the dogs are just scrooched right up to her while we're playing games. And right behind that is, looking out the window, is our tiny little backyard where all of Jen's chickens are. So uh, she can just look out and smile looking at her chickens and stuff like that. So we did not make the room. We just uh, co-opted the room that was already here because we were looking for a house that had the room that was going to be ready for us. Alrighty, continuing on, he asks, Is that a green screen behind you? Your games always look so close, and I was just curious. Uh, Anyways, glad to see another year of your run-throughs to see what new games you'll be covering. Um, These games look so close because they are so close. This chair 
uh, that I'm sitting in that I got for from for from IKEA for like forty or fifty bucks. It reclines. If I recline, boop, I I was able to recline about five degrees before I hit these games <laughs> um, because they are literally right on me. I have to kind of sidle in to sit here sideways because I'm happy to have a room devoted to filming, but it's not. It, it, this room could ease, ideally would be another 20 or 30% bigger so that the games behind me could be further back. I'd love to have them further back so they could do like that kind of soft rack focus and all of that stuff. But no, I, I'm, I'm just, I am squeezed in here super tight. I've got very little room um, to maneuver. And uh, that's why, I mean, the nice thing is the games really pop because they're literally right on my butt, right behind me. All right. And that was Gerald. Let's go on, sir. Let's move in right along to Tina. Hi, Tina. And Tina says, Hi, Rado. I wish both you and Jen a happy Christmas and a very happy and hopefully better New Year. Smiley face. So, there are two questions for your next podcast. How long does it take to come to the point of filming a game? How many playthroughs do you uh, go through with Jen or on your own? And as a result of this, do you actually play your own favorite games often enough, or is it all learning new ones? I'll answer that last one first. It's all new games all the time. I do not, or we very rarely have the opportunity to go back and play favorite games, because with the volume of stuff that we cover, about, on average, probably 20 games a month for 12 months out of the year, that's a lot of games, um, there's no time so all these things that are on the shelf behind me, they are sitting there gathering dust. And pretty much the only time I ever get a chance to get them back out is when an expansion shows up. And hooray! I get to cover the expansion. That means I get to go back and look at a game that we really liked. Yay! Um, but most of the time, it's always like a shark swimming forward. And to your other question, how many times do you have to play? My general guideline is that I, I ideally, in a perfect world, want to play a game a couple of times before I film. I will be honest and say that's not always the case. Um, sometimes, if the game is really light and simple, once is enough. Um, rarely, though, do we go more than two because there's just not enough time. But the only time that happens is if the game itself has some kind of campaign where the game is going to change and morph and evolve over the course of the game. And for me to be able to really give a complete view of what the game feels like, I have to experience all that stuff. So. Mostly, I'm talking about legacy games here. We might play those six, 12 times because we've got to finish the campaign. But otherwise, it's generally a couple times, unless it's a really light game or if it's a game we just hate. Because occasionally, we'll come across a game It's like, oh, well, yeah, I, sh I shouldn't have agreed to, uh, to uh, cover this because we clearly do not enjoy it. And so uh, then we'll play it once or maybe we won't even finish it. Because if, if Jen's not having fun, we're not playing that game because my number one goal is to ensure Jen never burns out of playing games because it's my favorite thing to do in the world and I always want to share it with her. So on average two, sometimes more, sometimes less, but usually I shoot for two. Although sometimes one of those is me playing solo if there is a solo mode and then one of them is playing with Jen. But Jen likes to replay games. So if she gets a chance to play them again, that's that's a good thing. All right, but we don't always get the opportunity to do that. All right. Also, are there games you already anticipate and look forward to in 2021? By now, Tina, I am sure you saw that I have done a top 25 most anticipated games of 2021, and there were 25 games. Okay, thanks, Rado, for all you do. Alrighty. Oh, and then you also have some more, but I talked about this. I've already done this with Jen in the uh, personal section, so we'll get back to that. You'll That'll come later, even though I recorded that days ago. Okay. 
Moving right along to um, Adrian. Adrian says, Hi, Richard. There are um, two game-related questions. One, you recently had a mini rant about the crew being a 2019 game instead of a 2020 game, and the games should from other countries or should be counted in the year they were released there. However, if a game does not come out in English, but let's say in Japanese, and you are not able to get the rules for it in English until two years later, do you consider it to be based in its original release date or its English release date? Um, the answer to that is the original release date. If it came out in Japan, and only in Japan, in 2020, then it's a 2020 game, or a 2015 game, or a 2012 game. There, To me, there is no room for um, reconsideration. That's the year it came out. That's what it says on Board Game Geek. If the publisher wanted to be considered a different um, year, they could go on Board Game Geek and change it. I have seen publishers do this. It's, and by me saying no, even though the publishers and Board Game Geek say this is a 2018 game, I refuse. I say it's a 2020 game. To me, that is not a call that I get to make. Officially, the game was available in the world. Um, and you know, in these days with our online connected economy, it was available to anybody who wanted it. It's just that some people had to pay more for international shipping. But that's no different. Um, should I say that if the game came out in English um, in 2018, but didn't come out to Japanese in 2020, should, it be, should Japanese reviewers consider it a 2020 game? No, I don't think so. Any more that I would consider a Japanese game. Uh, a tw- you, know, you get the idea. Uh, it, that's when it came out. It's simple. It's black and white. There's no room for um, uh, uh, you know, alternative ways to look at it. So yes, it was a 2018 game. If I don't play it till 2020, that doesn't change. Forget the language. If I just don't happen to play a game till 2020, is it suddenly a 2020 game? No. It's a 2018 game because that's the day it was shipped. That's the you can actually look at the small print on the box. The UPC codes are all tied to that. It's a commercial product. There's no ambiguity here. Anyway. Uh, Adrian continues. This, I understand, is the case with the crew. The German version came out in 2019, and the English in 2020. A lot of people would play it in 2019 because the rules were simple enough to translate, and that is not the case all the time. Uh, sure. In fact, actually, I, it was the most widely get played game at Dice Tower, uh, no, at Board Game, at the Board Game Geek Con in 2019. Was the crew? Everybody was playing it. Everybody was getting a copy of it. The Dice Tower themselves covered it in 2019. Because it was a 2019 game. And it drives me nuts that so many people are saying, oh, it's the best game of 2020. Um, Which to me is fundamentally unfair. Because a game like The Crew gets to double dip. They get to be considered for best of the year list in 2019. And again in 2020. And that's unfair to the other games that shipped in May. And only got considered for one year. And you know what? It shouldn't matter, but best of the game, best of the year games lists do matter to the sale of games. And it is fundamentally unfair that um, that the crew gets double nominations because the crew did very well in 2019 um, in best of the years, and it's doing very well. So, but it didn't ship for two years. It shipped for one year, and it's cheating other games out of their rightful place by literally double dipping. Not that it's the game's fault; it's the reviewer's fault. Anyway, so anyway, this is one of many reasons that I actually just report the truth. It's a 2019 game. If I want to consider it one of the best, it's one of the best of 2019. If I want to have a different list of best games of the year that I played, 
which is really what most reviewers are doing. Most reviewers aren't doing anything even remotely approximating best game of the year, but they call it best game of the year. And then, um, and that carries weight that unfortunately I don't think is earned, especially when reviewers do not respect the actual concept of time itself. Um, because it's all about, no, 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 it's about when I got it. It doesn't matter when somebody in Japan or Germany or whatever got it. It doesn't matter when the publisher put all their money and got it to the market. That doesn't matter. Only my perspective matters. I think that's wrong. Um, anyway, sorry. Alright, uh, so to answer your question, that's how I view it. Number two. One time, I talked about wanting more co-op games that allow people to take their actions in no particular order. Atlantis Rising does this, but you didn't seem to care for that game. What was it about the game that lowered it in your estimation? Oh, boy. That was the co-op game. I think that had the island. There was a bunch of... Not Archipelago's long pointy... Peninsulas. It was the peninsula, and all the peninsulas sunk, right? Man, I played that game forever ago. It came back out like in 2010. It came out not long after Pandemic. And I remember I remember we didn't keep it. And then it got reprinted and I covered it. But it's still... I mean, nothing changed. It's still... Why though? Why? I think... I think it was um, that Jen didn't like it. But you know what I can do? Hey, let, let's, let's, not, let's not guess. Let's look. Rising... Atlantis. I'm on Board Game Geek. I'm searching for Rising or Atlantis Rising, uh, the first edition, because I never actually had. I only played a prototype of the second edition. But Jen, I did play the first edition in 2012 when it was originally out. It was not in my top ten of that year. And um, anybody, actually, another way to do this, anybody can go to gone.rado.com and see a list of why I got rid of every game I've ever gotten rid of. But uh, let's see. Oh. How do I see the my because I made all right there we go and my it's a, all right so it's previously owned and the note I made which you would see if you go to gone.rado.com is very cool but my wife hates high pressure all is hopeless co-ops so away it went so it was and I and I wrote that nine years ago um, and then I modified it at some point six years ago probably to fix a typo um, there you go I it, it, I honestly I have to admit it's been so long since I played I'd forgotten I don't even remember the fact that. It's a take your turn order in any turn you want because that's amazing. Uh, that is one of the coolest features uh, that a co-op can do, and very few of them do. Spirit Island really made me aware of just how wonderful it is. Um, if Plunderous ever comes out, the co-op version of the game that I am contributing to, uh, one of the key things I really wanted was players can take their turns at any time and, and come up with much more interesting and organic on-the-fly strategies because you're not limited by structure, uh, turn order structure. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that's cool if Atlantis Rise does it, but, you know, Jen really has a hard time with the vast majority of co-ops we play because they do not have the modulation that Pandemic has. I've talked about it many times, the roller coaster, where things are really bad for a while, but then they're really good, and then they're bad again. Atlantis Rising, like most co-ops, oh, it just starts bad, or maybe it starts out okay, but things just get worse on a steady, linear, or even exponential ramp, and they never give you breathing room, and Jen hates that. So that was our problem, I guess, uh, nine years ago with uh, Atlantis Rising. That's cool to know. I, I, yeah, you almost made me want to go back and check it out again. Certainly the new re, uh, redone edition was gorgeous. But anyway, okay. Let's go on to Michael. Okay, Mike, what you got for me? Mike says, Hello, Rado. And thanks for all the content over the years. In your recent video 
on the top 10 of 2020, you made a big point of saying that the year of a game's release in English should not be considered the uh, year of a game's release. I, I, oh, uh, okay. So, apparently, uh, most people... Apparently, I talked about this. I, I don't even remember what I said now, but specifically, you were addressing the crew when you said this. Oh, that's right. Oh, because I had a QA, and a because I did my top 10 of the year preliminary list live, and it came up, and I mentioned in the Q&A, because that's not normally something that would come up in a, in, a, in a top 10. Anyway, specifically, you're addressing the crew when you said this, saying it wasn't considered for your top 10 of 2020 because it was released in Germany and other, in German and other languages in 2019. The languages don't matter. The country doesn't matter. The simple fact of the matter is, its official release date was 2019. So there's nothing more to discuss. It's a 2019 game. All right. I'm curious, continues Michael, your thoughts on the Spiel des Jahres uh, and in the context of that remark. My understanding of Spiel is that one of the eligibility criteria is that the game must have been released in Germany that year. Just curious, do you disagree with that stipulation? And if not, why not? No, I don't disagree at all. Um, because it's in the charter. The whole point of the Spiel des Jahres is... Um, this is an award specifically for German audiences of uh, games available in Germany. That's literally in the header description. And honestly, if there is a YouTube channel out there that's, uh, that is literally called Board Gaming in the USA, and they say in their charter description that our focus of our channel is games that you can that are available in retail in the United States of America. And only that, or even the continental United States, or in the North American continent, we only, our sole focus is games that are available in the, in the North American continent. I think it would be perfectly reasonable for that channel, with that purview and that publicly stated goal, to say, oh, well, our top, tw top 10 of the year 2020 is, uh, includes the crew. Because, because our whole mandate is North America above everything else. Because that's the thing. Spiel des Jahres is Germany... I hate to say it, Germany uber alles, quite frankly, um, because they are focusing specifically. Their whole purpose of that list is to um, provide German families, predominantly, uh, a list of games that are highly recommended that they can go out and get right now. That's their goal. And the thing is, that's not my goal. Or the Dice Tower's goal. Or um, Tantrum House's goal. Or any other channel on YouTube. We all have worldwide audiences. All of us. And we are speaking to our entire audience. If somebody is saying, nope... And actually, I have seen this. I have seen some channels in Europe because you know uh, that we are only focusing on the Polish market. We are in Polish. We are all about covering games that are available in Poland. And um, for them, it would make perfect sense that their top 10 of the year, I would certainly give them leeway to say, oh, well, because this game only came out in Poland in a Polish edition three years after it came out, it's our game of the year, because that is their editorial remit. And the thing is, most people don't have that editorial remit. And uh, and yet, oh, well, we do sometimes, but not other times. And again, the thing that bothers me is that it gets lets the crew double dip and get two years worth of accolades out of top 10, um, you know, uh, 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 not accumulations, uh, you know, a top 10 compilations, and that sits wrong with me. So yes, in the case of Spiel des Jahres, that is literally the reason they exist, to talk solely about games that came out in Germany. The reason Rotto Runs Through exists is not to only talk about games that came out in North America. 
But if all of a sudden I say, oh, uh, for this list, I'm only talking about games that came out in North America, that's inconsistent and it's wrong. So that's that's that breaks that down a little bit more. I am surprised nobody asked that at the time uh, in the Q&A, because that's what I would have said then. Okay. But uh, anyway, that was it for Mike. Thank you very much. And uh, moving right along, we now move on to Jack, who says, oh boy, there are puppy pics. So uh, if you're on YouTube, you'll be seeing them shortly, or you can go to doggo.rado.com. Anyway, hi, Rado. First, want to say that my wife and I, we are both Asian American, deeply appreciate the way you use your platform to advocate for others, i.e. Black Lives Matter shirts and promoting people of color. You mentioned in a podcast that the wearing of the shirts negatively affects your bottom line, and I am grateful for the sacrificial leadership you display on the community. Thank you. Um, it's, it's the least I can do. How can I not do it? Uh, I, um, <laughs> I do not want to be part of the problem. Okay. Continue on, though. Your videos have played a pivotal role in getting my wife and I into the hobby. Love your stuff. My question is on the difference between reviewers and the average gamer. As I get further invested in the hobby, I find I have less space, time, and money to spend on games as such. And as such, I have to be more selective with the games I buy because most reviewers have more time to devote to games and more shelf space than I do. I find there's a disconnect between the volume of games that are recommended and the volume of games that I can play, let alone own. Do you think, here's the question, do you think that reviewer that reviewers experience the hobby in a different way than the average gamer does? If this holds true, do we need to be concerned about the increasing gap between reviewers and their audience. Is that why you have run-throughs on your channel so the gamers can make, uh, like me, can experience the game for themselves? Well, I will definitely answer that last one first. Yes, that is why I do what I do the way I do it. Because who cares what I think? My personal subjective opinion is meaningless. I'm just another bullet point. If I can give you the tools to make an informed decision based on what you and yours love, that's the way to go. Now, I appreciate my particular approach is very, very hard. And I don't blame most channels for not wanting to do it because it's very hard to do well. And uh, so that's fine. But to your earlier question, do I think reviewers experience the hobby in a different way than the average gamer does? Yes. Once they've hit a certain threshold, um, which is to say, you know, once they are playing a ridiculously high volume of games, more so than an average gamer. And, also hugely important, once they cross a threshold where the majority of the games they cover, they did not buy themselves with their own money. But instead, like me, are submitted review copies. And these days, you know, the threshold to be able to get that is getting... Uh, shorter or quicker to reach all the time as publishers realize, yeah, you know what? Here's a channel with 500 views. It costs us nothing to send them a game. And you know, if they, if of their 500 viewers, one of them actually buys the game, we're already ahead. So why not send it out? It's becoming more and more common for review copies from smart publishers in the know to send them out, um, you know, provided that they actually produce. And uh, here's the deal. I have said this before. You cannot, and there, there is a reason that I do not talk about the actual what my feelings is of the value of a game. Is this game worth fifty bucks, or a hundred bucks, or sixty bucks, or two hundred bucks, or thirty bucks, or ten bucks? I don't have a leg to stand on with making a subjective opinion like that because I didn't pay my money. Not only that. In addition to that, I have no idea if a game is worth 20 bucks to you or 30 bucks or 40 bucks because the value of 20 or 30 or 40 bucks is radically different depending on your life circumstance. So, um, I think it's something people have to very much be aware of. 
uh, the more popular a channel becomes, you know, and I'm including me and Dice Tower and Shut Up and Sit Down and No Pun Included and um, Rodney, not that he ever gives actual opinions, but he does sometimes. He sometimes sneaks them in. Plus, there's an implicit opinion. If he's covering a game, he probably doesn't think it's garbage because he probably wouldn't have wanted to have spent the time. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Sorry, didn't mean to get on editorial about uh, watching play. But anyway, the, as soon as a, uh, as the more popular a channel gets, the more you have to apply a much more critical eye to their subjective opinion because they are experiencing games in a different way than you, a normal gamer, does. And to your other question, is that a problem? Do we need to be concerned? No, I don't think so. Because at the end of the day, no reviewer is holding a gun to your head and saying, you must buy this game. Um, it's caveat emptor. I'm a strong believer in that. At the end of the day, it is on the consumer to do their due diligence. Don't go rush right out and buy a game just because I said it was great or Tom Vassell said it was great. Don't rush right out and dismiss a game because Shut Up and Sit Down said it was terrible. <laughs> you have to understand, they are viewing games... Because there's another one, too. Um, in addition to volume, um, you know, or, or, in, in, or actually, I should say the way volume affects you. I, I think it has a huge impact on reviewers, and I see this over and over and over again. And it's something I have to curb in myself. It's very easy to fail to evaluate a game based on its own merits because if you play over a hundred new games, and me, I play like a two hundred fifty games a year. It very quickly, it's an easy trap to fall into where you're constantly comparing this game to that game to that game, forgetting that your audience isn't going to play all three of those games. And that's a meaningless thing to compare it. You have to judge the game on its own merits. Because for somebody, even if you're sick to death of zombie games, the number of times I hear other reviewers saying, can we please stop having zombie games? Can we please stop having roll and rights or whatever? That is totally unfair to their audience because the majority of their audience hasn't gotten burned out on zombies, hasn't gotten burned out on roll and rights because they haven't played every single one that's come out over the last five years. And they might still be really excited. But as soon as they hear the reviewer being really kind of negative just because they themselves are burned out, they are doing their audience and that game a disservice. But again, it's on the consumer to recognize this, to recognize that reviewers are human and they are we are driven. More than anything else, we are driven, I think, after we get across a certain threshold and we're playing like 100 plus games a year or whatever. I'm not quite sure what the threshold is. Um, we are driven by a quest for novelty, for something new, something different. It's what I value more than anything else in a game experience. Interestingly, and I'm lucky, it's not what my wife and only gaming partner values. She doesn't care because... Two months after we played a game, she's largely forgotten. And if we play another game that's in the same genre, she evaluates that game just on how much fun it is. And it's a great reminder for me that I need to do that as well. Just because it's the 50th worker placement game I've played this year doesn't mean I say, oh, another worker placement game, great. I think I'm passing on this one, I say in my review. And then the game suffers unfairly because they had the tremendity to make a worker placement game and give it to somebody who's tired of worker placement games. So at the end of the day, I don't think it's a problem. I don't think it's a concern. I think it's on the consumer to be aware. And don't take just one data point. Go on BoardGameGeek. Go to comments where you will see hundreds of people who have commented on the game. Look at the people who rate it really high. Look at the people who rate it really low. Don't trust just me or any of my contemporaries. I think that's very important. And to close, uh, Jack says, here's some dog photos. The puppy's name is Zuko. His Instagram is... Uh, 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 Oh man, this, uh, Zuko's Pompsygram? Actually, I talk about this in the uh, because I showed it to Jen, and Jen loves Zuko. 
I share that with you not because I want to use your agenda to get more followers, rather just in case you want to know more uh, than uh, more of what I'm sharing right now. And folks, Zuko is awesome. Again, go to doggo.rado.com or dogs.rado.com to check out Zuko. Zuko is crazy cute. Oh my gosh, he's like a model. I'm assuming Zuko is a he. I mean, this is like a model dog, quite frankly. Uh, these are gorgeous shots. Thanks for sharing them, Zach. Um, and everybody, go and enjoy those. Okay, and let's move on. Oh my gosh, we are about halfway through. This is a long one. How long have I been talking? 53 minutes. Let's pick up that pace, buddy. Okay. Um, Anne says... Do I have any more information on Plunderous and Adventure Inc. that you could share with us? I, I'm sorry, at this point, no. Uh, same old. I think Andrew's kind of like eyeballing maybe a March re-release for Plunderous. Adventure Inc. is on the shelf until Plunderous is done and dusted, so we haven't talked about Adventure Inc. in any significant way for at least half a year. Um, which is too bad. I really love it. But hey, I really love Plunderous too. And fingers crossed it does better on its relaunch. And like I said, right now, about the only update I've got is... Apparently, somebody asked me last month, and I gave a more in-depth um, uh, update. And then somebody in the comments said, Yeah, this is literally the exact same update you gave the month before. So I'm not going to repeat myself again. Um, no news is... No news at this point. But hopefully, more soon. Okay. That is Anne. Uh, and then we've got a Gerald. Not Anthony, because I've gotten that mixed up several times in the past. Question one, says Gerald. You said the storytelling mechanism in Macau would be a toolkit to use in any game. Do you have any ideas how you would implement that in a game like Trajan? Not exactly like how it's implemented in uh, in uh, in uh, Maracaibo. Maracaibo or Trajan, they have a default set of rules that work great. They're fantastic. Maracaibo and Trajan are two of my favorite games of all time. They're both excellent Euros from Masters of the Craft, Alexander Pfister, and um, my fave, Stefan Feld. So, you have this core game that's designed. Then, you come up with tweaks and additions and changes and basically designer-mandated variants to that game that change the rules. Like in Trajan, what's the game like if one of the colors of the cylinders on the Moncala disappears? What's the game like if half of the world map cannot be conquered. Um, but, you know, there's special rules about how you have to, you know, engage in negotiation to be able to travel to them to conquer the places you want to go. What's the game like if the city's already completely rebuilt? Um, or if simply things cost twice as much to build as they normally do and now, but you get twice as many points. How does that change the game? There are a million different little tweaks and adjustments you could make with such a rich and robust game to come up, not with games that are better, just different. And probably you're still best at playing the game for the most part, but it's cool to see Trajan in a new light. So you come up with a bunch of different variants, then you come up with a story that will cause revolts. Uh, after you've conquered the world in a particular game, hey, they revolt and now you can't conquer things. Or um, there's political machinations and half of your workers on the Moncala disappear. And um, you come up with a story that justifies all of these different little tweaks. And then you've got a story-driven campaign that you can play over several... You've still got Trajan, which plays great. And then you've got a bunch of interesting, cool variants that can be introduced through a narrative. That's it. Easy peasy. This could literally be applied to any modern Euro board game, and it'll just work. Um, Alexander Pfister has done it enough times now to prove that it works fantastically, and so that's how I would do it. And I wish more publishers would do it. Okay. Uh, excuse me. 
Uh, question number three. Looks like you have your questions out of order. Okay. That's okay. Typo. I make goofs all the time. Um, so I would not cast a stone. Question three. If I remember correctly, Star Trek Encounters is Roll to Resolve. Do you have any house rules for this? No, I do not. And I'll admit, um, I like Star Trek Encounters in spite of its propendency, its, its predilection towards Roll to Resolve. I wish it didn't. I wish uh, Reiner Kanitia had come up with something better because there are much better things to do. Or I wish he'd done something more interesting with the dice. Now, to be fair, here's the re- there's, there's a couple of reasons why I'm cool with it and I don't need to house rule it. One, it is Star Trek, which is, for most of my, my life, it, it was my favorite franchise. It was my favorite uh, form of entertainment in the world was Star Trek. But I have to admit, um, with uh, Infinity War and then Endgame, Marvel Cinematic Universe finally overtook my love of Star Trek as my number one favorite thing in the universe. And please, Black Widow, I cannot wait. And WandaVision is almost here. Very excited. But um, still, Star Trek is my number two. So a good Star Trek game, I don't care if I have to make some compromises. I'm not going to turn my nose up at it. It's great. The other thing, though, there are two other things. Um, another one is... It's less about the dice than it is about your cards. The dice are a little bit of spice. They are they are seasoning. They are flavor. They are not um, King of Tokyo, where it's just oh, it's just dice or ISS Vanguard for that matter. Too much dice, like too much salt in a delicious pasta dish, can ruin it. But just the right amount of salt can just highlight it and bring it to life. Same is true with dice. And I don't think Star Trek goes too far, too heavy into dice. But the third, and probably the most important thing is, at the end of the day, it's a cooperative game. And I'm much more um, accepting of dice ruling my fate if it's... Because um, I have a problem with dice more, uh, you, know, uh, you know, affording outcomes and determining... Uh, you know whether you succeed or fail in a competitive game, because I'm 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 implicitly opposed to a system where hey I make all my plans I make all my decisions and then I roll my dice and the dice tell me whether I can do what I want to do or not. On a on a fundamental core level, I find that to be less than ideal. Um, it dance the question of how much is it done and what circumstances is it done. Are there cool ways to do it? And there are. Uh, push your luck, like in Andor. This war of mine is a great way to make me feel better about dice. Although, again, both of those are examples of cooperative games. Because I really hate it in a competitive game. Even if it's not true, giving me the impression, psychologically, that, oh, I lost that game because you just rolled better than me. And I know, I appreciate statistics. I understand that over the course of a game, it'll even out. And I get that on an intellectual level, but in my heart, it never feels good. And so that's my problem. Star Trek Encounters is a lovely cooperative game, so I'm already more predisposed to be accepting of dice. Then it, it doesn't do dice don't overstay its welcome, so that helps. But more and also, most importantly, it's Star Trek. So that's those are the three things it means I do not have to house rule them. <clears throat> Although it also means, even though I love Star Trek more than more than worldwide pandemics, I'd probably pay Pandemic over Star Trek Encounters nine times out of ten. Because Pandemic is a better game because it doesn't have dice, amongst other things. Okay. Now, on to question two, because they were a little out of order. Uh, You mentioned a few times that you prefer event decks to show you the upcoming event for the next round, like your house rule for Orleans. That's not a house rule. That's the way Orleans would work. It's a brilliant... It's. I wish more publishers would copy it. It's at the beginning of a round, you reveal what the event card is, and everybody has the entire round, during which they will do a lot of stuff over the course of the round to prepare and deal for that event. That is so much better than, hey, at the beginning of the round, reveal a thing, and it hits everybody. And some people get really hit really hard, and it's kind of unfair because you couldn't anticipate what was going to happen. And some players get away scot-free. And they are, through luck, 
just falling behind and in a competitive game, I find that to be unacceptable. Anyway, like I said, it's, a it's not a house rule. It's the way Orleans is. It's so simple. I wish more games would do it. But anyway, continuing. You love Shadowrun Crossfire, as do I. And the event deck is very harsh. Yes, it is. Um, it could end the game sometimes. I don't think so. I, I Read it, then reply. Read it, reply. Stop interrupting. I'm very rude. Um, even though you're not here, I'm being rude. Okay. It could end the game sometime. Do you house rule uh, for this, or is it an exception to the rule? Well, again, Shadowrun Crossfire is a cooperative game. Um, but... One, I did, like I said, I disagree that it's overly harsh. Anytime you feel that you lost because of an unfair shadow, uh, a crossfire card that came out, you lost that game three rounds ago based on some decision you made that um, left you unprepared for any particular uh, event card that might come out. The designers of this game, I've said this many, many times, they win 90 plus percent of the time at all player counts. I think at two player, they win 88% of the time because they know the game well enough to make smart decisions in the early game that will prepare them for the worst possible combination of crossfire cards imaginable. And here's the deal. Um, uh, this is a cooperative game. So right off the bat, I'm not as bothered by random quirks of fate because they affect all players together because we're working together. It's unlike in a competitive game and they unfairly benefit one player or the other. That's when I have a problem. Number two, I love games that are harsh and cruel. And any game that my wife will play with me like that is uh, has an extra special place in my heart. And because Shadowrun Crossfire is so fast, I mean, we when we play it, it's... It's probably a 20-minute game. Probably not now, because we're way out of practice. But when we were playing it a lot, because we played it over 50 times, um, we, we would just bang through it really quick. And it was always satisfying and incredibly exciting and incredibly dramatic. And a big part of that is because it's harrowing. Because those crossfires are so brutal. And, um, and they come so fast. But... I never feel that it's our fault when, or it's the card's fault when we lose. It's because we made choices and we can do better. So that's why I'm cool with them there. Question four. Okay, we've gotten back in order. I agree with your stance on Tabletop Simulator. Thank you. I'm glad somebody does. Um, what are your views on Etsy creators using IP-specific components to bling out games? Some Etsy creators use uh, game or publisher logos and trademarks in their products without asking permission. I think Starling Games are having problems with this. All the best, Gerald. You know what? Actually, I should have uh, put that in the... Uh, but I've already recorded with Jen. So I will speak for Jen. although Because I completely agree with her. Jen recently, kind of on a lark, did a glass figurine of Baby Yoda. And we posted a picture of it, just because it was cute. And um, it was kind of a present for my mom, and who loves us and stuff like that, because she loves Baby Yoda and all that. But anyway, so she did it. We posted a picture of it, and she got deluged with, please put this on Etsy. I will buy a half a dozen of these for Christmas and send them to all my friends because we all love Mando and all that. Jen said no. She's not going to do that because she doesn't believe it's right to co-opt somebody else's trademarked um, you know, intellectual property and profit off of it. She would love to get a letter from Disney saying, hey, uh, can I make these Disney and you'll get 30% of all the profits? She would totally do that in a heartbeat, but she is not going to steal from Disney. Even though Disney is such a huge monolithic mega corporation of evil and all that, still, it's a line she draws. She's not going to do it. And I think that's right. And I don't believe it's correct for Etsy. Or, forget about Etsy, all those t-shirt makers who just you know uh, co-opt and usurp corporate logos and do whatever they want with them, I don't think that's right. And I don't support it. And I don't buy them. And Jen doesn't either. Even though Jen supports a lot of people on Etsy, she doesn't support that. Um, and, you know, and, it's, and it's even worse when it's board games 
Because hey, it's one thing to make a plushy Baby Yoda and make some money on the side, because really, even though fundamentally, philosophically, I disagree with that, Disney's not hurting. Disney's okay. Disney's going to be okay. Doing that to a little publisher that's probably only one or two people trying to make a living doing this, and then somebody coming along and profiting off of their work and their labor and giving nothing back, that's extra bad. That's just totally uncool. And here's the deal. Almost without question, any one of those Etsy creators, if they actually contacted the small little publisher, they could probably work out a deal. The publisher would say, oh, that's so adorable. We are so touched by the fact that you're doing that. Tell you what, um, you give us you know, 20% of your proceeds off the sales of that, and we will authorize that. Because that's the way it's supposed to work. And I, don't, I do not care for the fact that many people don't. And I don't think that's right. So that's where I come down on that. Okay. Boom. Moving right along to Wally. Hey, Wally. And Wally says, Hey, Rado. All right. Uh, happy holidays to you and the family. Because, of course, we're, we're still in... Uh, we still haven't gotten anybody asking any questions in January. This is, came in on the 29th. I have some end-of-year questions. Question one. Do you think that 2020 was a good or bad year for gaming? Please answer before reading further. Okay, Wally. I will admit, I had to read a bit further. Um, because when this came in, when, when emails come in, I, I look at them very quickly and briefly just to get an idea of where they should go in my general purpose gaming, my gaming g questions Jen could answer, like that one that should have gone to Jen that I missed because it was question number four, or personal. So when I saw this and like, well, okay, he, he literally puts a smiley face on it. Don't read any further. But here's the problem with your, with your, with your conceit, Wally. You said, was it a good or bad year for gaming? I don't know what you mean by that. Do you mean... Were there a lot of really good games? Do you mean um, what did the uh, you know COVID and the economic downturn to to game publishers and distributors? There's a lot of ways I can interpret that question, and you didn't you didn't give specifics. So I did look a little bit ahead to see that you're talking about, as I recall, the quality of games. I mean, well, you know, most gamers will say, "Hey, was it a good year?" Were there a lot of really great games that came out? And so, to answer that question, even though I kind of know where you're going, sorry, I had to spoil it just to understand what the question was. Yes, it was a great game. For the year 2020, was a great game for game for for games for cool, exciting, fun new games that came out. And now we can continue. <clears throat> According to your ratings, it seems probably the worst year for game releases, leaving out that you still have 18 games of interest waiting. I made some calculations on your top games per year. I looked at their place in your all-time rankings list and made an average of the place they have on that list. We see that 2020 was a very bad year. Not one game made it high in my all-time ranking. Uh, if we take into account that Tuscany dropped to uh, fourth place you know, in my, my top 10, uh, then your highest-ranked game of the year was Calico at place 47 in your all-time rankings. Yeah, here's the deal, man. I... Oh, no, I'm interrupting. I'm going to interrupt. Wally, over the last decade, I have played probably over 5,000 games. Okay? Calico is the 47th best game out of 5,000. That's amazing. That is incredible. That is not evidence of, oh, what a terrible... Anyway, I'll continue. Um, right. Uh, we see that in the rankings, only 2018 is as bad, quotes, as 2020, and they both are far behind other years. Please check Document A rankings and Document B detailed overview in the attachments. All right. So, uh, since people are looking, let's see if you can see this. All righty. So, uh, there's a Word doc. My... Best game years, based on the average, uh, of based on, uh, on and so this I did not look. I knew you had done some stuff, and I'm, I'm I, I love stats. So let's take a look. 
Right. Um, best game years based on the average place of my yearly top 10 games in all-time rankings last five years. So, uh, the, my, uh, my top 10 of 2019, I average apparently 35. All right. And 2017 is 57. Uh, right. So, uh, um, if so, basically what you're saying is, if I'd been playing games for... How do you even look at this? What does that mean? Um, anyway, 35. Uh, it comes in 35. That the average of all my games... Of course, of course, in my top 10 for 2019, I probably had a game that ranked in the... Like, ranked 22 in a game that ranked 37 in a game that ranked 90. And those three things combined said, oh, it's it's 35. Um, okay, that's fine. And, um, well, here's... Okay, right off the bat, here's a problem. You very blithely hand-waved away 18 games I haven't played. 2020 is a very odd beast because normally at the end of the year when I make my preliminary, and that's the key word I cannot stress enough, Wally, my preliminary top 10, I always point out there's still a few games I want to play that I've identified as potentially being really great. And I'll get back to you the following year. So here's the deal. You are comparing 2020 preliminary list against final lists of other years, and that is fundamentally unfair to 2020. Just this morning, I put up my um, run-through for Hollertau, which, spoiler alert, if I had played it in 2019, because it was a year that came out in 2019, even though it's not available until 2020 in English, it's a 2019 game, um, etc., etc. Although I'm not quite sure if that's true, but regardless, it's my number one game of the year. And I think it's like my number 24 highest ranked game of all time. I suspect Hollertau by itself is going to significantly skew your averages then. And there are still 17, I pr predict, amazing games I've yet to play. This is compared to usually four, five, or six because of 2020's unique circumstance where it was just impossible to get games because of COVID, because of a worldwide pandemic. I think... Here's the deal, Wally. I, I love it. I think this is great. I, I love seeing numbers like this. I think you jumped the gun, man. You got to come back in May or June after hopefully I've gotten a chance to play most of those 18 games and I have adjusted my list. And then... Then we can talk. And I honestly, I welcome you to do it because I look forward to seeing it. Because I do love stats like this. All right. Um, but right, right off the bat, Hallertau being my number 24 highest ranked game of all time, the second best Uwe Rosenberg game of all time, and my new number one um, already skews. And there's 17 more games that could skew you even further. Um, because if you're talking about a sample size of 10... You're basing it on my... Here's, the, here's another way to do it. I, would, I don't think that's fair to base it on my top 10. You've got all the data. Um, take, take my top 500 ranked games of all time and break that down by year. Um, because really, at the end of the day, my number 50 versus my number 450, those are both solid eights. They really are. And you're splitting hairs to say that how much I love one more than another. Another way to do it, go to my ranking, rank.rado.com, and break it down, all the games that have a 9, and just round down to 9. Don't round anything up. I, I do my rankings assuming rounding down, because I don't have any 10s. So rank, everything that has a 9 point whatever, rank it down to a 9. Everything that's an 8 point whatever, bring it down to an 8. Um, because I love all 8s close enough that it's an indistinguishable margin that I love. This An 8.3 more than an 8.7 is a meaningless distinction that I only do so can I, I can have a really granular list so it's easier to make top 10s. I would love to see your stat breakdown of year-by-year -year basis based on how many 8s and how many 9s and how many 7s I've got. And I look forward to seeing it in June after 2020 is updated. And I suspect my gut feeling that there's amazing games in 2020 will be borne out. So, um, 
Question two, says Wally. Any changes, thoughts after looking at the rankings? Well, I, I think you, I think I got that. Question three. You said that maybe your t- game tastes have shifted to lighter games, but maybe the only conclusion is that for you, the top heavier games of the year aren't that top. Uh, because we also see that in 2019, Heavy Games uh, made it very high on your all-time ranking. Maracaibo, Black Angel, Tapestry. Yeah, but here's the deal. Some of the heaviest, most exciting games of the year I haven't played yet for 2020. Where is that list of the 18? How can I find that? Where do I have that? Oh, I don't think I have it anymore, because I delete because I moved on. But I think a lot of Heavy Games, Hallertau being one of them, are Heavy Games, and they were in that 18. So again... I, this is exciting. I love this kind of stuff, Wally. And I, I hate to push you off for a half a year, but come back in six months. And again, top tens, I think that's so granular and meaningless because often my next 10 are just as good as my number 10. I just have to draw a line. And I think top 10, using this for everything, is too arbitrary. Take all of my eights, all of my nines, and if you want to, all of my sevens. Um, all right. And that, that'll be a much more interesting way to go. Okay, and I think much more reflective of my true feelings. Okay, question four. Only 38 games of the 2020 are ranked in my all-time list. What about what about all those other games you played? When do you give a game a rating? Actually, Wally, I uh, outline the particulars of this at faq.rado.com. It's entry number 23, where I go into great depth about how I rank, why I rank, why I don't rank some things, etc., etc. So um, that should hopefully answer that question. Uh, faq.rado.com, number 23. How do you rank and classify your games on BoardGameGeek? Anyway, on to number five. Not related to this year's top 10. You promise? Okay. In the top 10 designers video, Jeremy stated that Anachrony was the mark, quote unquote, for a medium game. This surprised me a lot, since to me, it's definitely a medium heavy or even a heavy game. You didn't really uh, react to that statement. What do you think? Uh, plus, what games for you are the mark when it comes to light, light medium, medium, medium heavy, and heavy? Thanks for answering. Wish you and your family all the best for New Year. You too, Wally. Uh, thanks for all the great work. And you too, Wally. This is this is fun. I look forward to seeing you again in six months. Um, all right, I I didn't flinch on that because relative heaviness is a hard thing to rate. Clearly, um, for a Jeremy, he considers Anacria a medium because he loves Vita Lasarda games, and for him, Vita Lasarda games are probably uh, medium heavy. And I mean, because here's the deal. There are games out there, Wally, that are so insanely, mind-bogglingly dense and opaque and heavy to a level that you and I cannot even comprehend their existence. And those games out there exist. Should we ignore them when we're trying to rate a game on a heaviness scale? I suspect you and I do. I don't know. Maybe Jeremy doesn't. Maybe he's played more 18xxers than I have. I wouldn't put it past him. Um, And so, yeah, for him, it's medium. I would probably, for me, the high end of what I personally want to play in terms of weight is probably... I mean, I think Vinos from Vita Lasarda goes a little bit too heavy. I think... I don't think it's unreasonable for uh, other people to say, yeah, v- you know, Vinos is maybe um, medium slash heavy, but that's not heavy, man, because you've never played 18xx. You've never played, oh, all these different kinds of war games. It's all, it's all personal. It's all very subjective. And so, with that in mind, you ask, where, where is it for me? Oh, that's tough. Um, honestly, I don't really think about it. I, I love comparing games on how much I enjoy them, not about how much heavy they are. But let's go to ranked.rado.com and look at my collection... Okay. Pandemic, 
I would call light to medium. Although if you put if you start throwing expansions in, you know, especially the in the labs, it could get to medium. Shadowrun is light to medium. Gloomhaven is probably medium to heavy. Agricola is medium heavy, but not heavy. Because again, I, I'm I'm saying Lisboa and you know Gallerist, and you know, that's heavy. Although again, perfectly reasonable to call those medium heavy if you go even higher. Burgundy. Castles of Burgundy. I think that might be a good what was what, I forget what you did you call it the mark? I think that might be it for me. I think that might be a good one. Maybe Pelepines as well. I think those are good examples of that that sweet spot. You know, right in the middle between too heavy that I don't care and too light that I personally don't care. Because don't forget, for other players, it's perfectly reasonable for them to say, yeah, Ticket to Ride's a really heavy game. Because they play that, and then they play a bunch of party games. They play a lot of Pictionary and whatnot. All of a sudden, Ticket to Ride's a pretty heavy beast. Although I think you and I would agree, it's not necessarily heavy. And it's so it's all subjective. So anyway, I'm glad you asked what was my subjective opinion, because I think I'll, I'll target Burgundy. I'll target Peloponnese. It's good mediums right there in the middle. Uh, and I'm sure there are many people who will disagree. All right. Then, 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 we move on to uh, Marco. Hey, Marco. Hi, Rado. I wish you and your family a great year. It can only get better. Smiley face. Promise? The... I mean, oh. <laughs> Again, this is game stuff. Not getting into... All right. And you're lucky, folks, that uh, we recorded our personal Q&A prior to the events of the 6th of January. Uh, otherwise, it would have been a very different focused uh, per personal section. Alrighty. Here are my game-related questions. Why didn't you cover uh, ne uh, Nevedalir? Seems like a game you and Jed would enjoy. Or is it yet to come? Is there a sports-themed game that you own and enjoy despite its theme? I'll answer the second one first. No. Sports are such a turnoff for me. I, I don't... I don't begrudge anybody for loving what they love, but man, I hate it. We like K2, and I guess mountain climbing is a sport, although it's not really a competitive sport. I guess it is probably a competitive sport. And I is it considered? I'm mean, honestly, I like K2 in spite of its theme. I actually kind of dislike its theme because, you know, you, you ever watch it seems like, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years ago, there was a whole spate of feature films that were all about the majesty and beauty and danger and drama of mountain climbing. And I like, oh, I don't care about any of these things because I can't get emotionally involved in somebody dying doing a silly, stupid thing that they could have devoted their life to doing other things that weren't trying to kill them. And I know, ironically, I say that as a guy who have jumped out of airplanes and I have scuba dived, um, you know, and all that. But still... I don't. Hey, you know, people are hypocrites. What can you do? Um, I guess I say K two. K two is a race game. There are several racing games we like, and you could consider those sports like Cubitos. I'm going to be filming it live next week with Jen. That's awesome. It's a race, and race is a racing is a sport. I guess that's as close as it comes. But I don't know games where it's just all about pushing a ball from one side of the field back to the other side of the field, back to the other side of the field. Back to the other side of the field for 90 minutes in whatever form you want to do that, I I just cannot invest any enthusiasm for it. I will say though that Steffenfeld's dribble fielder, which as I understand is finally getting a reprint from Queen of all things, um, is amazing. That was actually really good from Steffenfeld. So if I had to play a sports game, I'd probably want to play that one because it's basically a deck builder. Did it come out before Dominion? As a deck builder? Anyway, hard the matters. Oh, wait, to your other question, uh, Nevedalir, I'm familiar with it, and it looks really great. And honestly, I'm not quite sure why I haven't covered it. Let me pull up Outlook, and let me search... How do you spell that? N-I-V-A-D-E-L-L-I-R. 
I will search because I save all my emails, all my correspondence with publishers, etc., etc. And I yours is the only email in over a decade of emails that I have held on to that mentions uh, Nivadiller. Oh wait, are you? Maybe you're spelling it wrong. Let, let me because it's a weird word. Uh, let's go back over here and find it. Nivda. Oh wait, nope, nope. Oh, you did spell it wrong. It's Nidavellir, not Nivadalir. Uh -huh. All right, let's try. Um, well, first of all, I do personally have it marked as like to have. I would like to check out this game. I have given it a three on my scale of five, which you can learn more about it uh, at, you know, I mentioned the FAQ, how I rank games. I rank my wish list as well. So I want to play this game. Let's now search for it spelled correctly in my outbox or in my inbox, in my board game box. Uh, how is it? It is N-I-D-A-V-E-L-L-I-R. Boom. All righty. So, okay, I do have some emails about it. Nope, but these are just like press releases. You know, Philbert saying, hey, we've got Nidalir. And um, Blackrock saying, hey, don't forget to check out this at the virtual convention or whatever. No, I'll tell you why. The publisher never contacted me. And it's too bad. Because at some point, I looked at this game and decided... I would like to have it, which means I would like to cover it, which means if the publisher reached out to me, but apparently for whatever reason, it didn't... Um, it is very rare these days that a game that I'm not already covering um, calls to me so much and is such a must-play game that I will send a uh, blank, hey, hi, I don't know if you've heard of me, but I have a show called Rotto Runs Through, and I run through games, and I was wondering if you would uh, be interested in sending me out a review copy of Nidavellir. Um, and Nidavellir didn't cross that threshold. Like I said, it's very rare that I do that. Um, uh, but yeah, I would totally like to play it. It's just the publisher apparently is interested in me covering it. Because if they were, I've got a very easy... It's it's in my FAQ. Uh, one of my frequently asked questions is, Hey, Rado, how can we get you to cover our game? And I give them instructions on what to do. The publisher decided they don't want me to cover it, so I didn't cover it. It's too bad, because it, I've heard really good things about it. Alrighty. Um, thanks, Marco. All right. Um, oops. And oh dear. Now I, because I've done that search, oh no, now I'm looking at all these emails about Nidalir, um, press releases and whatnot. Okay. Okay. I got to get back to the Q&A section. I see what happened there. All right. What was that? That was Marco, right? Here we go. Can I get, can I get you back, Marco? Oh, I got to close that. And then I got to open it again. Is that what I got to do? There we go. Okay. We're back. We're back. All right. Uh, Marco there. Where were you? Oh, this this has kind of messed everything up. <laughs> um, which normally wouldn't matter, but now people can see it if they're watching on YouTube. They can see me fumble around like a doofus that I am. Okay. Uh, Sakumar, or Sakumar says, Hi, Rado. More than a year since I last wrote to the podcast. We just pulled out our copy of Martin Wallace's London 2nd Edition after nearly three years of owning it. After two plays, we decided it's too luck-driven to be enjoyable for the following reasons. One... The market doesn't give as much control over one's hand as you might think, because it usually contains cards no one wants. That's... Um, either because they are weaker than cards in hand, or because they generate unwanted player interaction. So, uh, unwanted player interaction? I don't remember... London really... London's pretty living... Right. Um, so, more often than not, we found ourselves being reliant on blind draw. Oh, that's terrible. Then, then you're not playing London. Uh, there's no stable way of engine building, especially controlled poverty. Uh, well, that makes sense if you're just drawing blind. I mean, it's all about that market. 
Uh, I mean, my niece twice had an engine that practically eliminated poverty while also generating prestige points, while the rest of us were more reliant on burrows or other buildings to reduce poverty one time. Once again, it was totally luck-driven. Well, yes, the whole game is going to be luck-driven if you draw book cards blind entirely instead of using the market, which is an incredibly powerful tool. Uh, but anyway, we'll get back to that. Some cards require a flip-over while others don't. Uh, but there are cards in the latter category that provide no ongoing benefit for not flipping over. Presumably, this is for situations where prestige coins can be gained, for having certain color combinations on display, but once again, there's no control over this, for the reasons we already talked about. All right, uh, money supply, while not plentiful, was manageable, so not sure how much of a role the loan... Oh my gosh! Uh, so Kumar, the loans are everything! I'm, I am drowning in loans in this game by the end of the game. Oh my gosh! Uh, I once tried to increase the size of my tableau by borrowing heavily, but paid big time in the end with poverty. That's fine! Poverty will not cause you to lose the game. Um, so I don't know that I would necessarily worry that much. Anyway, all right. Perhaps we're playing this all wrong. Usually, when you wax eloquent about a game, it really works for us, but we are ready to dump our copy of London in the nearest bin. Stay safe. Happy New Year. Well, okay, Sukumar, I'm sorry. Uh, that, you know, the, 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 you've had a bad experience, but I think the game is great. I think the first problem is a lot of your it just feels random is because you are literally leaving your luck to your your outcome to fate by just doing nothing but draw blinds. We almost, I mean, we sometimes draw a blind, but most of it's not not usually. We are all over that market, and so here's the here's what I suggest, Sukumar. If you haven't, go to Board Game Geek. Go to either the original London or the second edition. Probably the original London. You'll get more responses uh, because you know more people will see it. And just post a post literally this email to there, and I guarantee you, you will get a lot of responses from a lot of folks giving you a lot of great advice about the assumptions you've made and why you're missing out. Because the game, yes, there's definitely luck. Any card game is going to have a bit of luck. But I, I'm, this is a game we have played a lot. We played a lot of London before I started doing Rattle Runs Through. And you know, as I talked about earlier, I always have to move forward. London's one of our most fa played engine builders of all time. We both love it to pieces. And yeah, it's not luck-based. It's and and loans are important, and poverty isn't debilitating. I mean, it, it can be a sizable portion. Although it's really interesting because if everybody goes into poverty, then it doesn't matter at all. It's only if one person you know keeps their city clean. But you can um, you can do so much if you embrace poverty and you basically well exploit your workforce and leave them in poverty to better your own. I mean, uh, you know, which again is really reflective of the growth of London and you know capitalism in general. I, I think it's great. And yeah, I, to your answer, I, I think you're missing something. I think you've made a, a couple of key assumptions that I think are faulty, and it's l leading you. And my best answer, because I, I haven't played the game for a couple of years, but my best answer is go to Board Game Geek. Just post this on the general forum, and I guarantee you, you will get helpful suggestions. Um, I, I, I suspect you will. Uh, but anyway, and I'm sorry I can't help you more, but thank you as always. Uh, sorry I haven't heard from you for a while, but uh, thanks for writing in. Okay. Next up, we have Jeremy, who mentioned Isaac Childress as being a formidable opponent in board games. Besides Jen... Wait, this isn't Jeremy. Oh, Jeremy. This is from Stacy. Hey, Stacy. All right. Stacy says, Jeremy mentioned... Isaac Childress as being a formidable opponent in board games. Besides Jen, who have you played with that you feel is a formidable opponent in board games? Why, you, of course, Stacy. Obviously! That's kind of a gimme. Um, and, and it's not, you know, all right, okay. Well, of course, as everybody knows, I mostly play with Jen. So I mostly play against my greatest adversary. Um, honestly, I think I'm okay at games. I, I think I'm a pretty good game player. I'm not the best, but I do okay. It's just that Jen does better by 65% uh, to 45% back when I used to track our, our wins and losses. Oh, oh, 
Uh, uh, Jason Yenowine. No, not Jason Yenowine. That's a programmer I used to work with a million years ago. Jason Levine, the gaming machine, contributor to the Dice Tower. I've played a few games with him, and the machine is right. He is a board gaming supercomputer. He does all the really intense computational crunching that my wife loves to do that generally leads to victory for her. But for her, where it takes, you know, a couple of minutes to work through everything and try... Jason, he's just got... His brain is wired to just instantly process everything to peak efficiency. He's a quick, decisive player, in my experience, and it's it's stunning. He is, he is unstoppable. He is... It, it, honestly, it's a little demoralizing to play with him, just because... Uh, you, you sit down and you, you okay. You know you're playing for second, and with good reason. Uh, if you ever get a chance to play with him, unless he's having a really off day, uh, prepare to lose. Okay. Um, Darren says I want to chime in about no one. Oh, oh no, that's that's in the personal, right? I remember you. All right, so DTD, your, your your game is down here at the bottom. Did I like or no? No. Did you like Castles of Tuscany better the way you originally played it or the way it's supposed to be played? I recently backed you on Patreon for the Rambler level. It says my vote is doubled, but I don't know how or where to vote. Can you explain that, please? Let me do the voting first. Um, here's the deal. If you're backing me on Patreon, first of all, thank you very much for your support for the show. You should be getting every month, usually in the last week of the month, an email from... It says this comes from me, but the email address is, I think, rotto at vnbsurvey.com or something like that. And that email has a link that will send you to a private ballot where you can vote on which of the 10 games I put up in the ballot for me to cover. If you're not getting that email, contact me. You can just ping me on Patreon. Uh, you can message the creator. And we'll figure out why those emails are not showing up. If they are showing up, what you may not have noticed is when you follow the link and you go to that voting page, that uh, it will say, basically in small print, somewhere up at the top of the page, Voting power 2x or something like that, because you are backing at the Rambler, which means um, you know anybody else who who said yes, I must have a run through of four of, of my city, and that they they would be giving that a five, whereas you as a doubler would be do, giving ten points towards the the vote tally because you get double the voting, um, and so it it says that I forget where somewhere in small print on the page. The question is, are you actually getting those? And the answer is, contact me direct, because probably most people listening to this don't support the show, and this is a boring question for them, so I'll move on to the other one, which is probably has a little bit more wide appeal. Do I like Castle of Tuscany better the way you originally played it, or the way it's supposed to be played? No. Honestly, the way, when I, the way I was originally playing it, based on the rules that were wrong, I thought, this seems weird. But this is what the rules say, so I guess so. I don't think it made enough of a difference. It was basically that that, that is a game where you can collect bonus tiles that say, hey, every time you collect workers... Yeah, I mean, instead of just getting one worker like you're supposed to, get two workers or three workers or four workers. You can compound your income of workers and your income of of bonus. Uh, I forget what they're called, stones or something like that. You have these uh, income modifiers, and there's two ways you can get these income. You can get them through tile placement, which is the heart of the game, or through these weird random bonus tiles you can get. And the way the English rules are written, the bonus applies to both. It applies to tile laying and it applies to the other tiles, which may or the uh, the uh, the the not draft cards, the yield cards. And this makes yield cards very powerful because a lot of times you'll get a lot of stuff from them. And yield cards are... Uh, and here's the deal. The English rules are wrong. They're, they lie. And they say you can do this when in fact... Or they, they basically say this through a mission. 
The only way you can interpret it is that, oh, they work for everything, but they don't. They're only supposed to work for tiling. And so, when we played it the first couple times, before I realized that was wrong, um, I think when I was watching a stream from, oh, uh, Paula Deming and uh, Matthew June, I said, well, hey, the English rules, here, this is what they say. And they say, yeah, but we watch Rodney. And Rodney said this. I'm like, Rodney! And it turns out Rodney was right because he actually contacted the publisher and got clarification because the English rules were wrong. Anyway, it's better played correctly. Uh, the yield cards get a bit too powerful. Um, and then it becomes, oh, it's got to be all about those. Right, so that's, yeah, that was wrong, and I'm glad. I'm so glad, because uh, normally I don't watch Rodney's videos, because by the time he puts a video up, I've already played the game. I don't think I need to learn it. But in this case, Aaliyah just totally boofed the rules. Alrighty. Stefan. Oh, boy, we're almost done, folks. Three people. Stefan, you're number three. Let's go. I thought of this question after listening to the Top 10 2020. If Aaliyah... Oh, alrighty. Uh, cor correct. Task goes a top... Castles of Tuscany's woeful rulebook in the upcoming print run, would you would that change your ranking? Also, worth keeping in mind that Aaliyah is apparently changing the basic action of drawing cards from two to three, apparently against Feld's advice based on his Twitter. You are entirely right. And yes, this will very much likely um, change my rating, and it will cause it to go down. Because, oh my god, I don't know what's going on with Aaliyah. This is you know this is Carpe Diem all over again, where you had a perfectly fine game and then they just did a reprint, not even a second edition, just a reprint, and they fundamentally changed things and made the game worse against what Stefan Feld has said publicly. And apparently, they're going to do it again with Castles of Tusking. And their reason is, well, you know what? New players have a, a mistakenly believe that um, uh, you know that the bonus to being able to draw more cards is the most powerful and they must do it. And so we're going to fix that. that we're going to correct their mistaken assumption by literally making card drawing more powerful so that that bonus tile is weaker. And all they're doing is making that bonus tile weaker, making everything more... And throwing the balance all off. Drawing two cards, drawing three cards per turn from the get-go, that is literally, that is literally the difference between um, playing Agricola, starting Agricola with two workers, or starting with three. You're increasing your income every round by thirty-three percent. That is monstrous. That is so huge. And for them, just like say, oh well, you know. And Stefan Feld did, as you say, he posted on Twitter that you know he said, well, they're making this change because supposedly new players don't quite um, understand that the game is actually balanced. But the game is balanced as it is. So he was kind of passively, aggressively saying, play it my way. Ali is going to mess it up. He didn't say this. He didn't say this at all. This is me and apparently Stefan or Stephen reading between the lines. But oh my gosh, it's ridiculous. And um, I don't have to wait. I can try this right now, but I guarantee you, any game that is balanced where you increase the player's round yield by 33%, that is going to mess with the balance of the game. And that is what Aaliyah is doing. And it will probably, when I do my updated list, I'm, it, might, it might pull Tuscany out of the top 10 altogether. And in the same way that the stuff they did to Carpe Diem pulled it out of the top 10 altogether because they really significantly hurt the game. And I, I don't. I do not know what's going on over there. It's crazy, crazy. Anyway, I mean, yeah. If new players have misunderstandings, you resolve that in the rule book by putting in a strategy tip that says, "Hey, while it may look like this is the most powerful, trust us. We've done the math." But whatever. It's carpe diem all over again. It's crazy. All right, uh, Stephen says, related question, how do I think this will affect the game? Well, okay, I think I've already answered the related question. Personally, I don't think it will change the game all that much. Thirty-three percent, man. Oh, sorry. Perhaps make it slightly less tight, but the overall feel, I think, would remain largely the same. I have yet to try the new rule myself. I think, strictly speaking, 
I, I think you've summed it up. It will feel less tight. Um, if you're every turn by default, you're drawing three cards, but then you could draw four or five or six instead of um, three, four or five. You'll have so much stuff that things will just get easy. The game will go on easy street. And it also means that you won't need. I mean, you know, that all other bonuses, the extra workers, the extra stone, the extra yield cards, those have all been increased in strength by 33% divided by 5, right? Because um, drawing extra cards has been devalued by 33% because you're getting them for free. 33% is freaking huge in terms of game balance. And I think it's a bad call. All righty. Putting Aaliyah on notice there. Please don't do this. Please don't second-guess Stefan Feld. Please. He, he knows what he's doing. All right. Anyway, though, um, continuing right along to uh, Sam. Hey, Sam. Sam I am says, I listened to you talk, complain about poor board game rulebook structure for the in a recent top 25 list, and I, would, I could not agree more. I've been working as a rulebook writer editor for a couple of years now, and I have a structure that I think works pretty well. You can see an example of it here. He includes a, includes a link for a game called Roll Camera that was on Kickstarter last fall. And Roll Camera was excellent, by the way. And I it's been a long time, but I don't remember having any problems reading the rules. All right. In short, I try to give a super high thematic overview, then list the components and give setup, then a more detailed game objective for players once they know all the pieces, then get into turn structure, actions, in-game conditions, etc. Sam, you're my hero. I wish all publishers would hire you because this is the way you do it. All right. I've also put together a style guide, which he links to, that I show to potential clients. I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of this as a huge consumer board game. Let's pull up that style guide. All righty. Boom. Dee, dee, dee. And that takes us to uh, uh, Philoscopter, philoscopter.com style guide. Okay. So apparently this is your online resume. And I just realized I'm showing this to people. This isn't hidden, is it? If anybody just comes to Philocopter, can they find this? As if not, I should hide this because I'm not used to actually showing things on YouTube. Alrighty, uh, I just want to. All right, so no, you okay? Style guy. Okay, so this is public information. Cool, cool, cool. Let's look. Now I'm not going to read this whole thing. Um, you have a guiding philosophy. You have general rules layout, which it seems you just laid out. Uh, Variants, appendices, etc. At the end, second person. I strongly prefer to write in second person as opposed to third, uh, which means means to say player or it says you, right? It's, it's uh, yeah, talking to player. Yes. This is such an easy solution for gender issues. Why don't rule writers do this? It's just such a no-brainer. Here's why I would assume. I don't... Sam, you tell me. I've been curious about this for a long time, and I always mean to ask Paul Grogan, who is your competition, I'm sure you know. I always mean to ask him, in gendered languages, you know, French and Spanish and German and all that, uh, it's been since high school and college since I took German. I remember German has gendered pronouns. Like, um... Or, uh, you know, like, uh, what are they? Um... Z or or, or uh, D or dare references male or female. They have male and female the. And of course, la and lay does it in French and, and Spanish does it. So does that become a problem then uh, in a gendered language where? Oh no! But again, you're you're not you're not saying the player because then you'd have to say the male player or the female player in these other languages, right? So that's a, still a problem. So referring to the player. Um, so. But is there anything like that for direct addressing of you? Is there... I mean, there. I, in German, I remember there's formality, there's do, which is very informal, versus Z, capital S, as opposed to lowercase s. Oh my God, it's ridiculous. All these rules. I mean, although I'm one to talk. English is the most ridiculous language, I know. And inconsistent. Um, but anyway, I, I, I know there's 
familiarity baked into the language, but is there gender? From my dim recollection of taking German, I don't think there is. But that, that could be the only reason I could imagine why rules writers don't just use the you do this, you do that, you do the other thing. It does lead to a problem because eventually in French, you'll have to say, you do this. And then when you refer to your opponents, you're going to have to say, no, you could still say your opponents. And then again, you're avoiding. I don't know. I, I agree. Include they, them pronouns in you'll... Oh, so you do the they, them. Does that work in French and Spanish? I still don't know. Instead of he, she. Uh, and again, I don't know if I'd use they, them. I think I would use um, always just you. And then to reference anybody else around the table other than you, because the whole thing... Honestly, that makes it easier to learn rules. If a rule book is written to me, I, on a subconscious level, in uh, you know, if... if if a rulebook is written about somebody else, if it's written about the player, or him, or her, or them, there is a level of abstraction between me and the rules, which means I'm ever so tiny by a smallest fraction less likely to be pulled into the rules than when you're talking about me. So, yes, always refer to everything. Um, but, and then I, I, would, I would continue with that. I think I would say, um, so, uh, when it's your turn, do this. And then if you have to refer to somebody else, say, your opponents. So that everything is from the perspective of the person reading the rules. If I'm right, I think that means you avoid all gender issues in all languages. And the game becomes a tiny bit easier to learn. So, there's some thoughts for you. Um, I'm sure you've already thought about this. I'm sure you've given some more. Yeah, I just don't know if you need they, them, as opposed to um, your uh, opponents. Or your teammates, if it's a cooperative game. Um, for any other stylistic issue or capitalized flexible, yeah. But anyway, yes, uh, you, you've told. Actually, you 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 put a list. Uh, you put the link in. Let's go on ahead and look at if I can find it. There we go. Let's look at Roll Camera's rule book. Let's put your money where your mouth is, sir. Alrighty. Um, oh, zippity doo da, zippity day. Oh, it doesn't quite fit. All right, no, that, that's pretty close. Right, and again, normally I don't normally care about fitting. I did not anticipate these sorts of problems. Alrighty, so. Introduction. Yep. Set the scene. Tell the story of who I am and where I am. That's the number one thing you can do to draw people in. Because I think everybody's got a little bit of an actor, a little bit of a performer in them. Um, you know. Anyway, then game overview. All right, so now you, you, you set the stage. Now you set the stage for gameplay. Then a very simple list of components. Brilliant. You do not make the mistake of drilling out, oh, you have 15 script cards. Script cards are used for the following things. Blah, 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 blah. Next thing you know, you've got three pages of gobbledygook that just completely derails anybody's ability to learn. The only reason this component list needs to be here is so that on the next thing, when I'm setting up and it says, hey, use the uh, script card, I can look up here and say, oh, what's a script card look like? That's the only reason... Oh, and I guess for people who are really super um, you know, specific and want to check, first thing they do, they open the box and make sure all the components are there. Please, rulebook writers, stop right, wasting page after page after page of, of, the, of the key learning time by telling me a bunch of stuff I don't need to know. Because you got to start with the structure. If you set out to build a house, the first thing you do is not, right, let's go out ahead and get the couch... And um, you know, let's get the end tables and let's all set them up, and so they're all perfect. You save that to the end. You build the walls before you hang the pictures. But eh, so many rulebook writers just do it bass backwards, and it looks. Um, I'm sorry, I've already forgotten your name because I'm getting a bit ranty there. Was it Tom? Um, Sam. It looks like Sam. You get it, Sam. You get it. And oh my gosh, Sam, this. 
so even when peers when writers do it right, they do it wrong. You've got your setup here, right? And it shows a picture of the board, and it shows all the resources, and everything's numbered. The number of times, Sam, I have seen other rulebook writers say, okay, here's the 10 steps for how you set up. And so I see, oh, steps 1 through 10. But then on the legend for the board, I see spaces A through G. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Why are you making me translate? Because then I got to look through and say, oh, that stack of G, that's in step 3. Why isn't there a number 3 on that? You have clearly done that. Because if I look at your number 3, and I look up here, yep, You've got number three is where your script cards. Number three in this text describes the script cards. Sam, you are the greatest board game book writer of all time so far. Although I I I love uh I love Paul too. In case Paul's out there, um, but you know Sam, you get it. All right, and then now this is interesting. You have this objective because you already didn't you do that up here? I didn't, I didn't read. You have game overview, and then you have objective. No, actually, I like this. And this is not normal. I mean, it's not undone. And But the important thing is, you get to it quick. You don't belabor it. You don't make me wait. Because we finally get to the meat. On your turn, your turn has five simple steps. One, two, three, four, five. And then the rest of your rulebook is structured around those five steps. Because this is how people learn. This is building the superstructure of the house. And once the superstructure is in my brain, then you can start decorating with what a script card does. Don't tell me what a script card does, Rule Rider, before I even know how to, um, you know, yeah, I'm repeating myself. Anyway, so now here's, there's an interesting thing here. I'm curious how you do this. Actually, I'm not even going to read. I'm going to look ahead. There's one big question, and I can, I can imagine going either way. Personally, I like the, um, the approach where, hey, I've got the structure. You do you, next few pages are steps one, three, four, five. I can always go back and look at this step one, three, four, five. My player aid says steps one, two, three, four, five. Everything you know um, reinforces the most important thing. This is the structure of the game. This is what drives everything, and it's consistent across all. And you have player aids. You have the back of the manual. You've got the actual rulebook itself. You've maybe got the player board, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When you're actually in there, and okay, so what, what? Right. So these turns are either simple, like your first one, draw a card. Second one, roll dice. So, and I'm sure those will be quick. Third one, assign crew dice to take actions, which could be do worker placement stuff. Now, here's the question. <clears throat> I personally think it's better to make section three do the worker placement stuff, which you you know place your crew dice. Make that as simple and quick and to the point and contained as everything else. A lot of rulebook writers will say, "Oh, we get to section three, do the worker placement, and then they'll spend three pages talking about what all the worker placement spots do." That's okay, but I think it's wrong because hey, I'm still trying to solidify the scaffolding of this house. And you've now, we're halfway through building the house, and now you're giving me a treatise on the difference between coffee tables and um, Ottomans. Why are you telling me this? I haven't finished putting up the walls yet. So I'm curious to see which way you go. Because I see rule book players, and I, I think it's much better to save all that stuff for later, but a lot of times they put it in. And I understand why. Because there's two purposes that a rule book serves. One is to teach the game. The other is to be a reference manual to help you find stuff. And it's it's as easy as it is to do a poor job teaching, it's even easier to make a bad reference guide. I'm shocked that more rule books don't have a index, appendices, you know, just with a list of all things telling you what page to go to. You know, especially the longer rule book kits. I mean, um, you know, uh, th this game is a pretty light game. It's not gonna be very long anyway, but 
It drives me nuts that player that rulebook writers don't do that when it's so simple. And it's like it's the basic, it's the basis of technical writing going back for time immemorial. By the way, I say all this from the perspective of somebody who in the University of Washington's major was scientific and technical communication. I was trained to be a technical writer. So um, I was trained to write to write things for engineers, and, um, and that's not how you teach someone how to play a game. And yet so many rulebook writers seem to think it is. So anyway, clear the crew dice. Another simple step, advance the schedule, you know, end of round cleanup. So this is the big one. We get down to three. And I'm looking at this, and good. I don't see anywhere in here that you are describing what the worker placement spots do. You're just describing how they work, how to interact with them. And if you're smart, you will say, and I don't see it, and this, okay, this is an oversight. Nowhere in here do you take the opportunity to say, as for what these spaces do, um, see page X worker placement spots. You don't need to do that, and you haven't done that. But I think if a, if I'm reading this book and I get to this point, and right, okay, you've told me how I can place doubles and I can place triples and how I can convert things, but you haven't told me what any of the spaces do. You're going to get some percentage of your player base like I don't feel comfortable. I feel like I'm not having my questions answered right now. I'd really like to know what all these worker placement spots do because that's what I'm thinking about. And like I said, I don't think this is the right place to put it, but I do think it's very smart to put a little reference to make that reader think, oh. You've anticipated what they want, and you've given them that. They probably won't even jump ahead to page 12 to look. They'll just say, Oh, good. This information is coming on page 12. I can stop spinning my brain, and I can go back to paying attention to what's here. So I think you missed that, and I think that would be a good addition here. Um, I mean, I appreciate why you might not want to do it, because that just creates more potential for error, because you'd have to put in an X, and you hope that you know whoever does the layout gets the pages right. But I, I do think that is worth doing, and it looks like you didn't do that. Match schedule, and then boom, here we go. You have a whole section for player actions. Yes, this is exactly right. Yep, yep, yep. Yep, Sam, you're a hero. You're a hero. Um, I love it. So anyway, there's some feedback. Okay, but folks, we are almost out of here. We got one more. And you're lucky, uh, Stefan. I would not have been answering this if it weren't for the fact that um, democracy is under assault. And I decided, hey, I want to take a few days off from finishing this. And because you just wrote yesterday. Um, sorry, folks. Again, no politics. But anyway, Stefan, you would have had to wait a month, but you were lucky. I'm happy for that. There's one small uh, tiding of, of cheer. Hi, Richard, says uh, Stefan. Stefan. Uh, first things first. Healthy and good start to 2021. I hope you two have a great time and enjoy the year. Second, thanks for all the videos and your answers, and all the stuff you're doing. Now, to the real question. What kept Darwin's Journey and ISS Vanguard out of my most anticipated games of 2021? Is it because release because release is 2021? I'll tell you. Um, although I'm pretty sure I mentioned it in the video, so my guess is, Stefan, you just saw that, oh look, I can just see what his list is and not actually watch. If you watch, I spend the first three minutes answering this question, but I will answer again. And, but I go into a lot of detail as to why. So just rewatch the first five minutes of the video. Darwin's Journey and ISS Vanguard are unlikely to be 2021 games. They will probably come out in 2022. And I decided this year to stop saying, oh, just because it's on Kickstarter, I'm going to say it's anticipated. Um, because that ultimately leads, I talked about this earlier, to double dipping. Where, hey, a game makes my top 10 most anticipated list because I'm really excited about the Kickstarter. And then next year, it gets double duty because it makes my anticipated list again because now it's coming out. And that's unfair to other games that don't double dip. And I decided, hey, I should stop double dipping since I'm complaining about everybody else doing it with these uh, uh, year rankings of top tens and whatnot. So that's why they're not here. And now that might be doing them a disservice, because who knows? Vanguard and Darwin might make it out in 2021. 
but chances are they won't. Chances are they won't. All right, number two. We loved, I mean, just because that's the way Kickstarters work. You get them done and, and about a year later, uh, on average, sometimes more, sometimes less, but usually more, uh, they come out. So it usually takes about a year. So question two, we love Pandemic Season Zero so much that we uh, also keep playing it after the campaign, thanks to you. Uh, uh, for folks who don't know, I did a, here's how you can continue playing Pandemic Zero and have a great time even after the campaign is over. So I'm glad to hear you like it. That's awesome. So you continue. If Matt Leacock would design a pandemic game like Season Zero, would it replace your favorite pandemic game for us? Yes. Best question. I see. So you're asking the new mechanisms, which I will not spoil. Do the new mechanisms that are introduced to Pandemic Season Zero, there are some new mechanisms that I love. Some of my favorite mechanisms of all time are in Pandemic uh, Season Zero. But on the whole, the core crux of the game, I think a regular pandemic is stronger. Um, because... This isn't really spoilers. Eh, I shouldn't spoil anything. The the, the central thing. Um, what, what are they called? Teams. I'll just say teams. I won't say what they are. All I'm all I'll be doing is spoiling the rulebook because I'm not saying anything gets unlocked. <sighs> teams are a really cool idea, but they incentivize a form of gameplay that is more static. And while it was fun and we really enjoyed it and it was cool to have a different taste than what Pandemic normally gives, I think Pandemic is a bit less dynamic. Because basically you have teams doing the work of players. And it was cool. We really enjoyed it. But I think regular Pandemic is better. So that, that's... Uh, I would say no. Um, alrighty. But effectively he did. He designed a Pandemic uh, like Season Zero. It's Season Zero. With my semi-Matt Leacock approved official variant. Okay. Phew. Oh my gosh, folks. That's... That's all she wrote. We have finished the gaming... Well, no. We haven't finished all the games. We finished the gaming-related questions that Jen is going to answer. And now, we're going to go away and we'll come back and Jen will show up and she'll answer a few game questions and then we'll get into the personal stuff. And I just got to warn you folks, in case you're on Kickstarter, I'm apologizing. This is where we visually say goodbye to each other because Jen said, no. No cameras. The only reason I do these podcasts is because I don't have to appear on camera. You turn that camera off, mister, is what she said the other day. So, from now on, you're just going to be looking at my logo for a while and um, I'm hearing what Jen has to say and... Uh, and things will get a little hairy from time to time. And there will be more dogs and uh, some very sad stuff. Um, just uh, forewarning. But anyway, um, thanks for the questions, folks. And as always, I rely on you. So please send more questions to questions at rotto.com. And in case you're getting off now, because for whatever reason... Well, no, you're not. You're going to stick around for the remaining game questions with Jen, right? Okay, then. Hang on. We'll be right back. <laughs> Okie dokie. And we're back with some more game questions. A few came in this month that I think Jen might be able to weigh in on. We will see how that goes. Although before we continue, I'm uh, giving Jen one last opportunity to opt into the new experimental camera filmed podcast. And how do you feel about that, Honey Pie? I would rather be off camera. All right. So I'm sorry, folks. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, it's just going to be whatever image I come up with for the rest of the show now. Um, but anyway, oh, before, also before we get going, there were a bunch of dog pictures in the uh, game stuff you didn't see. But you know what? Let's save that for the personal because we're, we're you know, dogs, dogs are not necessarily related to games. So nope. Honey Pie, there's a few game related questions. First one from Thomas, who hopes we're well. 
Ah, I uh, hope that he is well. Uh, we also hope that Thomas is well. Yes. Uh, well, this first one's not for you, Honey Pie. Uh, Thomas saw the run-through with a, with a smile and a gun and thought the game looked very interesting. He was curious if, uh, if it would fit in my top 10 two-player-only games if I had to update it. I mean, I will update that someday. I just need to wait five years. And curious about Jen's opinion on the matter. Oh, see, there you go. He's asking for Jen's opinion. Now, here's the deal. Jen doesn't <laughs> remember with a smile and a gun at all, do you? Nope. It was the. It was a city. It was like a, bl- a bunch of black and white tiles. It was in a grid. Okay. And um, we were the mob bosses moving around the outskirts. And you know, if you landed over here, you could send little cubes, and you'd, you'd put three, and then two, and then one. Um, you know, they, they kind of like diminishing returns as you spread out, mm-hmm. and then you'd move around over here, and then you'd put three, two, one, and at the end of the round, we'd see who had the most cubes on everything. And okay. it was really sharp. Yeah. Um, I kind of remember that, actually. You do? Well, okay, then Jen kind of remembers it, and that's really saying something, because Jen tends not to remember anything. The problem is, you know, I mean, Jen played it in spite of the fact that it was was mobsters shooting and killing each other, and we were mob bosses, and I mean, if it could have been any other theme... Uh, I think that game would have been a real keep for us because it was so sharp. Uh, and yeah, I think it could potentially make a best of top 10 too. I don't know. That's a tricky one. I'm I'm already failing you, Thomas. I'm not quite certain. But I, I think it certainly has the potential. When but that? I doubt we'll ever play it again because we, we covered it for the Kickstarter. And, um, mm. and you know, if the publisher offers to send a final review copy, I'll say, no, that's okay. Because Jen won't want to play it again because we're mobsters. And it's, yeah. Okay. When, when was the last time you did a top 10 two-player-only games? I don't know. Uh, I think it's been within five years, which is why I do it. But let's look. Rotto Top 10 2P. The last time I did it was... Actually, it was in 2016. June 2016. <gasps> so well, you are in due. the second half of this year, we might be revisiting that topic. Um, but actually, that would put the nail in the coffin because I would not put a game I've only played in prototype form on a list. And I don't think it would necessarily show up in time. So, uh, anyway, that was question number one. This one, I think the second one, honey, you'll have a bit more to say. Question for me and Jen. In general, honey, what do you remember most about a game a few weeks or months after you played it? Very, uh, how fortunate. Uh, uh, Is it the theme, the mechanisms, the type of player interaction, the components, the ending of the game? What... Oh, gosh. I think it's different for every game. I would say quite often it's the components. Because he'll describe... I'm a visual person, so he'll describe what it looks like and how we moved around. The pieces or the board or... I mean, with what I just did, did did. it help that I... I You guys couldn't see it because Jen insisted I turn the camera off, but I was actually mimicking a grid and and, using my hands to indicate how the... So it was the physical explanation. It's Yeah, I think the physical explanation. And then... um, I don't know. Sometimes it's a theme if it's something that stands out, like uh, Voodoo Lounge. Like Voodoo Lounge? Yeah, or... Wow, um, that's a random that, one. That that's hard from a million rock, years ago. Um, guitar player game. The what? The hard rock gar- guitar player yeah, game. Yeah, okay, yeah. You know, so if it's something real... I mean, obviously, some Euro s- simulation of trading in the med is never going to re- be able to remind me for mm-hmm. theme. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, if it's a unique theme, that definitely helps me remember it. Um, okay, here's a question. Here's a thought. Okay, yeah. so I think it was either last week or maybe two weeks ago we played Jar- Darwin's Journey. Yeah. And I, I okay, I'm just saying Darwin's Journey. Do you remember anything? I from do two remember. Weeks ago? Yes. What do you remember? I remember that the Darwin's the boat had to be kept up with, or else you would lose points. Uh huh. Um, I remember there were islands that you had to explore, or you could get like a free look see somewhere on the island if you 
chose that reward. Okay. Um, Here's a big question. Yeah. Do you remember how you actually did things? How you made choices? Because you're again, you're describing physical components. Yeah. You're you're describing the actual the the gameplay mechanisms that were tied to the physicality of moving around on the board. Yeah. Do you remember how you chose to do things? Right off the bat, you don't. I don't. I'm trying to remember were there colored and, dice, and, and there and weren't colored dice. There were no dice. No. There was. So this is fascinating. Yeah, there was some. I remember there were little chits. Yes, there were. That, yep, yep, yep. The the, again, the, the wax physical... seals. Yeah. It was a worker placement game. Mm. And remember, the you, we drafted cards at the beginning, and that indicated the specialties of your workers. And you'd send the workers out to do stuff, and over time, you'd get more tr academic training for them, so they'd be able to go to more worker placement spots. Yeah. And, I mean, you can't and, see, folks, but Jen's you like... you wanted to write letters. You like to write letters. I was doing your... a lot of correspondence, yes. Yep. Um, so that's interesting. So the, I mean, and that's the thing that really makes that game special is the way you train your workers. And, you know, remember if you hit all of the targets they wanted, they would become, um, distinguished and then they could start unlocking extra bonus things when you went to the worker place slots. And that's everything the game is about. You don't remember any of that. You just remember the physicality of the board. And that's really interesting. You obviously remembered the theme. Yeah. Um, as well, and I would guess maybe that falls under the well. It's not the standard. We are, uh, you know, Renaissance era noble families that are trying to gain <laughs> influence in the city by yeah. blah blah blahs. Yeah, I mean, yeah. which are again, yeah. I mean, it's, that's not as memorable. Um, that's probably the reason why you were so happy to continue playing Mediterranean um, eco games, economy games, and I'm like, I need something different, mm -hmm. something. With a gadget or mm -hmm. something to hang my hat on because, yeah. Well, that was interesting. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Number three question for Alice. Do you remember which were your favorite nemeses in Aeon's End, base game plus expansion and why? Actually, I would have a hard time doing that and I know Jen wouldn't. Nope. But somebody recently <laughs> asked me this. And was it, I did was it Thomas? I, it, maybe. <laughs> I think it was, I think it was a... A comment on YouTube or something like now, this that. This is what you need to do is you need to get him thinking about stuff and then send in the question to Rado questions at Rado.com. <laughs> so yeah, if you if you, yeah, you prep you his go. brain. There you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> although I would I'm sure I answered it wherever I saw it originally. And I do remember I didn't spend much time thinking about it, but and this is off the top of my head. I, I don't remember the name of him, but he was I think it was in the most recent one. I was very, very keen on the it's like the Time Stalker or something like that. It was a boss that you know put corruption cards in our decks, yeah. Um, you know to to gum us up. But what it was doing was manipulate. Oh man, now I'm, I don't remember how it works. It was the fact that oh yeah, unlike most deck builders where the cards that go in. Um, oh man, no, I can't remember it. But I do remember thinking that one's pretty good. We just played Aeon's End a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And it was with one of the new bosses from Southern Village, or the new boss in Southern Village. And I thought that was actually really cool because we were actually physical characters moving around in the world, you know, fighting stuff that actually, you know, in positional... I mean, it was no longer abstract. You didn't like that one, though. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, we lost three times <laughs> before we... We just kept going. We're like, oh, well, let's just pretend that didn't happen. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so it was, it was a hard one. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, I, I, we I don't like... lose that often in Aeon's End, so maybe that's why Jen didn't like it. Yeah, I like Aeon's End though. It's a yeah. good, really good game. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I I'm, I'm really embarrassed now. Um, 
but it's 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 the one that has to do with time that he's clogging up your deck and the way oh that's what it is the way you deal with him is um, you want your deck as fit as fat as possible because then you're diluting all of the bad things he's putting in the deck. Um, you know, because those decks are time bombs; they are poison pills, and um, you know, and they hurt as they come up. So if you just have a really thick deck, they won't come up very often. But he has a double whammy because he's continually stealing cards from your deck, just taking them right out of the deck and kind of holding them in a little jail that you then have to go and spend resources to get them back. And I thought that was a particularly clever one because of the thematic thing, uh, you know, oh, he's forcing us to age. It's the stuff he's putting in our deck is aging us uh, because he's a manipulator of time. I thought that one was very, very cool. But honestly, there's never been a bad one. It's amazing how much variety they've come up with. But anyway, I, that was the middle one there. I was really curious to see what you'd say about what you remember. Hmm. And so that's handy to know, too. From now on, I'll just focus on the physicality when I'm trying to remind you of stuff and not bother with, well, it was a dice drafting game where you did blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, okay, sorry. what did the board look like? <laughs> yeah. It's good to know. Alrighty. We're moving on to Denny who uh, notes that during the Top 2020 stream, I mentioned a possible shift in interest that Jen and I have experienced lately. Uh, this is reflected in um, us enjoying more shorter and easier-to-learn games. As we can all agree, this <laughs> is caused by a super busy schedule. But the topic to discuss, Denny says, is what's the biggest difference between your audience five years ago and today? Mm-hmm. Oh, shoot. I didn't actually look at this that close when it came in. I thought I was going to be digging down on that. But Danny says, yep, that just makes sense. All right. Uh, Jen doesn't know anything about my audience five years ago today. What would you re- who would you recommend your channel to um, these days? Do you think our, your audience has changed? I don't. Talk about, uh, that surprises me. I would yeah. think that we're still well in the niche of two-player couples gaming, basically. Yeah. Well, are we not? Before I answer that question or Danny's question, I will apologize to everybody because I did not see when I when when, when these emails come in, I just do a quick scan of them to put them in one of three directories. But stuff d- I'll answer, well, stuff her- Jen will answer, or personal stuff. Yeah. And I saw the first sentence. I thought, oh yeah, Jen will talk about this. I did not see the second, the third sentence where you basically summed up. Well, this is obviously what that is, and that's not what I'm going to ask you about. <laughs> so, uh, Jen, you don't have to weigh in on this, but uh, you certainly can. And your your point that. Um, has my audience changed over five years? I don't know that it has. I think Jen was right. Um, obviously, a sizable portion of my audience are folks like us. I mean, it's always been a big focus on on um, lower player count players. Uh, I know a lot of people... I mean, I've, a week doesn't go by. They don't see people complaining about how I only talk about things from a two-player perspective, and that makes my videos useless to them. Or I only demonstrate things from a two-player perspective, and that makes videos useful. And so that is an implicit gate uh, that just keeps a lot of people out, because a lot of people only play board games so they can play three, four, five, six players, and they're not interested. They have no... Or they do, they're not in a situation where they could be... I mean, I, I'm always surprised when people say, yeah, I can't play two-player games. I, I have no means by which to do it because <laughs> they only play at higher player counts. So I, I think, you know, just the nature of my focus narrows my audience somewhat. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I don't think... I, I think what proves to be most popular on my channel today is the same things as would have been the case five years ago. Jen's going to experiment turning on a fan, because apparently she's very hot. I'm going to stop for a second. 
All right. Uh, Audacity says it's not picking that up, so apparently you cannot hear the fan, folks. Um, but anyway, yeah, I don't think it's changed. The things that get the most views by far are medium to heavyweight longer Euros. And I, I think that's, you know, hardcore fans of board games, that's where you bread your butter or butter your bread <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, we actually probably would bread our butter. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, <laughs> yes, that's true. We're there for the butter, not for the bread. It's true. Um, God, so that just reminds me, I had a dream about sourdough bread last night and someone starting a starter. I did not, so there's no kind of weird, creepy thing going on. Okay, sure. All right. Okay, what did okay. I, I, I woke up, I was in the middle of a dream. Gosh, I, uh, it's gone. I don't remember what it was. Anyway. Jen's uh, dreaming of sourdough bread. Yes, there you go. Oh, my goodness. So, um, I, 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 you know, that's that's a big part of what we're doing. And while I do think, uh, probably there's a change in the audience because I do think the industry as a whole is kind of shifting as it gets broader and more people are coming in and um, and board games are breaking through to mass culture, lighter games are going to find a bigger audience than traditionally. And that's going to be a shift that is changing. And I do think, I mean, I I talked about this in the 2020 stream, I think, or the top games of 2020. The how high things like Calico popped in, uh, you know, which, you know, are, I mean, we've always had games like this, but really it's kind of a Zool that, um, which was certainly not the first relatively light and yet surprisingly deep game with really nice components, uh, but a Zool just dominated the industry. And I think a few years on from that, we're going to see more and more publishers saying, okay, those are easier to make. Mm. They're cheaper to make, and it seems like there is a burgeoning, growing audience for that. Yeah, and let's do more of that and less of the hey, let's put 50 million shits in a box that costs us five times as much, is much more difficult to develop, requires yeah. a lot more play testing, etc. Yeah. etc. I was gonna say the play testing alone, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, I suspect we're seeing we're probably seeing industry shift overall, and I think maybe. The success of Calico and other games, and just how many a Calico weight games made it into my top ten for last year, and how many of them were on my anticipated list for 2021. I it, it looked five years ago. I don't think there would have been that many. I don't think I would have been paying attention to them as much. Jen uh, just wanted to grab Calico. She saw it on the shelf. She, remember, it's the uh, remember we played it with Steve and Betsy. Yeah. Um, you're looking at the physical stuff. It's the cats, uh, and you're trying to put the tiles down based on their color mm. or the pattern. You have goals yep. you're trying to lay them out. It's just incredibly tight and challenging. Yep. There's goals that you're trying to yep. hit and all that. Okay, I, yeah. I remember yeah, it. I remember buttons. it was fabric-y something. Yes. So, yeah. So, I think we're seeing a change there as, an, as a necessary, as a, just a, a, a natural extension of the growing industry and bringing more people in. And a Calico can still work for a hardcore gamer, but it can also work for a a newbie, and it's a game that someone can grow into. Yep. And I mention all that because I suspect that might be a shift you see in my audience as well as time goes on, and maybe it is already happening. But I can still say, I would be willing to bet, if I I checked how many views my Calico video got last year, as opposed to how many views... 
Underwater Cities got the year before, probably Underwater Cities still crushed it. Because um, I think these new people who are coming in, their first thought isn't, oh, hey, I'm going to go subscribe to a channel on YouTube about board games. I don't think they're there yet. <laughs> um, Wait, is there somebody out there named Rado? Yeah. I, I feel... Alrighty. I need a Rado. Moving right along, Denny also asks, can hardcore gamers trust my judgment these days? Trust your judgment. Trust my judgment. And I would say no one should trust my judgment ever. That's why I do the run-throughs, so that you can ju you can trust your own judgment, because I try as best I can to give you the sense that you have played the game yourself. Um, now, that said, we still love... Uh, if you wanted to... I, no, I... Um, no, I don't think my ability to judge the uh, subjective and objective qualities of game design have flagged in any way. I think being a professional game developer and designer for 20 years has given me a pretty solid base to stand on in terms of my appreciation. And I also pride myself for being able to identify whether a game is good, regardless of whether Jen or I enjoy it. And I think um, Jen does as well. I mean, we often will play a game and be like, oh yeah, this is clearly a great game, but yep. oh my gosh. Not for us. We have to keep playing. Uh, <laughs> Dune Imperium, as an example, is a brilliant design. We will never play it again. Um, so it's up to you to decide whether you, you think you can trust my judgment. Um, but I still play more games of all weight uh, than just about anybody in the industry, with the possible exception of Tom Vassell. Um, how many other channels cover two, 250 to 300 games a year besides me? Uh, so I still think that gives me a pretty solid foundation to speak knowledgeably about what's going on. Plus, you read an, another 100 or 200 manuals, uh, or 300 uh, well, manuals. Well, more than that. I, I would be willing to bet... I mean, what, what do I read? I probably read uh, and evaluate, on average, let's say four, four to five manuals a week, over 52 weeks. And, and, and almost all those, I read the rules, understand what the game is, and then say no. So, yeah, I'm pretty well-versed. but Right, so you, you actually film, did you just say 200 videos? Uh, well, I cover somewhere between 250 and 300 videos a year. Right, and then you're, you're reading another uh, 250 to 300 manuals. Yeah. So, so, yeah, it's a lot. That said, please, please, please don't go and buy a game based solely on my subjective opinions. Watch the run-through. Um, you know, go on BoardGameGeek and uh, click on... Uh, comments and you know try to get a sense of the gestalt of you know look at people who rated it down rated high you know I mean these are expensive games don't make your decision based just on my one data point but still I feel I'm very confident in my ability to appreciate what's good uh, even if it's not something Jen and I personally would enjoy can I talk so finishes Danny <laughs> more about how can you talk about how my business he can model talk. <laughs> about how my business model has changed oh. the interest in games I choose to review and overall enjoyment of playing the games and by your business model I'm assuming you're talking about what I was just talking about a second ago volume 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 because here's the question okay I'll, this is something I can bring Jen in you remember when we first got into games. Yeah. And we played Agricola religiously. Uh, you know, we'd, we played Agricola so many times. And we played tons of Polyphonies and, and Fresco and, um, you know, all kinds of rage. But we yeah. just played tons and tons. And we played them over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, so you remember what that was like, right? Yes. Um, and, but, but, but 
obviously, I would think you would agree, at that point, we skewed towards heavier. Yes. I mean, like, two of uh, the most common games we played in our early days were Agricola and Carcassonne Castle. I'm sure you were playing both of those. Yeah, I don't think Carcassonne Castle was a heavy game, though. No, 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 that's what I'm saying. But those are two games we played a lot in our first year. A very, very, you know, a moderately heavy game, definitely on the heavier side, and a much lighter weight game. Yeah. At that time, would you, uh, if somebody said, okay, you can only own one of these games... I would have picked Agricola. Of course, yes. And I, that's that was my point. I was didn't want to lead the witness. <laughs> but my expectation was, at that time, we were definitely attracted to the heavier end. And we appreciated lighter games, but it wasn't our first port of call. Does um, that mean the lighter games weren't as chewy back then? Uh, maybe, maybe. Um... I, and that, yes, that could be the other uh, the other point, a reflection of the the shifting quality of what you can get out of a lightweight game. Calico didn't exist five years ago, or and games like it. I think Azul again is. I'm I'm actually really embarrassed when I did the most. Um, I, I I remember last year in Vegas I did that most influential games of the last decade. Yeah. I don't think either of us included Azul on the list. And oh, I, yeah. if I, if we didn't, that was a huge oversight. I think Azul is a hugely important milestone game for the industry. Mm-hmm. It had a huge impact. And I'm really embarrassed if I didn't include that. Um, but anyway, uh, so these days, if uh, it was just those two games, well, if you could only oh. have the, the heavy game or the light game that's crunchy, the fast game that's crunchy or the crunchy game that's heavy and long, and you had to choose one, which way do you think well, you would that? skew? No, like forever? Well, no, I mean, don't get too... I mean, this is just trying a general feel for which way do you think we skew. I think... What, we, what do you gravitate towards? Yeah, I definitely... If you... Every time we sit down to a game, I go, okay, is this a big heavy thing or is this a nice... Quick, light, fun thing. And you didn't used to do that. I did not used to do that. You didn't used to do that when we would play a Vita Lasarda game. You were just like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing thing ever. Yep. Um, But it's it's almost like I just have to prep my brain for what kind of game I'm playing mm -hmm. so that I have... You know, I have it in mind that I'm going to be here for three hours, mm-hmm. or I have it in mind. Oh no, this is an hour game, mm-hmm. and it, so I don't know. I guess I just have to. But I mean, set are, my but I mean, do you skew in a different direction? Do you have a preference? Yes, I prefer the shorter, lighter games. Okay, there's no um, question. I do. And does is that a reflection of volume? Is it a reflection of changing taste? Independent. If we were still just regular people <clears throat> buying, you know, you know, spending a few hundred bucks a year on buying new games. Do you I think, think... No, I think in that case, I would want a longer, more immersive... That would be your natural predilection, yeah. and you just step away from that because you know every week we've got to play five new games. Yep. Or not. Or every, you know, every month we play about probably 20 new games, give or take. Um, yep. Yeah, so that's 100%. It's not a... I think it's a practicality thing yes. with me. Yep. Yeah. Well, then there you go. That would be Jen's uh, perspective, Denny, on how the business model of Rotto Runs Through has changed... Uh, the games we oh, but you asked how to change the change interest in games I choose to review. Right, I mean, I was talking more broadly just about games we choose to play. Although the games we choose to play yeah. directly impacts the games we choose to because I mean, I will often say no to a game that I am personally interested in because I know Jen won't like it, uh, either because of theme or because. Yeah, you know what? What's going on in our lives right now? Jen doesn't have the mental bandwidth to deal with that. She'll just be frustrated. I don't mean I don't mean that in any kind of derogatory way. It's just when a big problem for Jen is when she sits down to the table. Um, it's very difficult for you to turn off <laughs> the, the fifty of- other things that you're juggling at any given time. Yep. 
Uh, Jen is not much for compartmentalization. No, I need to get better at that. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it is our own personal needs, which are you know impacted by the business model that affects the games I choose to cover. That, there's no getting around that. Uh, yeah, and I can't imagine that that was never the case. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I remember when we were in Malta and you... You tell the story that I came up to you and just said, you know what, we're it, I'm burning out. And yes. You, and you kind of went, ah! And yep. then you started becoming a lot more selective. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's just all part and parcel of living and learning and moving on. All right. Well, there you go. Jen did have something to say about it, after all. Woohoo! Thanks for the questions, Denny. All right. Moving right along to an email entitled, Jen Game Questions. Ooh! From Gerald. Okay. Uh, and apparently I don't have to answer this at all, because uh, it was a title, <laughs> Gen Game Questions. Uh, Gerald has never played a role-playing game. And he wonders, have we, okay, so you did include me in it, uh -huh. ever played a role-playing game or Tales of Arabian Nights? Do you think you'd enjoy it, or would you rather watch a movie? Neither Jen nor I have never played a pen and paper role-playing game. I don't think Jen even has a firm understanding of what they even are. Is it like D&D? &D? Yeah, Dungeons & Dragons. Okay. Do you understand what a Dungeons & Dragons experience is? <laughs> yes. I, I. What is your understanding of Dungeons & Dragons? Well, you have a character, and there's a dungeon master, yes. and you... I, it's like EverQuest, except it's on pen and paper. Mm -hmm. And there's a dungeon master. What do you mean, it's on pen and paper? Because somebody's keeping track of like where that treasure chest is, or where that monster was, or which where the corridors are, or whatever. What do you think you're uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons? What would you expect you as a player, not the dungeon master, you as a player responsibilities are? What do you think you do moment to moment while playing Dungeons and Dragons? You stay in character mm -hmm. and you help your your buddies out however you can, and you talk as a team and you try to make decisions to get to whatever the goal is. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. I guess what I'm trying to get to a big part of what makes a role-playing game different than anything you or I have ever played or even experienced is, is not the fact that you're playing a role. I mean, and th there's variable levels of how hard you can go down that road if you have to speak with these and thous or all of that kind of... <laughs> you have to do, you know. show up in costume. Yeah, but it's more the fact that the entirety of the adventure you're on exists in the, com the communal imagination of all the players around the table. There is no board. There, um, you know, this is all... The Dungeon Master is a storyteller. And it's a collaborative storytelling experience. He explains what you see, what you encounter, what you interact with. And then you have, you know, bounded only by the limits of your imagination, decide how to approach those problems and how to overcome those difficulties that the Dungeon Master puts in front of you. Yeah. You know, this and is And that's so what silly. makes it different. We know somebody who is a dungeon master, yes. and why have we never asked him to do this for us? Well, I mean, because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of getting to the... I'm trying to, I mean, to Gerald's question. Uh, have we ever played? No. Uh, do you think you'd enjoy it, or would you rather watch a movie? We have talked about this before, and I've never gotten the impression that you're particularly interested in trying. I would give it a try. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of feel like a bit silly now that I haven't done it yet. Mm-hmm. So. Because what I just described, that's what I was trying to give you a, I was, I was trying to paint a mental picture of what the actual experience is, because it is very different than, mm. and I wanted to get a sense for what you thought well, it was. Well, as we recently discovered, I apparently am a visual um, piece of cardboard chits and how yes. things move around. Well, see, that's the fundamental so difference. I mean, on me. some level, you could say, oh, how is it different than Gloomhaven? Uh, because Gloomhaven, um, you know, you, you don't use your imagination so much as you use your intellect to solve a puzzle. 
Yeah. Um, role playing is not uh, about that. It's I mean, you could be in a, you you could have a situation in a dungeon in Gloomhaven. You could have the exact same one in um in a in a, a tabletop role playing adventure game. And in Gloomhaven, it's all about right. I've got these cards. If I use this one and this one, that'll give me plus two for that one. Yeah. But what if you do that? Oh, your initiative is slower. So you know, and and that's what you gravitate towards. You love that. Yeah. Uh, you love. Okay, I've I've got all these pieces. How do I put them together to solve this problem? And in Dungeons and Dragons, you just, well, what if I try to talk to the monster? Maybe I could actually talk him down. Or, you know, what if, um, you know, maybe I can create a distraction for him. Let's see, I'm particularly good at stealth. So, and and you just literally freeform come up with crazy off the wall ideas mm. that are somewhat bounded and constrained. Although that's really the dungeon master's job to say you came up with an idea, and the dungeon master said, right, okay, I guess that would be a test of your dexterity plus your stealth, and roll some dice and see if you succeed. And then you, and any if you fail, the dungeon master says what happens. If you succeed, either way, he tells you he on the fly creatively has to come up with well, what happens next? What does this monster do in response? Okay. Or what does this shopkeeper say in response when you actually try to bribe them or whatever? Hmm. And and it's not because oh, there's a bribe function, and I could choose bribe on a menu of options. It's right. because you're in a tavern and you literally. Okay, well, I think I'm going to try and bribe him. Um, and then you actually act it out, yeah. and you, and then the dungeon master decides, well, okay, what's your bribery skill, and how much did you put into that when you were trying to talk me into it? And um, so that's the thing. You're saying you would be interested. And now Jen is doing nothing but staring at the um, stain on my shirt, it would appear. <laughs> He's just, he needs a new shirt. Yes, I need to change my shirt. So okay. It's fine. Um, yeah, I think, actually, is there any reason why FO... And us couldn't do this even oh, that's over what, the I mean, phone? Uh, the, the guy you're talking about, that's what he does. He does it over... Um, everybody plays Dungeons & Dragons now. Dungeons & Dragons is probably, I would imagine, going through a surge. Because yeah. it is a game you can play online with other people and much easier. Because there is no board. Yeah. Um, it's just everybody... It's, it's, it's literally... You could be doing this on your Zoom calls you do every week with your family. Those could be Dungeons & Dragons sessions. Where Zane is uh, the dungeon master and setting everything up, and everybody has to work together. It's it's a little bit clunky because, of course, you're not there. Uh, communication is a bit tougher virtually than instead of real person. But yeah. Hmm. Well. To Gerald's question, would you rather do that or watch a movie? Well, I would like to give it a try, mm-hmm. and then I would know if I like doing it or if I'd rather watch a movie. Okay. Well, you know who to call. I do. So we may have an update for you on that next month. Well, that's very interesting. Jen seems very enthusiastic about this now. But we have other games we have to play. We don't have time for this, this other RPG problem. stuff. But it would be Robert so nice. Robin doesn't run through RPGs. I know. But it would be, oh yeah. It just would be nice to hang out with FO again. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem, too, is I, I think for a role, a pen and paper role-playing experience, to it, it is definitely something that benefits from more players. Ah, uh, yes. Um, three, I suppose, would be fine. But I would imagine, having no direct experience with this, other than just having seen role-playing sessions online, that if you are not, if you don't have at least three or four adventuring characters in the party, plus the Dungeon Master, yeah. it loses a lot. No. Do you think we could get Steve and Betsy to join us? I don't know. I wouldn't want to put them on the spot here on this podcast, <laughs> which they may or may not listen to. So well, we'll I just have to ask them. I, all right. Gerald, you've unleashed a monster, it would appear. All righty. Um, and that's it, folks. We are done with games uh, all together. And that means if you don't want to hear about our personal lives, you are done as well. And we will say, once again, as always, thanks for listening or watching, because these are on YouTube as well. Um, have a very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye.
Oh, bye-bye. And uh, <laughs> now, hold on, we'll be right back for the questions and answers of a personal nature, and also Jen ooing and aahing over a bunch of dog pictures. Hang on, we'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okie doke, folks. It's time for the personal stuff. But first, it's time for Jen to review dog pictures. Let's see. Where are they? Where are they? <laughs> they are over here. Uh, here's Josh saying a little something about Humorous and Cheddar. Humorous is a 3.5-year-old, and Cheddar is only five months old. Cheddar is fascinating. Oh, wait. I haven't recorded it yet, but of course... Uh, I already talked about all of this uh, when I did them. Anyway, so Jen's just getting to look at Humorous and Cheddar now. Right. Oh, my gosh. Oh, they're just lovely, aren't they? Yep, those are a couple of cute pups in Christmas poses. Oh. Humorous and Cheddar. Go back to the cheddar. tree. I mean, that looks like a, a Christmas card, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It just looks all magical. Uh, yes, it does. But look oh. at the cool painting of the dog shaking behind the Christmas tree. Yep. That is really cool. Is, uh, that, is that actually your dog? Um, I, I don't know. Josh is not actually here. Josh, uh, this is not a two-way form of communication. <laughs> he, but he can write in next month and say, "I think that must be his own dog." I would assume it's his own dog. That yes. is a really cool painting. Um, oh, it's a painting of the. Oh, I see what you mean in the background. Yes, I did. I didn't even notice. I was just looking at the dog. Um, and for folks who can't see this right now and would like to know what the heck Jen is talking about, go to doggo d o g g o dot rado dot com, where I will be putting these pictures. Uh, folks, if you send pictures of dogs. They are going to end up at doggo.rado.com so that people can hear what tree. Jen is talking about. I think this might actually be a dog tree. Look, there's a bagel yeah. on it. You and need there's... to scoot back a bit or I need to move the microphone because Jen is getting so close to the screen for this <laughs> that she's walked completely away from the microphone. Do yes. you think that's a, a Santa dog? Is there star? All right, let's zoom it in. Okay. All right, Jen's really... And look, it looks like there's all sorts of doggy treats on this. I think this is the dog tree right here. Yes, that's a dog who's very, very happy. With a star there, on his is tail. He's shaking. No, you're looking shaking. at the painting. Yeah. I'm looking at the star on top of the tree. Uh, that could be. I don't know. It's definitely a tail on a star on a... Yeah, and you can't quite see because of the little mini Santa hat. Aww. But anyway, there's a lot more dog pictures. Yep, and there's... Look at this. There's dog, dog things. On, yes, there are dogs and, and there's... Dog. Again, folks, doggo.rado.com if you yeah. want to check oh, look, look, out all of talking. that business. And they've even got the bottom of the tree is wrapped in dog... All right, but anyway, Nick, you're, that's a hard act to follow, but uh, let's take a look at Archie. Oh, my goodness. He is adorable. Did he say what kind of dog Archie is? I, don't, I think he just said this is uh, a good boy named Archie. Oh, Attached, wow. a good boy named Archie. Good boy, that's all that matters. Yeah, all righty. Okay. Then there is Jack, who um, sent oh, along uh, Zuko. Zuko. Uh, puppy Zuko, who Zuko has his own Instagram account, Zuko's mm. uh, Zuko's Palm Skygram. Because he's a, a Palm Ski. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, that makes sense. Zuko Zuko's Palm Skygram. -gram. All righty, for people oh. who want to check out. Although again, you can see him at uh, doggo.com. <sighs> that is adorable. But wait, there's he's out oh, in the snow now. Oh, no. he is adorable. That's a that is a model of a dog. Yep. 
Alrighty. Oh, cute ears. Mm -hmm. Cute little eyes and a button nose. <laughs> oh, yep. and on a purple. Yep. Looks fabulous on purple, darling. As long as you folks keep sending in dog pictures like this, Jen will never stop doing this podcast. <laughs> All right. There you go. That's my my uh, bonus. All right. And um, Wally. I see. No, it wasn't Ooh. Wally. I think there was one more uh, where the picture was embedded instead of an attachment. So that one's going to be a bit tougher to find. Let me scroll through it really quick, see if I can find it. That was all Zuko oh, there. Oh, he is cute. D D D. Nope, maybe that was it. Maybe that was it. Okay, so those are some dogs. There might be some more dogs coming. I don't remember if there were any in the personals. I don't see any attachments on these emails. But anyway, let's now move on to Ben, who just finished listening to the latest podcast and overheard me mentioning uh, that I'd started watching Dark Am I watching with subtitles or dubs? Which do I typically use when watching things in other languages? Um, bad news, Ben. I started watching Dark and I've kind of stopped. Um, which I think I see you wrote a lot more, so I'll talk about that in a second. To your first question, I prefer uh, subtitles, of course. I, I, strictly speaking, I prefer dubs. Um, but they're just never... And, and I, I'm almost willing to forgive, you know, the, the lip-syncing issues, but they're just never done very well. The problem is, I don't understand this, I've always seen this everywhere, that subtitles, whether they're dubbed, where you actually had professional voice actors, professional actors come in and read these lines, why don't these actors say, this is not how people speak in English? You know, they, they, you know, I mean, I appreciate it's not as simple as that because, of course, maybe they have to make slightly cumbersome sentences so that um, the English, which would be much shorter, uh, because English is just shorter than most other languages, I'm not really quite sure why that well, is. Well, we don't have pronouns um, in front of every noun. Well, anyway, yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, it's shorter, and so they have to kind of, you know, make uncomfortable sentences. So I, I would prefer to listen for reasons I'll come up with, but... Um, Seeing as how the subtitles are always kind of cumbersome to read, and the dubs are always very cumbersome to hear, mm. just because of the weird translations, I, 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 it's less weird when I read it. Plus, I do appreciate hearing the original actor. You know, it, it adds more weight to the emotional charge of a scene and stuff like that. So, given my druthers, we did watch on Netflix a German series. I can't remember the name of it. It was the one about the people on the airplane that were constantly flying west. Remember? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And we started watching it with dubs because Jen wanted that, and I, about halfway through, I'm like, I can do this. I got to go back to the subtitles. And so I just started one, and, and Jen was halfway through the episode. Wait a minute, why aren't we watching with the dubs? I was like, do you really care? Because I much prefer the subs. Which do you prefer, subs or dubs? I think I prefer dubs. Why? Because I... Just get, don't want to read? I know, I just get into the scene, and if I'm having to read it, then I can't look around at all the other stuff. That's before. true. Yes, it does draw the eye, necessarily. So that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a problem with them. Um, yeah. Which is why I think I would prefer dubs. It's just, they're never very good. And its I don't think it's the fault of the actors. It's the fault, maybe it is just the fault of trying to get this, get these longer lines off Deutsch or Japanese or whatever it might be um, to try to work with English cadence. It's, it's, it, I'm sure it's a challenging thing. Uh, so anyway, though, uh, you then continued, because 
Ben really likes dark. Uh, I'm not sure how quickly you'll watch the show, and if you're done with the series by the next podcast, what are your thoughts on it? What did you like? What didn't you like? I know it's a lot to keep track of. I utilize a lot of sources online while watching the show. <laughs> D- um, did you use anything online to keep straight, or did you just watch it raw without help online? Since this is spoiler territory, it might be worth talking about at the end of the show. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Okay, Ben, here's where I have to break your heart. I watched the first, I think I made it through the first four episodes, and I just had to stop. Um, <laughs> Was it too dark? No, 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 no. Well, I mean, Jen walked in in the first episode, oh. Oh, yeah. to a particular and it, it, the show was nowhere near that dark it was uh it's it, it, in part it comes back to the sub versus dub the pacing of that show is glacially slow and i don't particularly mind but um i've gotten to the point where most of the tv shows i watch i split my attention between watching the show and chances are reading another board game rule manual. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I'm to the point where I multitask. It's a, a, I, I classify shows by how much of my attention they get. And Jen knows this, yep. uh, that I always have my laptop when we're watching shows together. And some I will pay 75% or 50% or even 25%. And that's really a reflection of how much I like the show. Um, I thought Dark was very cool. I thought the settings were neat. I liked the characters and the situation they found and the mystery that surrounded everything. I thought all that was great. Um, But again, it's glacial. And so what I want to do is give it maybe a 75% or a 60% attention because it's going slow enough that I can definitely do other things. But I can't, because if I'm not paying 100% attention and reading the screen, I can't follow. So I did try watching it with dubs, and uh, all the problems I just said, I was like, oh my gosh, I just can't listen to this. This is so terrible. Um, And I tried giving it 100% of my attention, and it's just too slow. I think you would agree with that. It is a very slow-paced show. And I could be watching that, or I could be watching the latest season of Fargo, which um, is not glacial by comparison. And so I had a very, very hard time getting into it. And so I eventually gave up. And I'm really... I, I, I can see you're so excited. And you weren't alone. A lot of people really wanted me to watch it. And I could see where it was going. I get, well, I think, just based on the first four episodes, what it's about. And I could see how cool it is from all the hints they're dropping. And and then you saying that, yeah, I mean, the game get, the, the show gets so dense that you have to basically use the dark online Wikipedia to keep track of who is who and what's going on. And I, I totally get that. It was already starting to happen in the first four episodes. But yeah, I just... I, I couldn't keep going. Another problem I have is the shows I watch without Jen, I watch after she goes to bed. She generally goes to bed around 10.30 or 11, which gives me an hour, an hour and a half of uh, before I'm getting too tired to continue watching shows at around 1 a.m. And this show was literally putting me to sleep. I could not stay awake. Uh, and so I, I had to give up. Here's my assumption. The show is very well loved, very well received. I'd be willing to bet sooner or later it is going to get a Hollywoodization of it. And I know that's blasphemy and Hollywood will ruin it and all that, but maybe not. Uh, you know, more and more these days, um, you know, really cool prestige content from other countries gets really great prestige treatment over here as well. And at this point, that's kind of what I'm hoping for with Dark. Jen has nothing to say about this at all, um, other than she's leaning really far forward so that the she is the microphone is literally behind her, so it cannot hear her. And now she's maybe really far away from me so that I get all tinny. All you have to do is just lean back and get comfy, honey pie. I'm just enjoying my cup of tea. Enjoy your cup of tea. All right. With our next question um, from Gerard... 
I just want to say Happy New Year uh, to us and the animals, inside and outside. I uh, had fun watching another polyomino game, or uh, uh, I, I like how uh, uh, Gerard calls it a, poly, a polynomial game, um, which is a mathematics um, thing, polynom uh, polynomials instead of polyominoes, but... Uh, <laughs> right. Oh, he just wanted... I'm enjoying watching the show. Thanks. Thank you, Gerald. And it's polyomino. Uh, if I, uh, not a polynomial. <laughs> um, uh, Adam, I'm having a hard time saying, what, what is a polynomial? I know it's... It, uh, Tom Bassel had a really hard time with that. He was constantly, for years, referring to them as polynomials because he was a math teacher in high school before he became Dice Tower full-time. Uh. Um, but, yeah, thank, thank you, Gerald. Okay. There are no questions. But questions next time, Gerald. Come on, man. you got to add to some question. He okay. said non-gaming related. Yep, yep, yep. So... Okay, we have uh, an email from Melanie, and um, this one is going to be very, very sad. Um, you remember I told you about yes, this, Honey Pie, yes. and we both had a bit of a cry about it. Um, as mentioned on Twitter, uh, Melanie's small Yorkie yo-yo. If folks who uh, do go to the doggo.rado.com uh, page have seen a few pictures of uh, Yuki and yo-yo, Anyway, Yo-Yo, who had just turned one, died suddenly. He was going downstairs for the day and collapsed. We'll never know why, because the vet said there was no trauma, seizure, choking. I thought I'd provide a memorial collage to make for the Rado Doggo pics. And folks, please go check that out, because um, Yo-Yo will be missed. By Yuki. Yuki was barking like crazy, but I, I thought it was someone he saw at the window. And he was the first to see Yo-Yo gone. We found Yo-Yo less than 10 minutes after greeting him when he was waking up. Uh, we just got him at the beginning of the pandemic. These last nine months, Yo-Yo brought much joy and happiness to our family, especially to Yuki, who was so lonely, which is why we got another dog for him. The pandemic will be remembered by us as a grim time that was brightened by a brief moment, for a brief moment by the happy and loving presence of Yo-Yo. We're in complete and utter shock. And, uh, and there's the uh, picture of just the sweetest little Yorkie you've ever seen. Uh, anyway, there are questions. Um... How have we coped and remembered our former dogs <laughs> when they have passed? Did they uh, pass of old age or illness? Typical dogs live a long time. Typically, dogs live a long time. Do you plan to have dogs as long as you can, even when they are, even when we are senior citizens? And as dog lovers, would you ever consider having more than two dogs? See, so there's some non-sad questions in there too, anybody. <laughs> and we're both crying hard now. Um, Alrighty, uh, it has been very difficult for us for, with the loss of every dog, um, Scuttle and Tallulah and Dobby. We are lucky in that we had a lot of time with all of them, um, although Tula not near as much as we should have. We lost her suddenly and unexpectedly after five years because she had some weird medical anomalies. We went to the vet. They said, okay, we're going to cut her open and look for it. And when they did, they found cancer. And they said she really shouldn't wake back up. And we didn't expect that. That actually happened in a podcast that we were filming. And, uh, um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, how did we cope with um, it? Uh, uh, Scuttle's dying is one of the things that I think prompted us to move overseas. when Because uh, we were still living in Texas. Yep. And it was very hard. To continue, I mean, it was one of the things, one of the many things that prompted to us deciding it was time to leave, was Scuttle not being there anymore. Um, Dobby, or no, uh, Tula dying uh, was very difficult. It was especially difficult because I, it was kind of like what you went through. Just had no expectation. 
One second she was there, you know, just going to sleep on Jen's lap in the vet because she was just going to get some exploratory surgery. And the next thing she was gone and we had no idea and there was no preparation. And it was horrible. And we dealt with that by how many months was it before we had Gertrude from the same source? I mean, we, um, it was very difficult. Uh, in all three of these cases, like you, it was very helpful that we had another dog who got a lot more love than normal as a result. And, uh, uh, but it was, it was interesting with Tula because, uh, she was both Tula and Gertrude who followed her were related. They came from the same, uh, breeder, the Denny's in, um, who were professional dog show uh, folks, and they, they bred animals and sold them, but they had too many, and so they basically were giving them up for rescue, and we just, I don't know how you found out about Gertrude, or no, you you reached out to them the and said, hi, yeah. we lost Tula, and we're really sad, we thought you should know, here's what happened, because they loved Tula too, it was very hard for them to give us Tula, and, uh, and I don't know if you asked or if they suggested, well, you know, we've got another girl who is related and we got Gertrude, and Gertrude is wonderful. Yeah. And Gertrude help, having Gertrude helped a lot. And the worst was Dobby, losing her. <laughs> I don't know. So, anyway. But that's where Daisy came from. So we just moved forward. Yep. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, let's uh, get to the uh, happier questions. It, we're crying for our dogs, but we actually... I cried for your dogs, too, uh, Melanie, when I saw on Twitter. Anyway, uh, do we plan to have dogs as long as we can, even when we are senior citizens? I mean, it's going to be tougher when we're senior citizens to be able to take care of dogs. What do you think about that, honey pie? We're going to be the um, old dog home. So you're really serious about that. This is something Jen has been talking about for years. <laughs> yep. We're going to have a property that can have 30 or 40 or 70 dogs and... When old dogs need a home, they'll come and live with us. Yep. And we're going to take care of them for the rest of their lives. Considering and... how incredibly softies we are, how do you think we can handle that? I mean, just considering we're... our behavior right now. Because <laughs> we're doing such a huge yeah. gift to them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, that answers these other question. As dog lovers, would you ever consider having more than two dogs? Yeah. Um... But that aside, what about just in general day-to-day -day life? What do you mean? I haven't. For the longest time, let's see. For the longest time, we just had one. We had Scuttle. Yep. And she was an only dog. And I think that, I don't know why it never occurred to us in all that time to have a second dog. Or all those years she we had Scuttle. She was enough. Yep. And we didn't plan on getting Dobby. Dobby was a just very spontaneous, <laughs> weird, quirky circumstance. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and... And so do you decide at that point, okay, from now on, it's always two dogs? No, because remember Scuttle passed and then we had Dobby by herself. Here. Yeah, for again, for quite a while. Yeah. And then, I mean, well, what prompted you to say, okay, we should get another dog? And we went out and got Tula. What prompted that? Well, Dob had some issues and I just thought. Oh, and was... you were, it was a preemptive thing for you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so Dobby and Tula then were together for many, many years. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> And now we have, obviously, Gertrude and Daisy. So, but why not three? Why only two? Why only pairs? Why not trips? Triples? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you're ready. Well, mainly, I think it's mainly that we travel. And we like to travel. And two dogs is manageable. Mm -hmm. And three dogs is maybe not as manageable. Mm -hmm. And 
things have changed a little bit since we moved back to the States, but we're intending to move back to Europe at some point. And I think it's just having a manageable amount of little feet pattering about. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so, but are you saying you do want to upgrade to trip three then? Well, we had three for a while, remember? Yeah, I know, I know, and I know. And did Stacey that make you think that three is the right number? Yeah, I think that that was really nice. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Except I have two hands. So <laughs> that is a problem. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I would definitely, I would love to have four or five or six dogs. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, but it's, the it's, problem the, it's the practicalities. Having, it, once we settle down mm -hmm. and stop traveling, then okay. that is when we get lots of dogs. All righty. Uh, how, do you, how do you anticipate that working? I mean, are they, I mean, is it just like a big mongly, mongol crew of outdoor dogs or they all no. just live indoor and outdoor? Or what is your thinking when you say 50 or 70 dogs? Oh, well, that might have been a little bit much. I uh -huh. don't know. But I'm just, I'm just seeing that. Um, yeah. I... Well, I know you took a lot of inspiration from that show that we watched recently that was basically about six different dog kennels in all around Austin, Texas. Oh, people yeah. People just volunteering. Yep. Yeah. Doing good stuff. Doing mm -hmm. good work. Yeah. I don't, I don't know quite how it'll work out. It's going to depend on our house and where we're living and all of that kind of stuff. But, and you know, too, if, if the dogs that we take on are... We're outside dogs. They're mm -hmm. not going to want to live in the house all the time. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I just, I think it's going to be a case-by-case -case basis and we'll just see how it works. Okay. All right. Well, Melanie, our thoughts are with you. Yeah. And um, as tried as it sounds, it does get better. And uh, we're glad you still have Yuki. And I hope Yuki can find another friend. Yeah. All right. Okay, Tina. That's a tough one to follow. Let's see. Tina wishes us happy uh, Christmas. A happy Christmas. And a very happy new year. Yay! Uh, Tina must not be American because she didn't say Merry Christmas. Nope. So, That's a giveaway. Yep. Uh, two questions. How long does it take to come to the point of filming a game? Hey, this is kind of... Oh, which means I already answered that in the game stuff, which I haven't done yet. So forget about that one. Moving on. Uh, all right. So that's filming stuff. That's game stuff. As an additional, you may choose to speak live on this or not. I would like to say your work is great. You're very polite in your work, your comments, your approach. I, I, I remember I just came in a month ago. I don't know where this is going. Um, maybe I should read ahead. Maybe I should scan ahead. All right. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I can't, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'd like to say your work is great. You're very polite in your work, your comments, your approach to reviews. And I know the internet is a very mean place. People, for some reason, like to make negative comments on things which have no impact to them. I mean, if you don't like something, you can just not say it and move on. And positive comments are not made as often. So this is my very positive review to you. Um, I'll also pre I also appreciate me taking a... Or, I, I will speak on her. I, I will, or should I... Should I Turn yous into me's when I read these. If what do you folks think? If it's clear, I think it's... I don't know. Clear. I don't know. I mean, I do it to try and make it more natural, but I do wonder if I make things less clear by not just reading it literally as written. I'm going to read it literally as written. Every time she says you, of course she's talking about me. I'm not going to put me's in. All right. I also appreciate you taking a stance on things happening in society and the world we live in. It's an important element, at least for me, to watch and back someone. Uh, I don't understand the approach many board game and not only groups have that anything not related directly to board gaming is not welcome. I mean, we all live in the same world and it's crucial, again to me, that the discussion on such important issues is not suppressed but rather open. Loving your work. Keep it up. Have a great year. So, I, let, I put this in here because I thought I just wanted Tina's words to reach out to people because I agree 100%. Uh, there's always such an immediate backlash 
to um, you know anything important being <clears throat> discussed. Mm. And I will admit, I am sympathetic to it because those discussions can be fraught with social peril um, if they reveal schisms that were easier just left unexamined. Um, when you know, all of a sudden you find out, oh, you voted for Trump. I don't know if I can keep playing games with you anymore. Or vice versa, for that matter. Um, I thought you voted for Trump. I thought you were one of us. I don't know if we want to, if we need to keep mm-hmm. hanging out. You're one of those uh, AOC voters, you know, or whatever it might be. And that is a tricky, dangerous thing. It is tough water to navigate, and sometimes it's easier just to say, "Hey, look, let's just all play a game." And I agree with that. And I'll be honest; that's uh, I, 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 there are people that are in my life tangentially that I don't necessarily agree with all their worldviews, and it's easier just it's easier to just let that go and focus on the things that bring us together, and that's all very cool too. So I certainly, I guess, I don't blame anybody for uh, not wanting to have their game night. Ruined by politics. Uh, but my show is a very different thing. Um, and I do. I have a platform that reaches, well, literally hundreds of thousands of people uh, every year. Um, what is it? No, no, no. Millions of people every year. I think I get like a hundred th- or a half a million views every month. Half a million people look at me wow. every month and see me on screen. And I, the more I thought about it, the more it was ridiculous for me not to, to, to advertise things that I think are very important. And it is ridiculous to see people respond so negatively to that. Whether, whether they agree or not, I, mean, I think most of the time they respond negatively because they don't agree um, that I'm pushing my politics and why can't gaming just be about gaming? Well, because there is more to life than gaming. And I, I think it would be a shame not to use my platform to advocate for a better world as I see it. So, um, anyway, though, I agree with your point of view, Tiffany. I thought you were uh, very well spoken, and I just wanted to put that out there. I haven't recorded your question about your game thing, but I'll get to that later. And Jen says, what? You just called her Tiffany. Her name's Tina. Tina! I do apologize for that. I'm Paulo today. All right. <laughs> Thanks, honey. Bye. Um, Matt says he just saw her Facebook post about the Century Golem Edition with the Terry Pratchett quote, Words in the heart cannot be taken. And that made uh, Matt wonder. So, okay, see, should I just read this verbatim? I, I mean, Jen never sees this. Yeah. I always take these and I, like, I, I cut them up and I edit them on the fly. <laughs> so it just feels more conversational. Yeah. It's like I'm telling a story that I then respond to. He didn't say, and then, I, you know, I, I'm just... Yeah. I, should, what do you think? Should I just read these verbatim? I think you should do what you can have already been doing because it's more interesting. Well, see, that's what I think. I mean, and it's no no offense to Matt, but I, I think it just if if I take what they wrote and make it my own, I think it just has more of a natural flow. Yeah. But I'm curious what you folks think. Is, is it frustrating and confusing as all get out <laughs> when I mix my pronouns? Because uh, I don't. I, sometimes I mix it up, you know, and I forget. Oh, when he said me, he actually meant himself as opposed to or you know, whatever. But you usually will say, and then Terry said this, or yeah. you know, whatever. So. All right. I think it's fine. All right. Let's wait and hear what the folks think. Well, you know what? Um, right. I, when I when I started reading this, I'm, did I say, I just, you know, did I say, Matt says he just saw my Facebook post. I probably said that. When, in fact, J- Matt wrote, just saw your Facebook post about. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's kind of immaterial. And, in theory, I'd be a little bit less prone to goofs because I am a bit scatterbrained if I just read them as written. Okay, fine. I don't know. Well, do it this way. Do it do it verbatim this right. time and see what people think. Just saw your Facebook post about Century Golem Edition with the Terry Pratchett words. 
Uh, words in the heart cannot be taken. Are you and Jen Terry Pratchett fans? If so, do you have a favorite book of his? Or did you just look up a random golem quote, smiley face? Here's a Pratchett quote for Jen. Sometimes glass glitters more than diamonds because it has more to prove. Mm. What do you think of that quote? Mm. Sorry, I just had a big gulp of tea. <laughs> um, I like it. All right. Um, I have never read any Terry Pratchett books. I think we saw a couple of the BBC specials they did. Um, you know, they were they were kind of doing a, a spate of them a, a few years ago. Um, it's it's not, it's on my list of things to do because I've certainly read all of Douglas Adams' works, and I suspect as much as I enjoyed them, I would enjoy Terry Pratchett's work as well. But I've never gotten around to it, which is doubly ironic because I know his daughter. Uh, Rihanna Pratchett. Uh, well, actually, I'm, she's a friend of a friend. And I actually had lunch with her once. And at the time, I don't even think I appreciated just how big a deal her dad was. Say, oh, your dad's an author, right? Um, you know, <laughs> she, she's an author, too. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit doubly ironic. I certainly appreciate everything he's done. And someday I hope to read his collected works when I stop reading all these rule books, which is how I spend all my time reading. And um, yes, it was a, literally a random Gollum quote. I just did a... Whenever I do my Twitter post to renounce a new thing, these days I just do a Gollum quote or Darwin quote or whatever, and I look through a few pages till I find one. And honestly, I just really loved that. I, I love the poetry of that line. And um, I just thought, you know, even though... I mean, it was weird. The word Gollum wasn't in it at all. But I could tell just because the propensity for it to show up, um, and it was apparently it's the theme of the entire book, how, how meaningful it would be. And I thought, okay, I will use this. People either won't know what it is, and they'll say, well, what does that have to do with golems? And maybe it'll prompt them to go out and look it up, because you can just search for that quote, and that might lead them to discover something. And I figured for Pratchett fans, they would just appreciate hearing it. It'll give them the kind of the warm fuzzies. And it's just why I use that quote. I do find myself switching more and more away from um, silly goof joke quotes to quotes that have meaning and heft and weight. Um, just that, uh, Maybe it's because I tend to find them more easily. I'm not quite sure. But I still do plenty of song quotes, too. <laughs> All righty. Uh, and next news, we are, we're on to Gerald. Number one. That's a, that's a, that's a game review question. Number two. That's a game review question. All right. Okay, oh yeah, number three, I think. All right, no, no, number two is into non-game stuff. All right, no, no, I'm sorry, number one even is. Yeah, uh, this is all fine. Okay, yeah, and these are all personal questions. The name of the email is personal questions. I just didn't read the entire sentence. Stop editing. I'm just reading it as written. Number one, some game publishers reported increased sales during 2020. You can see why I stopped there, because I thought this was going to be a game question. No. The, the, he continues. How, are how is the glass sale business oh. during 2020? I'm guessing he's asking about my That's glass That's a question business. for you. Um, the glass has more to prove. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you what. I bought a lot of glass last year. <laughs> so <laughs> I know that a lot of glass people's businesses are doing just fine. Because I why did you uptick? I mean, and she, she means literally buying glass art from other makers. No, actually, I mean, I bought a whole bunch of oh, raw... You were buying lots of glass art from lots of makers, were you not? Oh, I did, I did do a bit of... Um, Supporting of other artists, but mm -hmm. no, I mean, what I wanted to say is I bought a lot of new colors Okay. this this year. I mean, I bought like <clears throat> hundreds of pounds of glass, uh -huh. and so uh, that did, did really good. In fact, it's actually carried through to this year because I bought so much of this particular kind of glass. It's called Creation is Messy, and the lady who owns the company actually lives, oh, I don't know, not too far from here on the other side of Portland, and she belongs to a Northwest Glass Friends group that I belong to. Anyway, so we got talking, 
about all of these new colors that I bought when she um, brought them into the into existence last year and I am now doing testing for her as a tester to make sure that um, her new colors either are or aren't as expected or what they do or whatever anyway so it's been a lot of fun actually to become a a glass tester for a manufacturer so and that is a direct result of um, spending a lot of money on glass last year <laughs> I think I, I did a quick look at my taxes and I basically I made like a thousand dollars or something last year because of, of what a thousand dollars or some very small amount because I reinvested in my oh, business. Oh, okay, yes. So, so yeah. your 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 was it your net right yeah. grosses grosses everything I've sold and net is after your expenses. Yeah, which so I had you a lot pretty, of expenses. So you, so you had a bad year. Yes, because you were doing infrastructure investment. Yes, there you go. Yes. All right. Um, and I I had a pretty. I would say I had a pretty good year um, mm -hmm. for what it was. I well, yeah, on the whole, were yeah. you having more or less sales, or I, it seemed to me it was just kind of normal. Yeah, I would say it was it was re a relatively close to normal amount of Etsy sales. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, I, I I have that information in my stats. It was it was within ten percent of mm -hmm. the prior year, um, but uh, we usually do a couple more actual shows, conventions. Oh, yes. So, okay, yeah. No. Uh, you obviously had a huge loss because... Yeah, because I you, didn't do that. Well, that's not true. You did. Um, had one in Vegas yeah, in, in February, February. And then the other one was But you would, you would have had... Yes. And so, so the thing is, if you ended up making roughly the same as you did, as you normally would do, but you did not do those conventions, that meant you must have had a market uptick in online sales because you do a lot of business at those conventions. Yes, I have. I have good shows. Mm -hmm, yeah. So. So without those shows, but still being within ten percent of overall. Well, I think that what happened is that people didn't see me at shows, and so they visited my website. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that's what it is. Okay. Oh, so. so you think you were still selling to the same people largely? Um. Yes, I imagine. Okay. So. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. So. Yep. Number two. To save the globe, according to the World Economic Forum's Global Economic Reset pr Proposals, would you be willing to give up owning property, just renting everything instead, and to give up some other personal choices like raising CO2 farting farm animals? Smiley face. Uh, so they, did ha they, they have a nice fancy ad that says, you'll own nothing and be happy. So you have to give up the property that you've, you own and pay somebody rent? I, I don't understand. I mean, I I am I'm intrigued. I have not heard about this this, this uh, uh, you know the, the, these reset protocols at all. Yeah. Um, I I could say I didn't. I mean, the entire time we lived in Malta, we were renting. Yeah. And honestly, I didn't miss owning. And in fact, I kind of liked it better because if there was a problem, it wasn't our problem to fix. Um, we would just call the landlord, and he'd have to, you know, pay the money to have the plumber come out to deal with the pipes. Yep. Whereas we just had a plumbing emergency this morning, and we're like, okay, we could get it. That'll be really expensive. Right, let's see if we can figure it ourselves out. Ugh, this is such a pain. So honestly, I didn't mind not owning at all. I don't know how you feel about that. Um, I like owning because then nobody can tell me I can't do something. Mm -hmm. And I like. But did did that? Does that? I mean, in our time, and well, okay. No. Well, Obviously, there were strict restrictions when we were living in Emdina, yeah. but that's because it's a World Heritage site, and you know we were basically living in a in an ancient castle that was also the biggest tourist site of the entire country. Yep. But I mean, living in the apartment out in Marcelform. Yeah, we didn't have any. I mean, I don't feel like we really had to compromise anything. Nope. Our landlord was awesome and let me have chickens in the backyard, and uh, obviously we had our dogs and anything that we wanted to do to the flat, he agreed to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
You know, like I wanted a little water heater underneath the kitchen sink because it took forever to get hot water from the hot water did heater. Did we pay that or did he? He did. All right. Yeah, it was just all part of, I think once a year, we would go over, you know, anything that we wanted to improve about the, and yeah, there was just a couple little things. I mean, there was things that we'd buy, like I wanted a dryer. Um, so he paid half for the dryer and I paid half. Okay. Uh, oh yeah, because dryers are not a common everyday. They are a luxury in They Malta. are definitely a luxury. And, you know, to be honest, it was a luxury. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. It yeah. was, and it's nice to think of something as a dryer as a luxury. Yeah. It is a luxury item. We could hang things out on the line. Well, but in Malta, with three, whatever it is, 320 days of Sunshine. sun a year, yeah. uh, it's a bit more. Yeah, you really don't need <laughs> a dryer. It, it, shame on you for not using the dryer that you know, comes built into the entire country kind of a thing. You like your towels all soft. Yes, yes. Uh, hanging them out to dry does not make them nice and fluffy. They are very crispy <laughs> at that point. But anyway, yeah. So there was, there was things like that. But yeah, on the whole, I thought it was great. But... I'm not sure, like, if when we move back to England, would I want to sell the house that we own and rent somewhere? I don't think so. Well, I don't know if we want to move back to that house anyway, because it's three stories. Yeah, well, the longer we wait, the harder that's going to get. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know. The answer to that is I don't know. And I don't understand this economic reset proposal. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about it. Everybody who owns property just loses it. Well, I, I don't understand what the point of it is. I mean, it's, in theory... I would imagine, my guess, based on nothing more than what you've said here, is the proposal is there is already enough housing in the world to house everybody mm. and still have tons of free space, but it's private ownership that stands in the way of everybody truly having a place. And so if, I don't know, I guess this is presu presuming government seizes all property and then distributes it equitably, and whatever that would be, which would be a problem in and of itself, that everybody is homed and we don't have to keep on building more stuff and, um, you know, Dumping more CO2 into the atmosphere with all that concrete, which is the worst. I mean, the concrete's impact on the environment is worse than cars, worse than planes, etc., etc. Yeah. So I'm assuming it's something along those lines. So, hey, uh, how about we just get to our Star Trek future where all of your basic needs are met automatically and you don't have to just keep building stuff um, for the sole purpose of owning it when you don't need to own it. Right. I guess. But then he talks about renting, which means there are still owners. I'm not quite sure. I, I need more information, Gerald. Yeah. yeah all I, which is why I'm saying I, I can say okay. I, I liked renting. I actually, I would almost go as far as say I preferred it. I wonder as, as we get older, but you know, I don't think, uh, I don't think anybody's going to want to rent a house to us in our 50 old dogs. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yes. So, There's going to be a conflict there. Yeah. That'd be tough to find. I'm not sure, but I don't think that um, chickens are heavy-duty carbon dioxide producers. Well, let's take a look. Uh, it tends to be CO2 ruminants. CO2 impact of chickens. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Um, Choose chicken over to beef. To have a smaller uh, carbon footprint, chicken over beef. How does it relate to poultry? Global warming. That pound of chicken results in an emission of... of seven pounds of CO2. And that uh, compares to... I don't know. I mean, this is just a random... Oh, here, no, there it is. Carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide. Yeah. We we yeah. don't know enough about this to answer that question. But I will say that I think owning chickens is a very smart thing environmentally. First of all, I am using all of the poop to make compost with and grow my own vegetables. Mm -hmm. And oh my gosh, you should see just how... Uh, it's insane. It went crazy. Yeah, the, I've never uh, seen anything quite beds. like that. Yeah, they the tomatoes were like monsters mm -hmm. last year. And there were so many, I just eventually had to give it, up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just couldn't get to them all. 
um, which has never happened. All before. our neighbors got a lot of free tomatoes. Yeah, a and, well, lot and of free squash yeah. and um, anyway. So I think growing locally is a very wise move environmentally, and a few chickens helps with that, mm -hmm. and also gives great protein at a very low cost. So uh, you're gonna have to <laughs> give me a lot more information about carbon dioxide farting farm animals. All right. Before I will give up my chickens. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. All right. Number three. If your answer was no, would you accept it if law... Well, again, our answer is we don't know. You didn't tell us enough. It's a very vague sentence. But anyway, uh, would you accept it if lawmakers just brought in the laws without a vote, like the laws to protect people from possible COVID-carrying people, as Prince Charles and a lot of other respected politicians have recently said at a conference that, protected, that protecting the globe is even more important and that the pandemic is, quote, a great opportunity to make laws for the economic and societal reset. Uh, seems like it's a possibility that could happen soon before the pandemic uh, ends, according to them. Wow. Uh, whatever year what the that heck? will be with reported mutations I and guess all. we need to Google Prince Charles <laughs> and uh, great opportunities to make laws for this. That, that is I sounding don't know. a bit... I, honestly, though... I th these are very out of quote uh, out of context third hand quotes. Gerald, I don't know if it has necessarily uh, painted the full picture. I mean, because we're, we're totally in the blind. We have not heard about this at all. No, and I've been reading the paper for almost a year. Yeah. Or, well, the New York Times anyway. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I would have thought I would have heard a glimmer of something like this going on. Yep. Um. I do think uh, protecting the world is very important, and I, I mean, I, I, can't, I cannot speak to the particulars you're talking about here because you just haven't given us enough information. Um, I mean, I think you, by your own, uh, by your own admission, I think you would have to agree that that's a pretty cherry-picked quote. A quote, great opportunity to make laws for. I mean, w without talking about what the laws are, um, you know, what what the intentions are, and all that. I do think ultimately. Well, I mean, well, I mean, no surprise if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know um, we are big proponents of UBI, and UBI as an equal as an equalizer um, for all members of society because literally just uh, we we are rich enough as a society. There is enough resources um, that are generated and just left on the vine, rotting in garbage cans. Uh, there's so much uh, empty, vacant property; it's ridiculous. And I think. Everyone having cash, um, enough cash on hands to meet their basic needs, is going to be go a great, a long way towards addressing these things. Um, you know, people who are homeless, who uh, suddenly have all their basic needs met, have enough money to fill all those vacancies that are everywhere. Um, you know, as as a, a simple example, and um, I think that. You know that's a first step towards anything. Uh, you know, rather than punitive, you know, rest you know, uh, restricting laws, I I'd like to first of all, uh, you know, approach things from a let's give everybody a floor to stand on because then once everybody's comfortable, everybody's situated, we can it'll be easier. Uh, there will be less re restriction, less friction uh, against movements to try to address bigger issues that right now. Uh, most people in the world fundamentally do not care about because they've got their own problems. And I mean, I, the first rule, the, the the reason government exists is to solve people's problems, to ensure um, domestic tranquility uh, uh, and all the rest of it. So 
I mean, that's where I'm kind of starting. And honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in what this is. I, I, if I remember to, although we've still got a bunch of questions, so I probably won't, I would definitely be inclined to... If, if, if you would put a link in this, I'd probably follow the link. Not right now, but afterwards. But um, And I might still anyway. But yeah, uh, that's kind of where I come down... I guess just on a high level philosophical perspective. Okay. Um, My- I mean, the question is: Should worldwide governments start basically seizing land and just redistributing them um, in the interest of trying to stop mankind's self-destructive, uh, you know, racing toward teetering yeah. towards the end? I mean, we're we're going to lose. There's not going to be snow. You know, the Arctic ice is going to be gone by 2050. All these kinds of issues, and that's going to have such huge impacts around the world. Should we be taking truly drastic steps? And should we be using COVID as an opportunity to do it? Well, I don't it's know. interesting. To me, I think that the biggest problem is the huge discrepancy between the super rich and everybody else. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there should be limits on how much money any one person can have. And, you know, let's be, <clears throat> let's be crazy and say uh, $50 million. Mm-hmm. Anybody cannot spend 50 million unless you're getting gold-plated airplanes Mm -hmm. or something and nobody needs gold-plated airplanes so to me that is a better use of everybody's energy is redistributing this crazy amount of wealth that has been so concentrated in so few people who aren't using oh no no that is actually not true because there are a lot of very rich people who've taken the giving pledge right, and but the, are redistributing their wealth that way. But the problem is the problem that's fundamentally to that is that means um, we are relying on altruistic individuals yeah. that we have no say in the matter. The point of government is um, it reflects the wills and needs of the people. Not the will and need of a few people, you know, at the very, very top, who decide how this money goes. If that money is yeah. available to the government, we, um, uh, you know, who are responsible for choosing those who represent us, are also indirectly responsible for how that money gets distributed. And I do think ultimately that is the way it should go. It should not be just based on the largesse and whims of a few people at the top to decide who gets it and who doesn't. We, as a society, because it's our society that generated all that wealth. Um, And it's just, like you said, it's concentrated in a few people who have found ways to, um, you know, know, by hook or by crook, clever, smart things and and good on them. Yes, you can be a 50 millionaire. Yes. Enjoy it. Yeah. And after you're 51 millionaire, it's 100% taxed. I'm totally fine with that, too. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, you can still do a heck of a lot of philanthropy with $50 million. Yep. If you want to do that, if you still want to be one, and or if not, you just keep it for yourself and you just enjoy it. Yeah. That's fine. Fifty million dollars, you earned it. You go for it. I just dropped a stitch. Damn oh it. no! And I mean, to anyone who would say, "Yeah, but you can't." Government's the worst. Government's implicitly corrupt. We can't count on them. We're much better off having vote uh, in better people. Then, well, yes, because my point is. One of the things that leads to a less representative government that is more problematic is the fact that every, um, is, you know, the again, this extreme discrepancy. If government were providing for the basic needs of everyone, yes, they could lift themselves up from their day-to-day grind and all the things that fill their lives with dread and stress and maybe take a wider view of, oh... I don't have to worry about making my rent next month. I don't have to worry about my kids uh, going hungry. Mm-hmm. 
I could actually start focusing on something else. Right. And I think that's immediately going to lead to more civic engagement. Yes. And the more civic engagement you have, the more civil a society you will have and the better government you will have. Yep. Um, because people have enough time to realize, oh, those people we keep voting for, they've been lying to us my entire life. Yep. I just never had the, I just took it on faith that they weren't lying to me. But now that I've actually got the time to invest in something other than just my bare subsistence yep. living yep. Um, by Western, by, by, this, by the standard of whatever your society is, uh, I think that's what could ultimately lead to stronger. So, I mean, yes. yeah. And people who are so afraid, well, if people get money, then they're just going to sit around on their butts all day. They're not going to. They're going to get involved. They're going to be making changes and choices in their communities and maybe nationally even. Yeah. And like, you know what? Some of them will sit around on their belts all day. And who are you to judge them? Who cares? Why don't you worry about yourself, Jack? Um, is always my response there, too. But anyway, yeah, that, I, mean, I think, again, you haven't given us enough here, Gerald, to really understand what the argument is. Um, I think both Jen and I are probably kind of philosophically aligned that there's yes. another way to go about it. Yes. That um, I think you can make more uh, better civic-minded and active uh, citizens that will, that means you won't have to dictate to them. They will be willing to make the sacrifices for the greater good if they can pull their heads up and, um, you know, from... The, from subsistence the, the, living. Yeah, yeah. Yes. All right. Uh, heavy. Indeed. This has been a heavy episode. All right, Marco, let's have some light stuff. Your thoughts on the new season of Discovery. I love it. And now it's not me saying I love it. That's Marco saying I love it because I'm just reading things verbatim now, remember? <laughs> what does Jen think about it? Oh, we have one more episode to go. Yeah. Uh, we're in the middle of the big epic three-part finale. So okay. we haven't seen that. Um, but what are your thoughts about Discovery Season 3, Honey Pie? I... La, 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 la. Jen is I'm now watching her my... waveform <laughs> on Audacity, having fun watching it go up and down. Yeah, I'm just buying myself a little bit of thinking time. All right, I'll go first. You go first. I love it. I think it's fantastic. Um, let's see. Uh, oh. Yeah, it's almost over. Um, and it's it's been on for months now. So the basic premise of season three... Oh, man. That is... Okay, we're, we'll, we'll put you to the end, Marco. We'll come back to that. Um, we'll, we'll, all right, and then you're, you're talking about... All right, so we'll come back to Star Trek Discovery at the end, giving Jen even more time. All right, next question. Why do you think there are so many haters, Star Trek or Star Wars, when creators try something new? I don't understand why people cannot just enjoy the entertainment. I don't know, man. That is a really good question. Um, it is... It does speak to some really fundamental human drives, lizard brain behavior. Um, I, that probably goes deep back to our origin as a species because You change, want to be able to trust and be in consistency. Yeah. Change will get you killed on yeah. some deep, uh, you know, subconscious level that, and we are still simple animals. We're, we're smarter than everybody else, but we have still have these, we are still driven by these biological imperatives. And I think people complaining about, well, this isn't my Star Wars... I think more than anything else is probably a reflection of that. Um, that you know, and it's and it's ironic because change is the catalyst for everything great about humanity, but we at the same time are afraid of it, uh, even though it inevitably or, or not inevitably, but almost not always, but most of the time leads to something better. Um, and if you're willing to accept and embrace change as a good and positive thing. And I think most people don't 
uh, not for any conscious reason, but be, I, I, that's my only possible explanation. It's a lizard brain thing. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I just mean that we have drives deep down in our amygdalas and stuff like that <laughs> that we don't, or we aren't even consciously aware of. Um, you know, it's interesting that I read somewhere within the last six months, some studies that had shown the fundamental uh, differences of brain chemistry amongst liberal and conservative-minded people. And that there are demonstrable, measurable changes in the structures of their brains. Not saying one is better than the other, but uh, that, you know, that it's, and it's not proven either, you know, it, it, correlation, causation, all those things. But they were definitely interesting that they're, that, you know, things that we hold so near and dear to us might be a reflection of literally the way our brains are constructed. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that ultimately leads to whether we tend towards, uh, you know, a conservative or a liberal ideal in how we think the world should be run. And, you know, if that's the case, and I'm not saying it is, but it was really interesting reading, do a Google search, you'll find it really quickly, then it, it really is it any surprise that some people embrace and love when something changes in their favorite franchise and other people despise it and, um, you know, and recoil from it instinctually. I, I, I think on some level, we just can't control our crazy brains. Uh, do you have anything to say to that, honey pie? Or you're still trying to fix that stitch? Damn it. She's trying to recover it, folks. She's not giving up. It's just getting worse and worse. It's it, getting more squirrely. It's a whole scarf. I'm not taking the whole scarf out. Anyway. Okay. Um, uh, no, I don't think I really have anything further to say about that. All right. Then, honey, why don't you like sports? Or, oh. Yeah, no, I, I'm reading right. Well, yeah, I, but I put it to you so I could use the pronouns correctly. Why don't you like sports? Is there some sport you get excited for? Does Jen like sports? Okay, me first. Uh, no, there's no sport I've ever found myself interested in. You know, even you know tangential sports. You know, I mean, rock climbing is a sport, and I hate it. I just think it's a dumb waste of energy. Um, and I don't begrudge anybody who thinks it's a very important part of their lives and it gives them purpose and meaning and all that. Um, to me, you know, like a few. A decade ago, there was a spate of movies about rock climbing, mm -hmm. and we we're supposed to be really in, in, invested in the dramatic. And I'll, I'm watching this movie the whole time, thinking, "Why they? Why did you go up there and do that? You're so dumb. I I, I don't care. I I I I, I can't I can't br bring myself into the drama of this because there's better things you could have done with your life. Um, and I know that's unfair because obviously, again, people find meaning, and it's it's not for me to judge them. I just can't bring myself to like it. I am. Um, Sports are implicitly tribal. It's it's woven into their DNA. They are about conflict. I think maybe that that's something to do with it. That you know, or forget about on the audience side. That you know, of course, inevitably leads to rivalries and riots occasionally, and all the rest of it. Um, and sure, I'm, I'm fans will say, "Oh, it's just all good natured. It's part of the human experience." And sure, that's fine. But I, it's not something I find engaging. And it's all driven by the fact that, oh, it's about paying a whole bunch of people a lot of money to butt heads against each other. And I, there's just nothing compelling to me about that. I do object to how much they make. It seems like an, a ridiculous amount of money. Fa uh, you know, circling back to your earlier yep. um, thing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, pay them a million dollars a year or something. I'm fine with that, but 10 million or even more, whatever, it just seems absolutely crazy to me. So you don't like sports specifically because of the cult of personality and the industry that's built up around it? I mean, as a kid, I find yes. that very distasteful. Did, did yeah. you like sports as a kid? I liked playing sports. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you didn't care about professional sports as a kid. Yeah. I'm sure your dad was watching football and you never said, oh, I'm going to sit on the couch and watch football with my dad. 
Well, the same way that you said you were a Packers fan or something? I was not anybody. I was not a fan, but, but I've mentioned in your, the past yeah. that all my friends were, uh, had their favorite football teams and I had to have a favorite football team. So I said mine were the Rams because the Rams. I was an Aries and uh, the Aries, the sign, a Ram is yep. a sign of an Aries. And I thought, oh, that's my Zodiac. So that'll be my team. And I didn't care about it at all, and, but I just had to say something. Yep. Well, same thing for me, except mine was the Dallas Cowboys because I liked their cheerleader outfits. Okay. That was it. All right, there you go. That was how invested I was in the process. <laughs> so, no, and my my dad, unfortunately, is still big into football, and there's lots of people who are, but, you know, I just I just don't care. It has absolutely nothing to do with me, mm-hmm. so I don't care. Yeah, well, I, I, I will take back what I said right up front. I think there is one sport that both Jen and I can get very invested in and do, and it uh, gives us, or I, I, I can't speak for her, but it certainly gives me maybe a bit of insight into the joy that sports brings to so many people. And that's challenges on Survivor. Oh, yeah. Those are effectively really weird, far-out sporting events. And uh, sometimes they can be so incredibly compelling. Um, because I, I don't care. I, I Honestly, I, I mean, if, if, if there were to be sports leagues based on these Survivor challenges, I would not care one iota. But I do care because of the stakes that are involved um, um, with these people that I come to know, and I appreciate how important it is for them. I appreciate it on a human level. Uh, you know that the human drama that's involved uh, is is very very captivating, and I can and I appreciate. I suppose for somebody who's really into sports, they probably appreciate it at some level on that human level because they know who the players are, they know what their backgrounds, they know what schools they went to, and how they were recruited, and rivalries and histories and all that, and um, you know, and and Survivor has all of that surrounding stuff, but it just packs it densely into a tight little whatever is a Survivor Season 12, 14 episodes or something like that. Yeah. And so it, it just like supercharges and turbocharges it. And I don't know how you feel about them, but I can find myself, not always, but sometimes getting hugely invested in the outcome of Survivor Challenges. And for folks who don't know what I mean, Survivor is a TV, it's a reality TV show where a bunch of people are put on a deserted island and they have to basically form little mini-societies amongst themselves and then they also have to compete with each other to um, you know, get reward challenges to get stuff for their societies and also to avoid getting kicked out of the show. And so that's basically what it is and I find those to be often some of the most compelling and exciting drama I can imagine. Um, I will say yes, I agree with all that. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's the sport you like, also. <laughs> well, I was gonna say I like ice skating. Okay. I think ice skating is just. But not to do with the sport, right? Just the beauty of it. Just the beauty of it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And you don't care who wins or loses. No. No. Again, I just I'm you know we we are not <sighs> pop culture follower people. I, you well, know you're I, not. I very much follow pop yeah, culture. Yeah, but we're not like. Uh, celebrity watchers or we don't care who's wearing what pair of shoes and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it. It's just, I'm busy with my life. I don't particularly care what is going on in that ice skater's life or that football player's life or whatever. It just has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. I have plenty going on in my life to keep me busy. Yeah. So I guess that's, maybe that's selfish. Maybe that's short-sighted. <clears throat> maybe that's myoptic. But mm-hmm. no, I just, I figure those people are all just people like I am. And they, while they're good at something, they just want to live a normal life too. They don't want to be followed by paparazzi and have everybody digging into their garbage and 
talking about them online and stuff or maybe they do I don't know I'm not that kind of person that's why I'm that's why I'm hesitant to be on things like this yeah so okay anyway what are your thoughts and what are you looking forward to most with the new Star Wars lineup of course Jen doesn't know Jen doesn't care she doesn't watch the Mandalorian she hasn't watched Rise of Skywalker she just fundamentally does not care at all about Star Wars do yep. there's nothing even remotely interesting to you I don't think so right now. Mm -hmm. I've been so disappointed by how they've treated their women characters that I, they've lost me. What about Ray? Mm. Ray's supposed to be the answer to that. Yeah. I don't know. Too little, too late. I don't know. I just... She wasn't compelling. I guess I, I, guess I was burned. Mm-hmm. And... Okay. Um, my feelings are... Here's the tricky thing. I mean, I know I talk a lot about Star Wars, but that's only because people ask me a lot about Star Wars. I really don't care that much about Star Wars. I like it. It was part of my childhood, but I was always more of a Star Trek guy, a Star Trek kid. And um, so to to the lineup, it is ridiculous. Well, okay, here's... Okay, Honey Pie, how about this? All right. One of the things in the lineup that he's talking about is a new Obi-Wan Kenobi show starring Ewan McGregor. Oh, I do like Ewan McGregor. All right. Now, are you interested? Maybe. Mm -hmm. It's uh, basically telling uh, his story when he was basically living out in the desert watching over young Luke Skywalker before he would grow up. And so it's filling in the gaps with whatever happened you okay. know, between the fall of the or the, of the Republic and um, you know between Star Wars 3 and 4, basically. So what do you think about that? Would you want to watch that? I would give that a try. But only because of Ewan McGregor? And because it's back in the land of characters I care about. Mm -hmm. where okay. Yeah. Where people are still trying to do good stuff. Okay. People are trying to do good stuff in all Star Wars. I don't know. I just get so bogged down with all of the... Ugh. Okay. Um, right. I have to admit, I don't really care about most of it. Lando Calrissian is getting his own series. I don't care. Don't care? Um, but he's also from that time. Yeah, but he was kind of the shady guy that was doing back deals and... I don't know. Yeah. I don't really know very much about him. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah. The the droids are getting their own show. R2 and C-3PO are getting their own show. <laughs> I think that might be just annoying. Yep. They are pretty annoying. Uh, and most of these other ones you've never even heard of don't care about. What? There's all of those shows? Yeah, all these shows. And that's oh not all. And there's a few more as well. You know, I think people just need to get out and garden. Or maybe get involved in their own lives. Ooh. Or something. That just seems like a bit ridiculous. Judgy much? I just... Mm -hmm. Sorry, apparently I am in a judgy mode. <laughs> Something about this podcast and the questions thus far have put Jen in judgy mode. Judgy mode. Yep. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure they're all going to be fine. I'll probably watch them all. But honestly, I'm not a big fan of The Mandalorian. Uh, I've said it before. I think The Mandalorian basically is incredibly well produced. It's it's amazing to watch. It's a, it's a miracle of film production in service of a video game level storyline. And there's nothing wrong with video game level storylines. I made video game storylines myself for many years. I expect something a bit uh, more highbrow, I suppose. So, honestly, I'm not that excited about any of it. But, honestly, I'm excited about the Obi-Wan Kenobi show. Not because of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Not because of Star Wars. But because I think Ewan McGregor is probably the most charismatic um, actor of his generation. Yeah, geez, we watch him ride a motorcycle. Yep, yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I cannot get enough of Ewan McGregor. He is the bomb. Alrighty, and we'll come back to Discovery at the end. Um, so we can talk a bit more openly. And uh, Gerald is back. Gerald is on fire this month. 
Uh, and he, oh, oh <laughs> I hope my question didn't come across as anti-chicken. I'm pro-chicken. No, no way. You raised my chickeny hackles. Uh, yeah, there you go. That's what set Jen off. Just worried they may sound weird. Uh, that might make weird own nothing laws like the COVID uh, masks off in coffee shops. And we, all right, okay. I hope my question didn't come across as anti-chicken. I'm pro-chicken owning a smiley face. Just worried they might make weird own nothing laws, like with COVID laws, mask off in coffee shops, as we uh, know COVID doesn't have enough, enough money. money to enter safe cakes. Cafes. The cafes. Right, that's not cake. That's He's cafe. making a joke. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yep. All right, well, that was just a follow-on to the other one. No questions there. Okay, well, thank goodness, because you are going to be on my anti-chicken yes. bad list. Yep, that's a that's not a list you want to be the on. The naughty list. Okay, Marco, uh, he has another sports question. Mm. You mentioned in the last podcast that you like the series Ted Lasso, which oh, has a sports oh. theme. Oh, we liked that, but it wasn't about sports. I haven't watched it yet. Why do you oh. think uh, you like this, even though it has a sports theme? Or is it just the backdrop for the story? I just already answered that. Yeah. It's not about football. It's it's not about football. It, 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 you know, that is the setting. Uh, it is about uh, human relationships. It's basically an office workplace comedy. You know, in the same vein as The Office or Parks and Recreation or something like that. But much better. And, and honestly, the story that story could have been told in any number of industries. Um, it just happened to be set in a sports story. I will say, I mean, it is the best series of the year. It is the best new TV show in many, many years, in fact. And uh, would you like Ted Lasso more if it had been set... Not in, uh, you know, I mean, because instead of being a new coach who comes in, it could have been a new manager who comes in to head up a regional manager, and it could have been the same thing that, oh, well, he doesn't really have experience in this. You know, he yeah. was in another industry, and he's been hired for this one, and there's reasons behind it, and the new and the people don't appreciate or respect him, and yet, you know, he is who he is. I mean, it could have been the exact same beat-for-beat beat story yeah. having nothing to do with uh, football. Yeah. Would you have liked it more or less, or did it not make a difference? It's hard to say if I'd like it more or less. I liked it a lot. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it is about football, no, I don't know. I don't, I think it's fine. I think it's very good what it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Well, yes, it, yeah. Uh, it was just a backdrop for the story then. Okay. Uh, Darren McAuth, I will say I probably would have, I would have, I would have been happy if it wasn't sports. I think I probably would have liked it more if it were a sequel to The Office. Um, although that's too silly because it's much more grounded than that. I, I, I would have I would have preferred it had been something that I did find a bit more compelling or interesting as a subject matter, because of course the, the they did have to keep referring to the subject matter and it worked in well and I understood all the references and stuff like that. But it's um, you know and, and in fact it does have a few traditional sports entertainment elements you know it does have the big game and everything's riding on it and all of that but even then even then i mean that, that's almost secondary it's the it's it's what the big game means to the characters and not the big game itself yep um yeah so darren wants to chime in oh see i didn't I, darren says i want to chime in about how no one learning about no one learning any lessons in back to the future 
I disagree. Well, Darren, I'll stop you right there, because I didn't say no one. I said the lead. Marty McFly, who is the central character, who is the protagonist of that film, does not go through any personal character growth in the original film. And my whole point was, before I read the rest of your stuff, uh, because I think it kind of invalidates everything else, because you're saying George McFly learned... Yes, of course. There were tangential supporting characters who had character arcs. And that's fine. But the reason I brought that up and then I quickly changed it to Ghostbusters, where nobody learns anything, nobody goes through a character art, and is just as well and beloved a classic is, to refute the notion that is often bandied about on the internet now, that entertainment is a failure unless the lead character, the character who we follow, um, goes through a personal arc of redemption or character growth. And if it doesn't have that, it is an implicit failure in storytelling. And I mentioned Back to the Future as an example that no, you can have lead characters um, and who are very well beloved. And again, I would say Ghostbusters is a better example because nobody, lead character, secondary, tertiary character, villain, uh, hero, um, nobody, a secretary, uh, mm-hmm. mayor, nobody learns anything in that movie. And yet it's in the AFI greatest films of all time. So with that in mind, do I need to do the rest? Yeah, and then you're talking about George... All right. Okay, you do try to point out that Marty does have character growth in the original. I'm going to skip to that. I'm going to skip over George because, yes, George goes through growth. He's not the lead character. So it's kind of beside my point. But you say Marty, after playing at the dance, learns he's not so bad and shouldn't give up on his musical dreams just because that one teacher didn't like them, which is what Jennifer tried to tell him at the start. Hmm. Okay. Is that one scene... Is that an example of character growth? Did anything fundamentally change about Marty? When we meet Marty at the beginning of the of the film, he's obviously very talented. He loves music. It's all he cares about. He's trying to um I no, I don't think there's any growth there. In the first in the first scenes, he actually tries out um to get the the dance, right? With Huey Lewis and the other judges. He was not thinking, "Oh, I don't know if I'm good enough to do this." Uh, at all. Uh, He knew he was good enough. He was just frustrated that they didn't see it. And all his girlfriend Jennifer tells him is, don't worry, I see it. Um, Marty was not having a crisis of confidence at that moment. He was frustrated. And I don't believe anything about him ultimately putting on a show at a dance in a different decade um, led to any kind of change to his character. Uh, He was still going to keep on rocking regardless. He was just angry. He wasn't full of self-doubt. He did not go on a journey to learn that, no, I am worthy. At no point did he say, yeah, I'm a terrible musician. I should quit. He was just frustrated that um, there was an obstacle in his way. And the obstacle, I mean, it was... was it, it was not central to his growth or journey as a character. That is not in the nature. Nothing about him fundamentally changed. He didn't suddenly realize, oh, I do have the power within me all along. I, I disagree with that assessment. But now you also want to say Doc. I mean, again, I'm talking about Marty. Um, and although 
you say Doc learned that one day he would invent something that worked and that he would have a close friend in Marty. His whole attitude towards life changed. No, it didn't. When we see Doc in 1950, he is the exact same person in 1980. Nothing about him has changed. Uh, he, we never see any moments of introflection about whether he is on the right path or whether he's wasting his life. And, um, you know, and through trials and hardships, he realizes that, no, he is doing the right thing. He's an inventor at the beginning. He's an inventor at the end. He learns information, but that doesn't change who he is as a person. And nothing about Marty changes as a person. Now, like I said, in Back to the Future 2 and 3, they retroactively tried to give Marty an arc by throwing in the, Did you call me chicken? And it was ridiculous, and they would have been better off not doing it all together because it was so ham-fisted. Um, and again, they didn't need it because the original Back to the Future proved they didn't need it. Um, so while some people, and you say, while some people learn things, they weren't pushed as the moral of the story. They were just in there. Again, I'm not talking about people learning information. That wasn't the, the trope, the online meme that I was trying to counter. My point is, there are a lot of people online that immediately argue that if the lead character does not have a Campbell-esque prescribed journey, that the, that the entertainment is garbage. And that's ridiculous. And Ghostbusters proves it. The original Back to the Future proves it. So, um, it's interesting observations, though. And of course, yes, and of course, George. If George were the lead of Back to the Future instead of comic relief and a secondary character, then I would say, yeah, Back to the Future, I couldn't use it as an example. But George is not the lead of the story. The story is not about George. Jen, um, um, how's, the, how's the stitch going? Good. Thank you. Okay, right. Yeah, Jen was not paying attention to that at all. I assume you have nothing to say on that topic. Not really, right. no. But that was an opportunity for Jen to continue trying to save that stitch. Did you save the stitch? I think I have, yes. it's got. A, you've got a new funny line, but I've got all the stitches back on the needle. Hooray! Yep, it's just, it's just a custom scarf. Yes, exactly. All right, then let's move on to uh, Matt. We're getting a lot of from the same folks this time. Um, I need to branch out and get some new questions. I mean, oh. it, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's fine. Hey, 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 you guys keep asking the questions. We'll keep answering them, and the podcast can continue. It's all on you folks. <laughs> but anyway, Matt, well, this might be a different Matt, but I think it is the same Matt, says, In the past, I have heard you... See, I'm just using his pronouns. Yes. I've heard you talk about... And this is... I have to admit, this is a lot easier to read it this way, okay. rather than trying to interpret it on the fly. Yes. I That's look forward to hearing stories. what people say. Hmm? That's why time stories is hard for me. <laughs> you don't understand. That... <laughs> You're so good about extrapolating things out, but I like, no, just read it. Yeah, all right. <laughs> In the past, I've heard you talk about your game development years, working on titles like Siphon Filter and Fable 2, but I heard you mention The Sims a couple of times. I haven't heard you talk about this project in much detail, and I always wondered uh, some things. If I recall correctly, you were involved only with the PlayStation 2 version of The Sims. If not, thanks for reading. Uh, mail you later. So long. Bye-bye. You're on the right track there, buddy. For a layman, this sounds like just a port from the existing Windows version to the PlayStation uh, environment. Is that correct? Was it a technical migration, or was the game really rebuilt from scratch? I'm aware that even a port is a hard thing to do, given the technical restrictions of another platform, but I wondered... 
What was your role in such a project as the lead designer? Or did you have another role on the project? What kind of creative influence did you have on it? Can you give some examples? I can answer all those questions for you, sir. <laughs> and Jen has nothing to say about any of this either. So questions. she is going to really make some progress yep. on this scarf. Alrighty. So yes, you're right. It was, I was the lead, or I was, I was the, I think my official job was I was the creative director of Edge of Reality when Edge of Reality signed the job with uh, Electronic Arts to do a PlayStation 2 and Xbox and GameCube port of The Sims, the original Sims 1. And we were working on it at the same time that I believe Sims 2 was in development you know, for PC in, in Mac, in Macintosh. Alrighty. And um, Jen just snagged, and I've... Ah, what are you doing? I'm... Trying to look up a quote because somebody's going to want my... No, they didn't ask this month. Oh, well then fine. Yes, I was... I was... All right, so Jen's going back to... Yeah, Jen was realizing, oh, it's almost up. But Henrik fell down and uh, didn't ask for the quote of the month. Do you want to give him a quote of the month anyway? And uh, and me and Henrik does not have that awesome responsibility to remind you to do it every month when you clearly remember on your own now? It's all right. All right, so it's one less thing for you to do unless Henrik asks. Yes. All right. Sorry for that brief interruption. Um, let's continue with The Sims. So, uh, Maxis was working on Sims 2, and we were hired, as you say, to port The Sims over to console. Now, as it happens, we were not the first company. I think we were either the third or the fourth developer that had signed a contract to do it, and everybody else, including Maxis themselves, had failed at this. Because, as you say... I mean, it's it goes a lot deeper than um, it being a hard thing to do because of technical restrictions of another platform. It was a miracle of porting that Jason Yenowine, who was the lead programmer on the project, he basically locked himself in his room for three months and came out and said, okay, I've done it. Because Sims, the original Sims 1, was a very sloppy code base that was all driven by an engine slash editor. It was all kind of wrapped into one because of the organic way that game was developed. Uh, the editor uh, engine was called Edith. And rather then completely re-architect everything from scratch. It was our job to get Edith, which was a very processor-intensive program because of its nature, to run on a PlayStation and a GameCube and an Xbox, which it couldn't be done. And others had tried and failed. We tried and succeeded. And that was the lion's share of work that Edge of Reality had to do. Um, and it's interesting... Uh, EA and Maxis both pushed very hard for us to ignore the Edith base of, of Sims 1 and instead work with their code base for the Sims 2 that was in development. They pushed very hard and, uh, as I understand it, our technical guys said no because that's in flux. That's something that's still being developed. That would be madness. <laughs> um, and so, no, we are not going to do that. We'll just take... We'll, we'll figure out a way to make this work. Um, and... Uh, by hook or by crook, they did, in fact, do it. So, at the end of the day, like I said, that was the main responsibility. But, here's the deal. The Sims um, is a PC product. It was not a console product. And my job as the creative director of the company... I don't know what my actual credit on The Sims is. I think I'm just listed as part of the design team. My main job was making a, an implicitly directionless PC simulation into an actual console game. And that's a very different thing. Because the original Sims, it was just a sandbox. Fire it up, 
and start just clicking on things and see what happens and and respond to the needs of the Sims and build stuff for them because it's really weird. The game was originally not a, a, a simulation of human existence. It was an architectural... Uh, it, Will Wright set out to make that game. I mean, I heard this from him directly because we had a few meetings from him. It was very cool. He's a really interesting guy. But he set out to make uh, something... Uh, sim architecture. And he was inspired by... Was it Franklin Lloyd Wright? Is that the famous architect? Yeah. And he wanted... Uh, Frank Lloyd. Fra Frank Lloyd Wright. He wanted to make a game that was all about that. Hey, instead of building a city, we're designing houses. And as an offshoot of that, he said, well, how are we going to give players feedback if their house is good? Well, let's just put some little people in there, and they'll walk around and they'll comment on stuff. And then that was the magic spark. Well, because nobody cared about making the house, but that's why the original Sims still has all this really weird, intricate control and interface for building a house, which is almost kind of overkill. It's because that's what the game originally was. But ultimately, it became about those people. And and it's as a result of that, that it was just this weird, organic mishmash of stuff, as I understood it. But anyway... That's what The Sims was. It was just a sandbox where you played with toys for, to your own amusement. And you let them go swimming, and then you emptied the pool, and they drowned. Or whatever, all the crazy things that people do to torture their Sims and all that. Um, we could have just gone with that. But I personally felt that that was not going to be acceptable or successful on a console. That console players wanted something else. That they needed to have a purpose to what they were doing, rather than just coming up with their own on-the-fly, how am I going to entertain myself with this weird toy? Uh, turning it from a toy into a game was my main responsibility on the game. And then my other responsibility was the fact that you were going to play it with, a, with um, dual analog stick controllers and not a mouse and keyboard. And um, so that was my first job, that I completely redesigned the controls uh, to work with dual sticks. To And a big important thing for me was that I wanted, I felt it was important that um, the player has some kind of physical, tangible presence in the world, uh, that they are not literally just a mouse cursor that floats on a 2D plane over a 3D field that uh, you know they bring in. So um, you know that required some experimentation and working around until we came up with the means that players can select and interact with stuff. Um, uh, also very important to me, an interface because you didn't have a keyboard. You had analog sticks, and yet you had hundreds of context-specific, bespoke things that players can do, and we had to work on the interface, and that was all me, basically using... Uh, uh, at the time, nobody was doing it, but I was very excited about radial menus, which are now becoming very, very common. But back then, I was really kind of, we were at the forefront of using radial menus because, hey, we have a radial controller. We have these analog sticks. Let's do that. Another big thing um, was there were tons of... There's tons of information to dig through to be able to play the game to peak efficiency. Not that it was a game. It was a toy. And how do we give players all that information? And so I was working on... I Basically, I invented... Using the D-pad um, for something other than moving around in four dimensions. The, the D-pad became a menu selection system, which has now become an incredibly common thing. So that was another thing that I was responsible for. And then the last thing was, I started to talk about this, turning it from a toy into a game meant players had to have reasons to do things. And, um, and and originally, we were only given a year to do this, so my original pitch was basically kind of like an objective system, a checklist where you were just told, hey, you will literally get the equivalent of points if you do these various things. And it was just coming... It was, it was basically a precursor to um, the Xbox 360 achievement system, where, hey, we'll just give you points arbitrarily for doing random things, because we know that if you do those things, you'll have fun. 
So let's actually bribe you to do the fun things. And that was my original pitch. And that's what it was going to be, um, because we had less than a year to get this game done, and that was all we had time to do. But as Jason, the programmer, started to make progress, um, and, and, they, um, and, and Maxis themselves realized, oh, this isn't going to fail. This is going to succeed. And they started paying more and more attention. Um, they took all my stuff for the interface and the uh, the control systems and all that, but they weren't keen on the, again, what would ultimately become an equivalent of Xbox 360 achievements. They didn't think that was enough. And they wanted to do storytelling. So there came a point where I moved on to work on other stuff. And I basically switched over. I stopped working on Sims full-time a few months into it and just focused entirely on Pitfall Lost Expedition at that point. Although I did still give them a a lot of feedback because it was Max's internal designers who um, said, okay, well, if we're going to do objectives, let's actually build a whole story mode out of this where you you have specific life goals you have to meet and you move from house to house and that's how you go through levels. None of that was me. Um, and honestly, I thought it would have been fine to just do the achievement. And I think the existence of achievement systems, which now drive everything, the way everything is gamified, I believe that would have been enough. And that's all we could have done um, with our original schedule. But anyway, the game ballooned. Uh, Maxis suddenly put tons of resources into it. Their entire department of developers and scripters who worked with Edith, who suddenly didn't have anything to do because Sims 1 was, was effectively not being supported because they were all shifting over to Sims 2. They had all these people who could work on doing all this scripted content because Jason did get Edith to work on the platform, which again was impossible. So anyway, those were my responsibilities. And like I said, it was I probably put at most half a year into it. Probably not even that, full time. Uh, and then I moved on. But... I'm still really proud of the stuff I did. And I think it's it's one of those things that's very influential. And now there's a lot, all these things I did that are really common, but I don't think anybody recognizes where did they come from. They came from this guy, he said, <laughs> pointing at himself with two thumbs. So that was my creative influence on The Sims. All right. Then uh, we move on to Ben, who asks... What issues do I have with The Mandalorian? Do I prefer Season 2 over Season 1? Jen doesn't care. This is the last question... As previously mentioned, Henrik did not ask for words of wisdom, so Jen will take a break from that. But before then, before Jen leaves, because she has nothing... Do you have anything to say about Mandalorian? No. Um, do you have anything to say about Baby Yoda? He's he cute. was in that first episode, and yeah. just him being in that episode did not prompt you to want to come back for another episode. Just to see, what's that cute little Baby Yoda? Because that was the cliffhanger of the first episode, and you said, yeah, I don't care. Just don't care. Even don't care about Baby Yoda. I just... Yeah. All right. Um... Right. Then uh, we did, uh, I think it was Marco, who asked thoughts about Discovery. You've had all this time now. Discovery thoughts. Oh. Season three. And you completely ignored it all this time to just keep working on fixing that stitch. <laughs> right. So, folks, um, we are now going to talk a bit about season three Discovery spoilers up to everything, uh, but not the final episode. Uh, and then Jen is going to leave, and we're going to talk, and I'm going to talk about Mandalorian. If you don't want Mandalorian or season three of Discovery at all spoiled, thanks for listening. Send your questions to questions at raw.com. <laughs> Let me know if you think I should stop with the repurposing people's emails and just read them verbatim as they are yep. or not. And have a very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye bye. And if you haven't, honey, I gave you your last little bit of time. You still have nothing to say about Discovery. All right, I'll give her more time. I'll say what I think about Discovery Season 3. Spoilers be damned. Um, I have to admit, I was really... One thing is, neither Jen nor I had any idea what... We knew Discovery was going into the future. And I thought that was very cool and exciting. And I purposely went out of my way to not know anything about it so I could be surprised. And I was very surprised that basically, Season 3 of Discovery turned Star Trek 
into Star Wars. Um, because, uh, you know, if you look at the Star Wars prequels, which are telling the story of an enlightened republic, uh, with, with problems, granted, but, um, you know, uh, you know, it's basically at the, at the height of its powers, um, falling into a dark ages, which is what Star Wars 4, 5, and 6 are. Um, you know, when, oh, look, all that great shiny technology, we've lost it because we've become a dictatorial empire and people are oppressed and now it's just a bunch of plucky, Space Knights, um, you know, going on quest to save the day. Um, that's kind of what happens with Discovery. The Federation is awesome. It's got problems, sure, but it's on the right track. It's it's the best thing we've got. And now let's jump into the future. And oh, the Federation is gone. And now it's everybody for them for themselves. And um, it's a dark time. And the galaxy needs a hero. It's it, it, it was shocking to me. And I was really kind of oh no. That's really lost what Star War- Star Trek is. I'm really bothered by that, and I, you know, I, I was I was nervous, and I was also I was surprised in the first couple episodes how I was just literally sad. It made me sad that that um, humanity had lost so much, or not just humanity, of course. Although that's a problematic. The Starfleet has always been very, uh, and you know, uh, the Federation has always been very human centric. But you know, uh, the galaxy had lost so much, but I mean, losing that shining light and it regressed so badly. Um, one could argue. It was a metaphor for um, 2016 to 2020. And, you know, and I, I thought, well, okay, well, that's really interesting. I wonder if that's what they're going to do. And they're going to be trying to... Because Star Trek has always been about drawing real-world parallels. And, hey, if we've taken a step back in our overall forward progressive mar- arc of, of history, maybe Star, Star Trek too, too. And I, I took that as cold comfort. And But I was just surprised how sad I was that the Federation wasn't going to be there anymore because... Um, it is, you know, a shining light and exemplar to, uh, you know, point the way for us, uh, for humanity as a whole. Um, but then, you know, within uh, an episode or two, oh, you know, uh, the Federation is still here. And, um, and this is going to be about them getting their footing back. I'm like, oh, good, okay. So their skill can be the shining light. And, you know, after the first couple of episodes, which were very... Very Star Warsy. The first and the second episode might as well have been, um, you know, on that slate that I it was Marco of. Hey, look, here's the new Star Wars shows, including um, Star Wars Burnham and or you know, and Star <laughs> Wars, yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um. So the first couple episodes, I was a bit worried, but then when they finally found the Federation and realized, oh, it's just on its back feet and it has to rebuild and they can do it, I got really excited. And then that's when the show for a while became just regular Star Trek again. Oh, right, well, let's go to another planet. And solve this planet's problems. And meanwhile, you know, reveal the meta story of what the burn is and all that. And all that was very good. And I was very happy with it. And, um, uh, but these last uh, final episodes, especially the most recent, the, the, the penultimate episode, where uh, we find out that the villain, the big bad, the green lady, uh, and the emerald chain, everything they're doing is just to seek an armistice um, and actually find a way. I mean, I, I, I was floored. In the biggest, best way, by that that they totally set up the entire season to make you think one thing, and pull out the rug to say no. Um, you know, even the worst of us can have good intentions, and I thought that was amazing, and made everything worthwhile in this season. And of, and but then of course she's still a flawed character, and um, you know she talks the talk, but when called upon to walk the walk, she couldn't quite do it. And I can't wait to see what the final episode is and all that. And um, and uh, yeah, so. That just scenes of negotiation turned out to be some of my favorite entertainment of the last year. Uh, just uh, Admiral Vance, and I can't think of her name, Green Lady, 
just sitting down and working through the particulars of an armistice was riveting. I could have had the whole show be about that. And the rest of the show was cool, too. I mean, hey, uh, you know, it's not the first time we've had uh, Die Hard on the Enterprise. Of course, we had that whole episode where Picard ran around as John McClane and went through Jeffrey Tubes and all that. So Burnham got to do it, too, and that was all really well done. And the stuff between her and Stamets at the end was really heart-wrenching. So I've been, on the whole... Very ecstatic about the third season. It's been phenomenal. Now, hopefully, honey, you have something to say. Still have nothing to say. <laughs> you hate it. No. You can barely bring yourself to watch it every week. Uh, no, I think the last couple of episodes have been really good. Okay. But, I don't know. I just... Maybe I'm one of those changed people, and I just... I like going and fixing people's problems, and getting back on the starship, and going to the next place's problems, and helping them fix that. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, are you saying that you are rejecting change and I new might. things? Maybe. You want your Star Trek the way it used to be? Under this new fancy-fangled Star Trek? Yeah. No cats, only beagles. Well, so I suspect Jen's favorite episodes of the seasons were the, those middle ones where, oh, hey, for a few episodes, we're just going to go to a planet, and here's this society that has a problem, and, well, it's a problem because of the burn and all of these other things, but still, can we help this particular society? And then let's yeah. go, and there were like three or four episodes, I think, where that was really the main focus. And honestly, I suspect most people say, oh, this is like the, mm, can we get back to the, the space cowboy stuff? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the response is. I mean, I don't mind Space Cowboy stuff showing up. I just, really, those first two episodes were so incredibly Star Wars-y um, that I, I was just a bit disappointed. But again, I, I think it was all part of the arc, and you have to take the season as a whole, and it was brilliantly done, uh, that it was basically all a big um, setup to subvert expectations and basically find a new voice. And I think it's great that Star Trek has a new voice. I've loved all of Discovery. And I've loved this season the most. And Jen has nothing to say. I am fine with it. I don't... You, she could take it or leave it. I could take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't Why know. Why is that? Why do you not like Burnham as much as Archer? Mm. Aside from the fact that she doesn't have a dog. Well, there's that. Um... As I would imagine, Jen's favorite is probably still Enterprise. With Archer and the crew. Right? Well, just because they're Beagle. But <laughs> No, um, I would I would assume in general. I mean that Enterprise is probably your favorite. Is it not? Can you say? Actually I really like the new crew. Uh Chris, of what? Chris um Oh the the yeah, the the Abrams Trek, the new Trek, the yep. the, the Kelvin timeline. Yep. Mm -hmm. I just really like maybe it's the smart assiness of it. Mm -hmm. I just enjoy that very much. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, I don't know. I I don't think I'm a stupid person, but all of this other Star Trek, it just, maybe I'm not paying as close of attention when I'm watching it. Uh-huh. I just, yeah, I just don't care about any of the characters, the art, the story arch You don't stuff. like Saru or Tilly or any of them? They just, maybe they just need more developing. They're pretty well developed. Mm -hmm. I think maybe you just have changing, ta I think you're looking for something different in your entertainment. I mean, a big thing that Jen's not talking about that I'm just waiting for her to say is, and it gets back to Mandalorian, um, Jen has gotten to the point, I think, and you didn't used to be this way, hmm. where, oh, if characters are literally in physical conflict, you just tune out. Hmm. Anytime there's actual violence, even cowboys and Indians, cops and robbers, just, you know, just silly light, you know, nature you know, shooting and it's not nothing. Nothing's really heavy. You're like, I can. Can we just please go back to everybody just talking? And you, you seem to have come. Mm. I mean, anytime 
I mean, because that's what you said after the first couple episodes. Man, it was just nothing but nonstop shooting. Yeah. It's like, but it's very well crafted. It's well done. And once upon a time, you really loved Die Hard. I suspect if you were to watch the movie Die Hard now for the first time ever, you'd say, yeah, that was just two hours of noise. I, I didn't care. I mean, I think Jen has gone mm. through a fundamental shift and where she used to be comfortable and even enjoy make-believe violence where the hero always, you know, wins. And I mean, obviously you weren't particularly crazy about, oh, if it gets particularly nasty, but, you know, again, harmless violence, movie violence, you never had a problem with. We used to watch all these films and you loved them. And I suspect now, if you could truly see them fresh, new, for the first time, you're like, boy, yeah, I wish they could have just found something to do other than just fighting the whole time. Because that's just been your response over and over and over yeah, again. Yeah, it could very to, well be. And it's really been surprising to me. Maybe I'm just, I think, as humanity, we're ready to move past mm -hmm. a lot of this us and them stuff. Mm -hmm. And especially physical violence. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I was going to say, that's that was your takeaway from Mandalorian. Because the whole first mm -hmm. episode of Mandalorian is just Mandalorian running around shooting a bunch of people. Yeah. Whoopity and you're like, oh, why, why, why do I want to watch this? I, I, don't, I don't, You don't care about the world building. You don't care about the craftsmanship. You don't care about Baby Yoda. Because this is a show about a guy just going to a, a bunch of places and shooting a bunch of people. And living in a lawless time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So that's the thing. I, 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 I don't know when you changed. I don't know when it happened. But I mean, it's certainly something I've noticed that Jen has gotten to the point over the last few years where she almost never enjoys movies. No matter what. And, they, and often there are movies that I know in her 20s she would have really enjoyed. And yet we sit there and watch and she's like, eh, yeah, whatever. That was kind of a waste of time. Can we just go back and watch West Wing again? Or whatever. Can we just watch a show where people sit around and talk about solving problems? And I think that's gotten to the point where that's the only type of entertainment Jen wants. Mm -hmm. Where people talk about solving problems and then solve them. Yes. Without pulling a gun out. Or a sword. Or fists. And anytime somebody does that. I mean, did you like... We just finished The Flight Attendant the other night. Did yeah. you like The Flight Attendant? I did like the flight attendant, yes. actually. And you know what? There was very it, little gun in there. There was very little fighting. There was just a woman trying to solve a series of escalating problems. Yeah. Using her brain. Yep. And you like that. Yep. And I could imagine a different version of that same story where it's Liam Neeson. And, hmm. he's, and he's getting in fights all the time. In addition to using his brain and solving the problems. But, I mean, that show has an incredibly small amount. I mean, a couple of yeah. little scenes, but very, very little direct physical confrontation. And I think you, and I don't think you would have liked it if it, could, if it had gone a different way. Yeah. And I think it's just fundamentally changed how you enjoy stuff. I don't know what you're reading if you still enjoy violence in books. No, I usually just skim it. Yeah, you just literally skip those... Chapters or paragraphs or yeah, whatever. Just skim and go past it. Right. Okay, yeah, some bad stuff happened. Let's yep. move on. Yeah. yeah and, but, I mean, once upon a time, I assume you liked Die Hard. Well, I remember liking mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Or, but um, more for the humor. Mm -hmm. More for the humor, of course, not for just the yeah. fighting. And, of course, that the good guy wins yeah. and all that. But, yeah, I mean, you do. I mean, can you think of a movie or a TV show where you were thrilled by the action? Well, I think, uh, yeah, those uh, aliens come to Earth kind of dooms things and people have to survive. So disaster films. Yeah, disaster films that have really great special effects. Mm -hmm. I enjoy the special effects. Because those are people solving problems. There is a lot of violence, but it's not person-on-person -person violence for the most part. Yeah. 
Probably, yeah. So I, I think that's consistent. I think as soon... I mean, well, okay. I'm trying to think of something that I'm pretty sure you liked. I, the last time... We, the last uh, Mission Impossible movie. Had, um, Which one? I don't well, know. Tom Cruise. Yeah. And, um, when he's... It, 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 had some, I mean, it had some very, very intense fight scenes. The whole final, like, 20 minutes of the movie. Spoilers for... A protocol, I forget whatever the most recent Mission Impossible film was. Without actually saying what happens, the final bit of the movie was him and his main rival. Remember, they were chasing each other on helicopters, and the big deal about how Tom Cruise literally yeah, yeah. flew his helicopter That's himself. That's mainly what I remember. About but that eventually, the, the helicopters crashed, and the two of them were basically having the big final fight on the cliff edge, and they were going over the edge. And it was long, or, or, earlier in the film, there was like the really very gripping fight in the uh, three person fight in the bathroom it was kind of like true lies whereas tom cruise and um you know the big guy and, and the i think he was an asian assassin who would come to kill them i mean you don't remember you don't remember and maybe i mean and, and those were i mean some of the most amazing um well-produced and thrilling action sequences i've seen in years and i thought you liked them too but maybe you didn't maybe you were just staring at the ceiling waiting for those sequences to be over maybe remember. Well, since I don't really remember them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember the fight with True Lies. And again, that's using humor. Mm-hmm. That is, That was a silly fight scene. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there was physical violence, but... Well, no, no, no. You're remembering it wrong. The The fight scene in the bathroom in True Lies is played very, very straight. Um... But he knocks him out with the hand dryer. Yes, it it does have that button at the end that um, he does he does rip a hairdryer off. But even still, it's done in a really graphic and like bone crunchy way. Oh, that's true. Yes. Um, so yes, thing. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think if you were to watch True Lies now for the first time, and I have no no nostalgia for it, hmm. you would say, "Boy, I wish he could have just stopped fighting every five seconds." Although I think there's like three fight scenes in the whole movie, or, or four, three or four maybe. I don't know. Um, so, but anyway, that's your problem with Star Trek. Star Trek, mm. they fight a lot more. Yep. Yep. I just want to move forward and solve problems. Mm-hmm. Without fighting. Um, and so, I mean, like, uh, I'm sure you very much enjoyed the Discovery episode this season, where the whole se- the whole episode was basically Burnham um, going back to Vulcan, or whatever the planet is now called, uh, and basically just making an impassioned plea to get the data, and them mm-hmm. saying, no, we can't, and her basically debating them. Yep. Yeah, that was good. Yep. So that's what Jen needs. And when, and you know, and, and that's, I mean, uh, Star Trek has always had bits of violence, but it's always been so antiseptic and, and really just not very well done. <laughs> you don't really feel it. It's just like, it almost feels like going through the motions. It's kind of embarrassing how bad it is usually. Mm. Just a bunch of people just, oh, we're hunkered behind some barrels and we're going pew. <laughs> and then they get and they, oh they fall down it's just like oh can we just get through this this is I mean really the only original Trek that had a good uh, heart wrenching fight scene is that one where he's fighting the lizard guy the Gorn yeah mm-hmm. I mean that was not antiseptic yeah well it, it it one would argue it doesn't hold up now but yeah it's it's certainly memorable from your for, childhood yeah, yeah for its first yeah. date but even still that's more of an example I mean the Gorn because we didn't speak to him and, and of course the entire message of that is well actually when you stop thinking of him as the other and actually look at him as a sentient being that's when Kirk put the rock down mm-hmm. but um for the for that whole episode he was really a force of nature hmm it was less that oh it's two combatants fighting as opposed to Kirk stop trying to stop an unstoppable force for the entire episode. So in that regard, it's more like a disaster film too, as opposed to do, um, 
humans warring with each other. Yep. 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 Yeah, so um, that's it. That's Jen's feeling about Discovery. She wished they'd stop fighting and just start talking. <laughs> Let's work together. Yep. Yep. And they do it enough that she'll keep watching. Uh, and me, I thought it was fantastic yeah, for the reasons so I talked about. Then bottom, lower decks. Lower decks, which yeah. Jen didn't finish. She eventually gave up, and I couldn't say why. Because I lower decks is the best Star Trek has ever been. Yeah, so and so it's so sad because man, it got so good. The last couple of episodes were amazing, <sighs> but you moved on, and I don't know why. I mean, they're they're twenty minute episodes, yeah, and each one, I it was interesting. There uh, there was actually a surprising amount of graphic violence. Oh, maybe that was it again. It, it may very well have been. Every episode, I think because they were unbound, because they were cartoons, and it's uh, it's kind of, an, it has an adult swim sensibility. I mean, there were like, I mean, the first episode was um, basically the crew of, of uh, I forget the name of the ship that they're on, because um, I haven't watched it for a few months, but I mean, the entire crew was basically being zombified. And they were like bloodily attacking each other, mm. and you know, di- you know, ripping each other literally limb from limb type stuff. And I mean, there was a lot of violence in that show. And maybe I didn't occur to me at the time, but maybe that was a problem. If they just uh, stuck to the jokes uh, and didn't like you know punctuate it with lots of fighting and killing. Okay, there maybe. you go. There you go. So sorry, folks. That Thanks. was uh, just me and Jen kind of working through uh, our own uh, entertainment scheduling. <laughs> uh, and you just got to listen. But uh, you have anything else? You have nothing to say about Mandalorian. Nope. So nothing. I will uh, say, say goodbye to everybody. Yep. It's one seventeen in the afternoon. We haven't had breakfast yet. So I'll you go gonna, make that. You're going to say goodbye to everybody? Oh, yes. Goodbye, everybody. As she walks further and further from the microphone. Goodbye. All right. Goodbye. So I don't think I really have to talk too terribly much about the Mandalorian. Um, I've already, like I said, really what it boils right down to, it's, it's a beautifully produced show that does not live up to the potential of that production because the storylines are just ridiculously trite and predictable. Um, I very rarely find myself doing this, but in this show, almost without exception, I know what's going to happen. There are very few surprises. It's constantly, oh, and now, yep, yep, there it is. Oh, and they're going to double-cross them. Yep, there they did it. Every episode is like that. There were a few key moments where the show kind of goes in a fresh direction. Like having an entire episode with him basically trying to catch Jawas. That was interesting. But then the rest, almost everything else is just kind of boring by the numbers stuff. And the second season maybe was even worse. Hey, let's have an entire episode that's just nothing more than ripping off James Cameron's Aliens. Or maybe the original, depending on how you want to look at it. And okay, beat for beat, I, I'm just, oh, yes, of course she's going to go off, and of course she's going to be in danger. He's going to find her, and now they have to run back to the ship. And, um, yeah, oh, they're trapped. Well, yeah, those X-Wings that we saw at the beginning, they're going to show up and save them because there's nothing else that can save them, and you know how it's going to work right now because it's so trite and by the numbers. It's ridiculous to be how much love and praise this show gets when it just seems so, like I said, video game-ish. Um, the entire second season was was just one fetch quest after another, nothing having anything to do with um, character growth or um, insight into the condition, anything. They were just literally, oh, I'm going to go to a place and I'm going to shoot some stuff. And uh, and then somebody tells me, now you got to go over here. And then next week I'm going to go here and I'm going to shoot some stuff. And now they tell me to go to the next place. And um, interspersed amongst that was, oh, look, here's a character that I read about in a book. Or here's a character that was in the cartoon 
noon. And I mean, I have nothing against fan service. I love fan service. I love being served as a fan. And maybe it's just because I don't really care enough about Star Wars. I couldn't get the feels when Ahsoka shows up or when they, you know, they name drop Admiral Thrawn. I just don't care about any of that stuff. I've always had a problem with Mandalorian. That as a as the central hero, they've got a fundamental flaw. Not getting to see his face, or very rarely getting to see his face, means that it is much more difficult to form an uh, emotional human connection with somebody. Our brains are wired, are hardwired to be all about facial recognition. It's 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 how our species functions. And putting him in a tin can and just having very dry. Yeah, we're going to see what's going to happen about that. Delivery means he's a cipher that I find myself having a very difficult time caring about at all. Um, so that's an issue I've had with it right from the get-go. Now, you could argue it means the few times he takes off his helmet are that much more impactful, and that's certainly true, but I still got to get through whatever it is, eight episodes, to get to those impactful moments, and you've lost the opportunity for me to invest. Uh, you could say, well, it, it doesn't have to be his face, it's his actions that speak and define who his character is. Sure, that's true, but without... I mean, any actor will tell you their most important tool in their repertoire is their face, is those shifting glasses or glances, and you know the 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 twitch of the lower lip, and um, you know the, the eyes are the windows of the soul. The Mandalorian has no eyes, so I cannot connect with him. Uh, with his soul, and so how can I be engaged with him as a character? He's a weak one note character. He's the man with no name from Spaghetti Westerns, but the man with no name had Clint Eastwood's face. And the way that Clint Eastwood would um, shift the, the cigarette or the cigar from one corner of his mouth to another spoke volumes more than the Mandalorian will ever do by sitting down in chairs and ducking behind stuff to shoot. That's all you see him do. Because you never see or almost never see his face. And that's the fundamental problem. And I believe you've just got such a huge legion of people for whom Star Wars is such an important part, a fundamental part of their childhood. You have so many generations that that's the case, that they're just happy to be given something that does an incredibly competent job of aping something that they remember from their childhood. And I think that's a big part of why it's so successful. And you know what? It does a great job at that. I It doesn't pull on me. I need it to stand on its own as opposed to ride on the rest on the lore of what came before. And so that's the problem. Like I said, the fundamental structure of the second season was weak and 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 dull. Just, you know, um, get a little bit... You know, it's literally just one non-stop, uh, boring, not particularly engaging video game storyline. And um, now, there are occasionally really cool moments in Mandalorian. And I'm happy to watch. And mostly, it's any time, seeing as how the Mandalorian himself is not humanized. And it might as well just be a robot who you don't care about. I care more about the robots than I do about Mandalorian. Because, of course, he plays it one note. He's supposed to be that gruff, uh, mysterious stranger. Um, you know, anyway, sorry. Uh, anytime the, the Empire is, what do you call it, uh, humanized? I'm into it. I was into it with those two uh, pilots in the last episode, uh, where one of them, you know, basically said, you know, losing Alderaan was worth it to strike a blow against terrorists like you, or whatever his line was. That was great. That was fantastic, seeing the entirety of Star Wars from another perspective. Or that guy that Bill Burr, um, you know, uh, you know, his former commander. That stuff was really good. Um, and I mean, there there are a few other moments like that. Uh, you know, I would love 
um, to spend more time with those X-wing pilots who are probably exhausted because they are single-handedly having to you know cover an entire quadrant because the Empire's fallen and the New Republic doesn't have their stuff together yet. And I mean, they were more interesting to me. What's their story? Basically, uh, space cops trying to do the impossible and keep an entire sector under control just with two X-wings. That was engaging and interesting. You could have a really cool story there instead of just retreading the same old boring. Uh, um, clones of what has come before, which is what Mandalorian is. And, um, yeah. And if it had done more of that, that would be fantastic. But it didn't. And uh, those are the issues I have with Mandalorian, to answer your question, Ben. And do I prefer Season 2 over Season 1? Um, I say no. I would say Season 1... I would say they're both they're comparable. They're practically the same, but I think season one had a few more memorable moments that really uh, grabbed my attention. It, it had more of those than season two. Season two was more... And season one was so by the book, hey, let's have a prison break thing. And of course you know that all the scum he's got together are going to double-cross him. Of course. I'll tell you one other thing I really like about Mandalorian, even though I don't think I'm supposed to. It almost feels like it's a mistake. Mando is a klutz. He is the worst at his job. He is, um, you know, I practically expect Keystone Cops music to be playing whenever he's called upon to be the really cool badass superhero, and yet he just kind of flounders around and is really kind of ineffectual. Like um, when the Dark Troopers were coming and Baby Yoda was inside the force field, and not once... Not twice, but thrice. He decided to just literally charge at a force field and headbutt it. And he got rebuffed every time. And it's like, oh, I guess this is supposed to be kind of heightening the uh, the uh, the tension. And it goes, oh my gosh, is Mando going to save the baby? And I'm, like, I'm, just, I'm just practically, am I supposed to be laughing at this? This is laughable. And, I, you know, so I, I kind of enjoy it on that level, just how incompetent and clownish and buffoonish he is often portrayed, which seems to be very much at odds with the kind of character he's supposed to be. And I don't know if that's something the the, the uh, showrunners are doing on purpose or not. But yeah, so that's kind of fun. But no, I think the first season, on the whole, had more interesting stuff going on. Like you almost had one full... What, almost one entire episode. The Jawas, um, and then having to make, make peace with the Jawas, and of course you just had to go fight a slug and all that. But I mean, that was like that was an almost from start to finish really great episode. And I don't think the second uh, season had anything approaching that. And the second season had, it didn't have anything approaching devoting ten or well, it must have been five or ten minutes to just a couple of random stormtroopers who are holding Baby Yoda in a bag and wondering what the heck are we supposed to do with this thing? I don't know. Who's the boss? Oh my gosh, is that the boss? That was amazing. I would have rather had a whole episode of those two guys. But then, hey, I loved uh, Troopers back in the day, if anybody remembers that. So anyway, that's it for Mandalorian and Discovery and all the personal stuff. Oh, boy, folks, if you made it this far, my, I doff my cap to you. Although now, I'm going to say goodbye. Thanks for listening. Send questions to questionsatraw.com. I'm going to take a break because Jen's probably made breakfast by now, or uh, whatever you want to call it, at 1.30 in the afternoon. And then I'll record the gameplay stuff. And... Uh, as predicted, folks, thanks for listening or watching. Have a nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Oh, bye-bye.